Steve and Kevin Preview Masters 25 and review Arabian Nights on episode 77 of So Many Insane Plays. Welcome to episode 77 of So Many Insane Plays, where we have two very special and unusual topics. The first is our preview card for Masters 25, and the second is our review of Arabian Nights. I'm Kevin Crone with Stephen Menendian. Hi, everyone. If you have any comments, questions, or suggestions, you can tweet us at Many Insane Plays, email us at so many insane plays podcast at gmail.com, or leave feedback on Eternal Central, MTGCast, or TheManadrain.com. We would normally put our announcements right here in the show, but since we have a preview card for Masters 25, we will just dive right into the meat. Steve, what do you think? Let's do it. But let's begin by describing what this set is. Well, Masters 25 is a magic 25th anniversary celebration type product. It's a reprint set designed to capture the whole history of the game. Now, Wizards has just started their previews, and we're part of that here. So we don't know very much at the time of this recording that is more than the audience does. But I can tell you that the product comes out on March 16 and is an entirely a reprint set similar to um, Modern Masters and Eternal Masters, but again, designed to capture the whole history of magic in one way or another. You know, it's this is kind of a, a funny side anecdote, but today someone invited me to an event on March, 20, March 16th, and I scoured my calendar and my email trying to figure out what was happening on March 16th. I couldn't remember. I was like, something's going on on March 16th. <laughs> and then, uh, of course, as we were prepping for the show, right. I realized it's this. Well, so, I can tell you that I will likely be drafting this set on March 16th. Nice. At least I hope so. And so I'm looking forward to that. But hey, we're beating around the bush here. We have a really awesome card to to preview for our audience. Not a new card, of course, a reprinted card, but it's one that is near and dear to our hearts, especially yours. Steve, do you want to take the honors? Oh, yeah. We are very proud to announce a reprint of Doomsday. Yes. In Magic 25. And this is, in fact, I think only the third reprint of Doomsday ever. Second, if you don't count the special uh, in uh, Amonkhet... Invocation? Yeah, Invocation. Yeah. Um, And, in fact, the first reprint was in 6th edition, which we'll talk about in just a second. We'll talk about this. But this is... So, this is one of the first reprints of Doomsday in a quote-unquote regular face magic card yep. since 6th edition, really, the first reprint. Long overdue, in fact. It's such an awesome Indeed. card. Indeed. <laughs> Easily one of my favorite cards of all time. Probably the best place to start with Doomsday is just to recognize it may just be the most skill-intensive card ever designed. You know, there is a short list of cards, Kevin, that are sometimes bandied about as being the most skill-intensive cards. Mm-hmm. And the main criteria tends to be the complexity and the decision-making options that are presented by the card. So uh, the cards that typically come up are cards like Sensei's Divining Top, cards like Cabal Therapy, cards like Gifts Ungiven, mm-hmm. or to a lesser extent, Necropotence. But all of those cards have in common is they all present systematically a number of options and decisions that you have to make. Gifts Ungiven requires you to select four cards, and two of which go to the opponent, and two 
uh, go to your graveyard. Your opponent chooses the graveyard, and two go to your hand. Um, cards like Sensei's Divining Top, as you use them iteratively, uh, entail a number of decisions. How do you how do you order the cards on top of your library? Which do you want to draw next, and which do you want to hide on top? Um, but what's different about all those cards is is in, I guess one you know probably the closest that comes to it is probably Necropotence, but even Necropotence diffuses the decision making into separate stages. Mm-hmm. And and that's really what's distinctive about Doomsday is that with Doomsday, not only do you have to tutor for five cards, it's a multi-card tutor, so one additional card over Gifts Ungiven, but you also have to make the additional decisions about how to order them uh, from the top to the bottom of your library. And it's not even just searching your library, you also get to search your graveyard. So the text of the new Doomsday is the same as has been on the Oracle, black, 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 sorcery. Search your library and graveyard for five cards and exile the rest. Put the chosen cards on top of your library in any order. You lose half your life rounded up. So it's the high-impact decision-making all compressed into one high-risk, high-stakes moment, right? (laughs) Right. And the whole thing tends to be very proximate to the game ending because of the life total pressure that you put on yourself. One would hope, <laughs> unless unless you've you've miffed it somehow. Right, right. Yeah. So I mean, it's it, it requires you to really plan ahead and think ahead. But this card, when you just see it, what it really does is it induces a, a kind of rumination. It gets the cogs in the mind beginning to work mm-hmm. and to begin to think, how can you win the game with this? And we're going to talk about some of the most famous ways that players have devised to win the game using Doomsday. But it's actually a surprisingly difficult card to use to set up to win games. Mm-hmm. And in the history of the game, there are not an unlimited number of um, of, of uh, post-Doomsday win conditions. It's a really interesting card in that way. Do you do you have an, a strong opinion, Kevin, on whether it is indeed the most skill-intensive card in all, of all time? Well, there are so many metrics, and I, I'm, I'm a little bit afraid to, to go out too hmm. far on a limb here. I will say that I'll take it, a risk. It probably <laughs> is. Doomsday. It probably is the most skill-intensive card as pertains to its own resolution. Right? I don't think there's any card that comes close to the amount of decision making that is required for just resolving the spell. Hmm. I, I'm, I'm right. confident saying that. Now there are other metrics along which cards like Sensei's Divining Top uh, outshine Doomsday, and one is repeated use and and repeated choices throughout the game obviously this card really can't hold a candle to that to something like top in longevity of a game because uh, just by its nature of course so that's why i'm hedging a little bit but i am confident saying that this one is the most probably the most um let's say nerve-wracking and (laughs) and during its resolution the most skill intensive in the moment right the the costs of making an error in terms of the sequencing the second and third card with top Right. are not very high. But the costs of screwing up the second and third card with Doomsday can be the difference between winning and losing the game. Yeah. So the the costs of, of a mistake are an incredibly high. The stakes are high. The risk is high. But even with something like Necropotence, where, you know, Necropotence, you have to make a decision. Do I Necro for four cards, seven cards, 11 cards, 15 mm-hmm. cards? You know, so there's an immediate high-risk decision, you know, wh- where, where you land. And then, uh, you know, at the end of the turn, you have another decision as to what to discard, what to remove. And part of that is like Doomsday, where you're planning what happens next. But I, I think for combining tutoring and sequencing and ordering, 
There's no other card that does that. Yeah. And I think it's the combination of those two things that make it, and the, and the number of, of permutations, right? I mean, in a 60 card deck, I don't know what the math is. If someone doesn't know the math, I would, I would love to know. In a 60 card deck with, let's say, I don't know, what do you say, Kevin? 18 restricted cards and you know what are the actual number of doomsday piles you can you can devise it's it's probably not as many march madness brackets as might exist but it's it's a very large number right right definitely especially in vintage where the average deck has more unique cards than in other 60 card formats even if you have selected five cards you then have geez i don't know what five you know with how many different orders there are to sequence those five cards, but it's a lot. <laughs> right. It's a lot. There are just scads of decisions, and every one of them, as you put it, is very high risk. Yeah. And so it's an intense card. It's a fun card. But it's as I said, it's also one of those cards that really is intriguing. It's Even if you're not consciously thinking about it, I suspect that the unconscious mind is is really kind of trying to figure out how to puzzle through winning with Doomsday. So we're going to talk about what some of those interesting historical doomsday decks have done and mm-hmm. how they've solved this conundrum. But Kevin, you've done a little digging to see exactly what Doomsday has done in the recent Eternal formats. Yeah, it's interesting. Uh, I looked at Vintage, naturally, Legacy also for Thoroughness, and also EDH out of curiosity. And sadly, Vint- uh, Vintage and Legacy have not shown much Doomsday, doomsday success of late. In Vintage, According to tcdex.net, at least, which is the source I go to, only one top eight in the past six months for Doomsday at a Team Serious Invitational by friend of mine and Team Serious member Sam Crowlaw. He got fourth out of 32 with Doomsday at that event back in December. The legacy one I referred to is most recent good performance is uh, an undefeated legacy deck in the leagues. Prior to that, it was back in August at the Titanium Challenge. So doomsday is simply not tearing it up in terms of top eight performances in the eternal formats right now i mentioned however edh (laughs) and obviously edh doesn't have as much quite as much um same similar data for competitiveness but for the sake of thoroughness and part of the reason why doomsday i think is a good reprint is the card is is moderately popular in edh decks Uh, a number of different generals either black red or black blue generals tend to run doomsday as a combo kill mirroring what can be done in vintage it's usually a laboratory maniac with a combination alternate of tendrils and will possibly so you know it's still a good reprint card for edh for those combo enthusiasts and i would just add to all of that that you very recently played the doomsday on the vsl for fun and you've done that a few times now have you not oh yeah in fact my very 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 first vsl deck in season one was doomsday Yep. And you, you've grown something of a reputation for for noodling out your piles on screen for the audience to see, which I think is is actually pretty funny and pretty fun. It's it is one of my it's certainly one of my favorite cards of all time, if not my favorite card. Mm-hmm. Uh I've I was looking kind of in preparation for this in my archive of articles and it I have so many doomsday articles on Eternal Central that the editor created a tag for doomsday <laughs> um and also in in um so I, I would say to your point about you know the the lack of presence of doomsday of late you know and doomsday goes in cycles it, it's yeah. it surges up and then recedes for a while and returns and 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 that's the kind of pattern the, the unfortunately doomsday has been really punished by uh vintage and legacy banned and restricted list policy of late 
Mm-hmm. So um, I reached out to Brandon Adams, who was a legacy expert, to ask him some questions about legacy doomsday. He's a doomsday expert in general. He goes under the the handle E Midland, and people might know him. And we'll put it. We can put it in the show notes. He uh, has created a an open source wiki called DDFTW uh, <laughs> wiki, which is uh, for doomsday um, uh, doomsday uh, tendrils leg in legacy. And um, it has just it's it's essentially just a cornucopia, an encyclopedia of doomsday piles and sequencing and <laughs> and material for understanding how to play doomsday and legacy. Mm-hmm. But what he told me is that doomsday has been really wrecked by the banning of Sensei's Divining Top in Legacy. Yeah. The top was really important to the Doomsday deck. And he actually defined the Doomsday deck as essentially a brainstorm LED deck, which is interesting yeah. in Legacy. And in Vintage, of course, Doomsday has been incredibly hampered by the restriction, the simultaneous restriction and dual restriction <laughs> of, G- of Gitaxian Probe and Gush, right. which it relied on heavily and um, in the latest iterations. Um, so, so Doomsday has suffered through restrictions and bannings, uh, it, but you know, not they weren't the DCI hasn't been targeting Doomsday, <laughs> but it's been a uh, a um, collateral damage. Exactly. Yeah. Thank you. So, so Kevin, uh, thanks for the, the recap. Uh, you know, I I think that Doomsday will eventually see play again, um, and maybe it'll take some unrestrictions and vintage or or maybe just some new printings but um i thought it would be fun to do a little look back at some of the earliest ways that players solved solved doomsday so uh to do that let's just begin with where doomsday actually comes from it's remarkable to, to think about this but doomsday arrives in june 1997 with weatherlight which remarkably is only the 11th magic expansion set <laughs> i know ancient <laughs> history still it's ancient history, but mid-late mid, 1990s. It's the conclusion to Mirage Block, and it's the beginning of the uh, Weatherlight narrative saga. And there were some really interesting cards in, in Weatherlight, uh, some really defining format-defining cards like Nullrod, some design innovations, and Nullrod and Ophidian, mm-hmm. of course, is, was a defining card in Type 1 for in other formats for a long time, and some innovative design cards like Spinning Darkness, which... Um, you know, open it created new ways to play cards with alternative casting costs um, that would then become you know very important in a masks block. So so Doomsday was printed, but it actually took players a little while to figure out how to abuse it. And in my history of vintage series, the first record I could find of a prominent finish with Doomsday was a Norwegian player by the name of Christopher who finished in a 19-player Type 1 tournament in Norway in the top four in December of 1997. He lost in the top four to a Zoo player who then went on to win the tournament. So his deck was interesting because it was essentially a Dark Ritual combo deck, as you would imagine. Dark Ritual, I think, pretty much almost always shows up with, with Doomsday, with the few exceptions of some of the Gush lists that have like one or zero Dark Rituals and Right. You can blame Be- me for that. Because of the way Gush facilitated getting three black. Right. Um, it has Lion's Eye Diamonds, three Lion's Eye Diamonds, which is interesting, and a bunch of uh, all the restricted Moxin. Uh, but it has Abeyance in it, and city- two Abeyance and two City of Solitude. And this was at the time when Vampiric Tutor was printed in Visions, but was not restricted until later on. So you have three Vampiric Tutor, and two Mystical Tutor, and three Doomsday. And, you know, he has a bunch of things, Ancestral, Time Walk. Wheel of Fortune, Brain Geyser, Fast Bond, Regrowth, Zeron Orb. Um, so he has these tools for locking the opponent out, right? Uh, abeyance, 
uh, City of Solitude, and then lots of tutors. But how does he win with Doomsday? Mm-hmm. Well, one of the most important combos. So when you when you use the term combo, right? <laughs> co- the, one of the probably the most famous first combo deck was probably the Squandered Resources deck, Kevin. Yeah, um, yeah which Pros was Bloom. not Prosbloom, which was not a, a, a vintage deck, but Vintage did have a kind of recursion strategy that was based around Time Twister and Regrowth that goes back to the very earliest uh, days of the game. Mm-hmm. And that's one of the reasons both Regrowth and Time Twister were restricted, is because you could just iteratively loop them in the wild era of Magic. And um, in the one of the earliest duelists, duelist number 10, Zach Dolan, who was the first world champion, uh, published his looping and churning decks. And both of them were <laughs> built around Time Twister Regrowth Recursion, and they did it in different ways. And in his Doomsday, in his Duelist article, Zach Dolan wrote that your goal was to get uh, to eight cards between your hand, uh, hand, <laughs> great graveyard and library, and just recur Time Twister with Regrowth with a Stone Calendar, which is a uh, Helm of Awakening <laughs> card, a, a one-sided Helm of Awakening card from the dark, and and you could just with you know could you just uh, Generate mana through each loop, and then win with a fireball or a brain geyser. And you know, with the printing of forgotten lore in Ice Age, re- the recursion strategy became much faster and more re- reliable um, because you could re- use forgotten lore to replay cards like Time Walk and Ancestral and Draw Sevens. Eventually, getting to where you could recur, regrowth, and Time Twister with Recall as backup in case someone was you know unkind enough to try and stop your Time <laughs> Twister or regrowth. Um, and and that that combo was very powerful. So it made sense that that the first people who figured out a way to go to go infinite with Doomsday to win with Doomsday would use this kind of time honored combo of focusing mm-hmm. on Twister and Regrowth. So the first pile, I, a recorded pile, Doomsday pile or stack, if you will, that I have uh, in my research found in my research was Time Twister, Regrowth, Black Lotus, Lion's Eye Diamond, and Brain Geyser. <laughs> Although the order of the last four cards really doesn't matter. The key is that you you the Doomsday actually does part of the work for you of getting you to Zach Dolan's right eight cards. <laughs> right. The Doomsday goes to your graveyard, which is one, and then the Doomsday gives you five cards in the library, and all you need is two cards in your hand, and then you can just infinitely loop this time twister regrowth combo. Mm-hmm. Here's how. When you play Time Twister, you draw Black Lotus and Lion's Eye Diamond. So what you do is you play the Black Lotus. You sacrifice it for green. Um, you play the Lion's Eye Diamond, and then you target Time Twister with Regrowth. And in response, holding priority, you sacrifice the Lion's Eye Diamond for blue. Mm-hmm. This allows you to play Time Twister with one mana floating through the loop. It can be either a blue or a green. And once you've done this, oh, give or take 50 <laughs> times, <laughs> and you have enough mana, then you can just, in the final step, cast Brain Geyser on your opponent for their entire deck. Mm-hmm. Sounds pretty good. Now, I like it. So, yeah, and if you've played a Bance on your opponent or the City of Solitude, then it's completely deterministic and it doesn't matter what they do. The challenge is, I can imagine it could be quite a pain if your opponent asked you to go through this over and over again. I suspect in practice, opponents would just scoop. Don't you think, <laughs> Kevin? Uh, back in the day, probably, and in today's world, definitely. <laughs> right. <laughs> you would just have to be able to demonstrate, you know, the right. win somehow. Unfortunately, there is a wild card for Magic Online at the moment, but uh, yes, we can leave that aside. Not, this would not work in Magic Online. <laughs> um, fast forward, let's say six months. It Origins, which was the um, one of the Origins was one of the venues that was most prominent in Magic in the '90s, along with Gen Con. 
Mm-hmm. Um, U.S. Nationals would be held there and all kinds of other events. Uh, there were teams that would go to Origins, and there was there was a third annual Duelist Team Challenge at 1998 Origins. So fast forward six months. Mark Rosewater organized this, and there were 24 teams of five people who were competing. And each team was fielding a player who would play Type 1, which is now known as Vintage, Extended, Type 2, which is now known as Standard, Mirage Block Sealed, and Tempest Block Sealed. <laughs> Boy, that would be fun, wouldn't it, Kevin? Definitely. Five-person teams? Good grief. Yes. Team CMU fielded a, a pretty big team of Mike Turian, Dan Silberman, Eric Lauer, Randy Bueller, and Andy C- Andrew Cuneo. Wow. Pretty yep. sick team. CMU for you. Yep. Andrew Cuneo got to play their Type 1 deck. <laughs> and what do you think he played? Well, so- Sounds like Doomsday. <laughs> indeed. <laughs> so Cuneo actually played a really well-tuned version of this deck. He had um, four Lotus Petal, because Lotus Petal was then um, in the format. And he also had four Barb Sexton in his list. Oh. Nice little, yeah. Okay. Cool little mana mana filter there, right? Get you, you could probably create some cool little piles with Time Walk and do some other recursion in your Doomsday yeah. stack with no that. No kidding. Um, and any, in any case, so Randy had a little write-up uh, on July 1st of the Duelist Team, team Challenge. And in the write-up, Randy says that, um, uh, Randy actually played the, uh, a Necropotence deck against, um, Mike Long, which is pretty cool. Uh, but um, it doesn't really describe much about how the individual players did, ex- except CMU ended up winning the uh, th- this event. Okay. It does say, however, that Cuneo cast Doomsday, um, and it was, quote, all over except proving the loop was infinite to his opponent's <laughs> sarcastic satisfaction. So <laughs> I think he did pretty well <laughs> with this uh, with this combo. And there's really not much of a, a kind of a historical record of Doomsday after that, except Doomsday was swept up in a third massive wave of restrictions in the fall of 1999, where it was mostly targeting the, the Academy deck. And you know, I think, uh, again, Doomsday was collateral damage there. It was just restricted because they were restricting 18 cards in the third and final set of restrictions. <laughs> um, so there's no real evidence that it deserved restriction, but it nonetheless was restricted it fit the criteria of the sort of cards they were restricting right right yeah right so fast forward five more years doomsday is unexpectedly unrestricted in the fall of 2004 and our team came up with the coolest doomsday kill (laughs) jp mayor and uh, jp mayor on our team so the the kill that our teammates discovered was that if you cast mind's desire which was restricted um, and you can cast it by making the pile as follows. Ancestral Recall, Black Lotus, and Darker Ritual. So you need two mana, a blue and a black, post-Doomsday. And you need a way to draw the Ancestral. And then you can cast Ancestral, Lotus, Dark Ritual, and then Desire. The Ancestral drawing, the Lotus, the Ritual, and the Desire. And you will have at least four Storm. <laughs> and so there's one more spot in the library. And some genius figured out, I think it was JP or Jeek, that it could be Beacon of Destruction. Which Kevin, would you like to read that? Yeah. Now this is this is going deep, right? Beacon of Destruction has never had a, a prominent limelight throughout its career, except in this deck, I don't think. But it's a five mana instant for three RR that says Beacon of Destruction deals five damage to target creature or player. And here's the kicker: shuffle Beacon of Destruction into its owner's library during its resolution. Yep. And so it's that last bit, the fact that it shuffles itself back into your library that is so synergistic with Doomsday into Mind's Desire for 4 
Because if you recall, Mind's Desire Storm does make discrete copies of Mind's Desire. And so in between the resolution of each copy, Beacon can be cast and put back into your library ready for the next copy of Mind's Desire to, to reveal it. And because Doomsday has left you with a five-card library, it's the very last, it's the only card in your library yep. upon each resolution. Now, the trick is that if your opponent plays, I don't remember whether Extirpate had seen print at this point, but an Extirpate or a Surgical Extraction or anything that can shuffle your library, you're going to be in deep trouble. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, because just a so, simple shuffle can render this this kill inert. So I spent a good deal of time really tuning the the Doomsday deck, and Kevin, you and the rest of my teammates chickened out from playing it yep. at the uh, Star City Game Chicago. I was the only one. <laughs> and uh, I top forward that event. I made a, a mistake in the top four um, that I think I would have been at the finals really easily. Um, but the deck was just chock full of protection. I had four Force of Will. I think it was like four Duress, as well as four Unmask yeah. <laughs> to really make sure no one could mess with me. And the goal, of course, was to... Uh, Play t- to try and go off the turn you cast Doomsday, so you didn't really give your opponent to do any a chance to do anything. Well, but if you had to, you could at least strip their hand. I would like to reiterate that what you just said because that deck really became the model for Dom- for Doomsday for the foreseeable future until today. Basically, the features of that deck being highly disruptive and having a very narrow and efficient kill have can have persisted to this day. It's it's one of those decks right. that can out-control a control deck in those matchups because the kill conditions are so slight. Right, right. The next big iteration of Doomsday happens when Gush is unrestricted, Mm -hmm. um, which happens in 2007. And um, at this point, there was a card that had been printed called Research and Development. (laughs) (laughs) Which is an interesting card, right, Kevin? <laughs> that's that's saying a lot, yes. <laughs> so so research, it's a gold card, it's a split card. And the card that matters is research, which costs green and a blue. And it says, choose four cards you own from outside the game and shuffle them into your library. So at this time, this is before M10, um, you could search for cards that have been exiled or cards in your sideboard. And so what this allowed you to do functionally with Doomsday is you could essentially create the Mind's Desire pile, but the last card could be Research. So instead of having to flip um, flip Beacon. Beacon, you could then shuffle in whatever you wanted. You could you could get Yawgmoth's Will, you could get um, Tendrils, you could get, heck, a huge creature, right? And so with the Gush Bond engine, this became a, a much more effective kill, and it gave you a lot more flexibility. And Owen Turtenwald wrote a really cool article on this, and there are other articles on it, but um, you know, just reading the article is kind of a brain buster. <laughs> <You're> like, <laughs> he, he goes into all the different piles, and he's like, I'll just give you a flavor a flavor of it. Um, he's like, use the Lotus for blue, 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 and the Petal for G. Research development back Mox, Jet, Dark Ritual, and Tendrils. Ancestral to draw those three cards, cast more than a lethal Tendrils GG. Um, and then he talks about, um, that's just, you know, obviously the more straightforward version, but then he talks about all these different uh, it different iterations you could build, um, <laughs> you know, trying to climb up to ten storm and and all the different ways that you could you could build the sideboard, right? Um, which is which is pretty fun to think about, right? Absolutely, so, yeah. The so research became- research was definitely the most esoteric version of the deck, right? The Mind's Desire yeah. Beacon kill was interesting and novel, but the once coolest, you saw it, the yeah, coolest. It was the like, coolest. Oh, that's awesome! That's just a great interaction. The research one was like. 
the world is your oyster <laughs> and you could take uh, many, many different routes to victory. Right. And because of the way the game worked at the time, you could literally take anything from your sideboard or your deck because exactly right. because of the way that, that so, this yeah, was you, before exile. Speaking of the complexity of Doomsday, the research version multiplied it by several fold because once you had Doomsdayed, you were searching 60 cards or nearly 60 cards for the, the five you wanted. But then you start to research and you're searching effectively 75 cards for what you want. <laughs> right. The combination of the two gets astronomical right. in terms, the, terms the possibilities. of permutations. Yeah, It's so true. So, so those are kind of the first three big ones. Um, everything really changes, though, with Innistrad. Mm-hmm. And Innistrad has this quaint little printing called Laboratory Maniac. And I was all, I was on top of this, like, you know, pick your metaphor. <laughs> <laughs> you were very uh, on top of it. <laughs> in, in the set review, I, I was the only vintage set writer who, who talked about this. And we talked about it in our podcast. Um, whereas Brian and Brian DeMars and, uh, and, uh, Wamba, um, Mark, Mark Hornung. Mark Hornung did not mention it in their set reviews. And so it did not take, it took me about a millisecond to figure out how to win the game with, with Laboratory Maniac. And there's basically two kills, one if you have Gush in hand and one if you don't. And the beauty of it is, with Unrestricted Gush, you can pretty much win the game immediately after casting Doomsday. So if you cast Doomsday and you have Gush in hand, all you need to do is cast Gush. You don't even need any mana. (laughs) If you build the pile, that's the beauty of it, right? If you build the pile, Ancestral Recall, Lotus Petal, Black Lotus, Maniac, and Gataxian Probe, you Gush into Ancestral Recall and Lotus Petal. You play the petal to cast Ancestral. Ancestral draws you the rest of your library, which is Black Lotus, Maniac, and Probe. You use the Lotus to play the Maniac, and then you pay two life for the Probe. So you do actually need a little bit of life to do this. I think you basically technically need six life, yep. so that you can be at three to cast Probe. You cast Probe, win the game. Trigger the Maniac, win the game. And if you have a so land I drop, think, you can do it with, with two fewer life. Right. Or actually, so, no, three fewer life. Or, or, so I yeah, think, you, don't need, you don't need to pay the two mana for the Probe. Sorry, go ahead. No, no. Thank you for thank you for pointing that out. Yeah. <laughs> I I think that uh, if we're ranking kind of the different what you know the different distinctive elements of these various kills, if the beacon kill is just flat out the coolest, the lab maniac kill is just the most elegant. Yeah. It's just a work of art. Yeah. A, a beauty. Um, if you don't have gush in hand, then the pile you make is ancestral recall on top, lotus maniac gush, and then a fifth card that doesn't really matter because the the way you set it up is you ancestral into the Lotus, Maniac, and Gush, you play Lotus into Maniac, then cast Gush to trigger the Maniac to win the game. Yep. The second draw, you have an empty library. The uh, uh, th- That version really points out the way that the Gush restriction hurt that deck because oh God. Yeah. there, you know this, there were a number of times when two Gushes was actually the right way to win. Right, if you, or th- if you, you, with a fast bond and Yogg will easily. Yes, but yeah. sometimes you just had four lands and <laughs> and you had the proper way to win was to gush once and then gush again to deck yourself with the lab man. So, right. In fact, so <laughs> I'm not going to try and sell it, but in my gush book, in the appendix, <laughs> I have a whole, it's called the doomsday scenarios with gush. And one of them in there is the one you just said, which is the, the pile is gush, gush, Flusterstorm, laboratory maniac probe. There you go. And exactly. If you have uh, four mana, you can just gush, uh, repl- you know, gush again, and then you have four mana. So you can cast probe Flusterstorm. And then um, at that point, all you have to do is is sorry, uh, maniac flusterstorm, and then all yeah. you have to do is probe to draw to to be to trigger the maniac, and you're there. 
So well and I think that pile highlights something else too: the the brutal efficiency of the laboratory maniac kill allows the deck to start doing things like putting protection in its piles, which no right. prior version. Well, I wouldn't say never, but it was not but, definitely the the default <laughs> for prior versions of the deck. You just didn't have room. Yeah, right. You had to be just all your resources were tied into ending the game. This this you know modern version has far more flexibility due to the efficiency of the kill. Um, so, and then the the restriction of of gush and, and to a lesser extent probe just kills it in, in vintage. Um, you know, but maybe someday we'll see doomsday come back. It's always a, a powerful combo out there. Um, I did want to give a nod out and a shout out to legacy uh, doomsday decks, though. <laughs> um, again, credit to E Midland for helping bring me up to speed on this. Act on impulse is an interesting printing. I don't know exactly. Maybe Kevin, you can tell me when that card was printed. But yeah, Act that's an impulse, M. It's M fourteen, I believe. Interesting. Act and Impulse is apparently one of the key cards in the in the Legacy Doomsday deck because it allows you to use Lion's Eye Diamonds like Black Lotus. Oh, sorry, so Steve. Th- I was wrong. It's M15. Go on. <laughs> cool. So it's a r- relatively recent card. Oh, yeah. Um, so you act... One of the piles, the common piles for the, the Doomsday uh, Legacy deck, le- Legacy deck and Doomsday, is Act on Impulse at the top, Lion's Eye Diamond, Lion's Eye Diamond, Gitaxian Probe, and Burning Wish. So if you cast Dark Ritual Doomsday that turn... And then you cast, have the mana to cast Act on Impulse. You flip LED, LED Probe, play the LED, sacrifice them for black, 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 red, 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 uh, play Probe into Burning Wish, into Tendrils. That's 16 damage right there. If you've cast a Cantrip or two, you can get Lethal. And there are a ton of iterations on that, but it shows you kind of how cool Act on Impulse is. Before Act on Impulse, people used Ideas Unbound for a similar effect. Um, but you burning, you can Burning Wish for Doomsday as well, depending on how the list is, is designed. Well, um, and correct me if I'm wrong, but the Legacy lists also have access to the Laboratory Maniac kill. Of so, course, yeah. So it's similar to Vintage. They have the Laboratory Maniac as, I guess, plan A, maybe overstating it, but uh, a main plan. But then the Burning Wish package, which is used as a tutor for Doomsday, is also simply a basic combo neighbor for, uh, for Tendrils. Right. So we'll, again, I'll, I'll send people to the ddft.wiki, the Doomsday <laughs> Codex, which is maintained by Brandon Adams, but it has... It has kind of some lists for you. And there, there are other piles. There's the Sheldock Isle Emrakul pile mm. um, as well, which is, um, you know, just Sheldock Isle and Emrakul. And then the other cards don't really matter as much. <laughs> but um, that is, th- that's by ne- necessity a pass the turn pile. Exactly. It's much yeah. weaker and it's vulnerable to things like Wasteland. But th- so you can, you can set up Laboratory Maniac in a number of different ways. One of the Laboratory Maniac kills that I promoted, I top 32 to Star City Games Open, the only Star City Games Open I've ever played in, <laughs> in Columbus a f- some years ago, with uh, a kill that our teammate Mike Baumholt figured out, which was um, to use a Mental Note. So the pile that you create with Doomsday can be, for example, Gataxian Probe, Mental Note, Deep Analysis, Laboratory Maniac, and Unearth. So the, the key is that you play Mental Note to bin... Uh, deep analysis and laboratory maniac and draw on earth mental note actually gets you four cards deep yeah and if you have one more draw trigger all you need is a blue a black and two draw triggers to start the the to draw your first card in the pile and then the last card to trigger the maniac and you win uh it is vulnerable to graveyard hate but it's it's a pretty compact and, and impressive kill and if you have additional mana predict is even better than mental note because then you can put a instead of deep analysis you can put a Pact of Negation in the pile to protect your post-Doomsday combo. Yeah, that one's really cool. That is really cool. I have yeah. to, again, credit to Mike Baumholt for that, but I built a really cool deck around it, 
and uh, as I said, wrote an article. And you know, as I was prepping for this, I'm not trying to sell product, but I have to say one of the coolest things I've ever written was a product that I sometimes go back, look to, and, and just have fun with. It was called Doomsday the Puzzling, which is a 31-page, basically a you know Mark Rosewater-style puzzle, five puzzles. I called it, The subtitle was Five Puzzles to Blow Your Mind with the Legacy deck. And there were the puzzles were, I rated them as easy, <laughs> medium, hard, very hard, and master. So I think we've I think we've gone over at least one of these on a podcast in the past, Kevin, probably some years ago. But just to tease, the master puzzle is your opponent uh, is at uh, is playing blue white control and they just cast humility, <laughs> <laughs> and you have no cards in your hand and your board is uh, your board is. Uh, Three Sensei's Divining Tops, which is, of oh, course, now banned. Yeah, three <laughs> Sensei's Divining Tops, three Basic Island, untapped, one Underground Sea, untapped, and one Swamp, which is tapped. And your hand is empty, and you have to win this turn with the Mental Note combo. <laughs> <laughs> wow. I, I will give one hint. Uh, the solution involves Chain of Vapor. Oh, okay. So, so but, but I rated that... I, I think actually, in truth, it's not the hardest puzzle. It's just the most confusing because you have the least <laughs> amount of information available, right? Right. So those puzzles, I mean, those puzzles are fun. I, I wish people would do more puzzle yeah. articles be- for Legacy and Vintage because they're just so much fun. But the format kind of these days doesn't really lend itself to that as much. But if if you're a big puzzle fiend and you want to, you know, fry your brain on some on some Legacy Doomsday puzzles, that that article's <laughs> out there. So on Eternal Central. So there's one small anecdote regarding Doomsday that I want to throw out there just just came up in my research and is strong in my memory. And that is that it's it's twofold. One is that the card has functional errata. And I don't know why that is. Steve, you might. But the the function of the card changed between Weatherlight and 6th edition. And the 6th edition version has been maintained now through today. This caused the card to be resolved improperly on camera in a feature match in Vintage Champs 2014. And I I don't believe that was any kind of nefariousness on the part of the pilot, J.D. Near, at the time. But it's because if you... I think it's partially because if you read the Weatherlight version, you will execute this card incorrectly. And the reason is... I just want to reread the current Oracle wording and the M25 version. The M25 version matches the Oracle and says, search your library and graveyard for five cards and exile the rest. Put the chosen cards on top of your library in any order you lose half your life rounded up the weatherlight version as printed says pay half your life rounded up colon put your graveyard on top of your library oh yeah then remove all but five cards from your library from the game put the rest on top of your library in any order the functional difference being in original printed text you combine your graveyard and library first into a hidden zone you combine your right. graveyard into your library. As such, the cards you choose are all hidden. revealed, hidden, yeah, hidden. Yeah, exactly. In the current wording, and since sixth edition, your Some opponent gets to see any card you choose from your graveyard, since that is a revealed zone. Yeah, that information can certainly make a difference, especially if you're building a surprise pile. Yes, I agree completely. Any kind of unconventional pile that might rely on a protection spell or something. It definitely gets hampered by the fact that your opponent gets to see the graveyard cards, or could be hampered, I should say. Right. 
So uh, players beware. If you're new to Doomsday, you, you won't make that mistake probably. Uh, but uh, don't glaze over the functionality of the card. You don't combine library and graveyard until the last step of resolution, not the first. And the way this works on Magic Online, I believe, uh, is that it'll highlight the card in your graveyard, so your opponent will see it. Right, yes. Kevin? It, it should, and I have not played against Doomsday since I started playing online, so I well, don't know. <laughs> I, I don't know, actually, well, but I believe that's correct. Well, there's plenty of video evidence of me playing it in the VSL, so people will right. be able to, to see right. for themselves. Cool. Well, it's great to have Doomsday back, and I, I, I do enjoy this art, the, the way I would describe it. And so this is posted on MTG Cast and Eternal Central, but the, Eternal Central will certainly have the pick. Mm-hmm. I assume MTG Cast will as well, but I'm not sure. We'll have a link to it. Um, but the, the, it's kind of got like these uh, five orbs. So it's, there's a central figure who appears to be meditating against a kind of bleak red. So there's a kind of a bleak, dark, shadowed foreground, and then a red background. Mm-hmm. Um, and he appears to be he or she appears to be meditating, and then there are kind of five orbs around him, which signify both the end of the world, but also the the remnants. Right, Kevin? Yep. And we should note this art by Noah Bradley, and it's quite cool. Yeah. And from a collectability standpoint, this printing of Doomsday represents a few firsts. It's the first version of Doomsday in the new card frame. So this right. this one's for you, Solly. And it's also going to be the first foil Doomsday you can get that isn't an invocation, which I know will please a number of people. Nice. Uh, Look forward to trying to pick it up. So Masters 25. March 16, give your new Doomsday a try. If you you open this card in limited, more power to you. (laughs) 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 I want to, yeah, you know, in fact, if anyone in our audience opens this card in limited and plays it and succeeds with it, I want to hear about it because that is hard to do. That is hard to do in draft. Maybe they'll put like leveler in the set too, so you can actually. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I mean, hey, who knows? Tendrils might be in this set. Um, Yeah. Lab the Maniac might be in this set. We'll see. There you go. Maybe they put that in there as a rare draft combo. That'd be fun. That'd be cool. So, thank you for listening to our Doomsday preview. Now let's move on to some other news. Now that the Doomsday fun is out of the way, we do have a couple of announcements that we should share because there is one big one relevant to the vintage and legacy communities, and that is we finally have the date and location for Eternal Weekend North America 2018, and it is again in Pittsburgh at the David L. Lawrence Convention Center on November 1 through 4. There it is. Steve, I'm, I'm excited. I'm excited again. I thought Pittsburgh was a pretty nice convention center and a decent location. I think I don't know as pertains to other cities if this is the best, but I think I'm pretty pleased with Pittsburgh. How about you? I I enjoyed Pittsburgh as well. Uh, You know, so what they've done three in Philly, one in Columbus, and now two in Pittsburgh. Mm -hmm. I I think I prefer the mixing it up strategy, but uh, if you have to go back to one, uh, Columbus is is slightly easier for me because I can visit family and stay with family. (laughs) But um, I really enjoyed Pittsburgh. I walk got to walk around the city quite a bit. and I thought that the food was really good in Pittsburgh. There were some great restaurants. Um, it was yeah. really easy to get from the hotels to the convention center. Um, it was a, all in all a great setup. So I, if among our options, I think you know you can't go wrong with any of those three cities. I think they all have really high upsides. Um, Philadelphia has unbelievable museums and some tourist stuff. Um, mm-hmm. 
Columbus has some great food and a lot of stuff happening. So, you know, great. Pittsburgh is a good spot. spot. Looking forward to it. And this will have both the Legacy and Vintage Championships. Yes, we don't have details yet on events and dates specifics yet, but I would be very surprised if it didn't match last year's arrangement pretty much exactly. So we will obviously cover that information in further detail when it becomes available to us. But as of now, mark your calendars, 1st November is the beginning of North American Eternal Weekend in Pittsburgh. Kevin, I'm I'm curious about uh, an event you went to recently. <laughs> Yeah, so I'm only a few days removed now from the latest Team Sirius Invitational. This one happened in Columbus, Ohio, speaking of which, and it was just another great, fantastic time. Well, why don't you step back and just, what is the Team Sirius Invitational? Step back and, and what's so special about this event? Well, Team Sirius is a, a fun-loving group of like-minded vintage and other game players, uh, mostly centered in Ohio but with with tendrils in the east coast and michigan and even a little bit as chicago and as far as the west coast in some cases but in middle america in fact it's in it there's a, a a chapter in in colorado and oklahoma so it's a vintage mostly team although it's spreading out into old school and other things that started holding you know open tournaments in the great lakes region many many years ago uh, back when you were living in in Columbus, still Team Sirius was having open tournaments, starting to have open tournaments in Columbus and the in surrounding area. As things got a little more geographically diverse, the opens moved to different areas, Sandusky, and now in RAW in Livonia, Michigan. But this notion of getting people together started a few years back with and the first Invitational, which I think was the Tuan Sirius Invitational, <laughs> which I did, which I Anthony, did not participate Anthony in. Anthony Michaels, yeah, that's right. Um, but that event was such wildly popular amongst the, the players and the team that people said, hey, we should do this again. It has become a bit of a rotating event with different people hosting in different settings, frequently in homes, but not always. And so now we have a couple of them that are annual or semi-annual. And this one hosted by Matt Hazard is ostensibly a birthday celebration of his. And he, he held it at his house. And we had 24 people plus a, a couple of other friends and and uh, significant others there with us. And it was just a great time. It's a very informal vintage event that features a lot of drinking and eating. And a lot of good times were had. And when people don't do so well and maybe scrub out, they start playing other things like old school on the side. And we, we try to watch Predator or Aliens if we can. <laughs> and uh, it's just... It's just a lot of fun with a lot of informal vintage going on. And so I try to make these invitational tournaments whenever I can and whenever I'm invited. And it's always just the best of times. 24 people is a really good tournament size because it uh, it allows you to play Swiss. And it, it also prevents, it tends to prevent clean cuts for top eight. And also draws are kind of... Um, draws are somewhat frowned upon in this setting right because yeah. a lot of people just want to play vintage as opposed to make top eight. Oh, i should point out so the prizes are all just provided by the participants it's not like it's not like you know there's one money bags person who's putting this thing on everyone brings a prize for the prize pool and as such everyone gets a prize <laughs> so the whole the whole group of 24 players drafts the prize pool after the final standings are announced so that's another part of the appeal of the thing but I played a 
what I what I was laughingly referred to as Jund deck. It, it was really a, a Grixis deck that splashed green, or a four color Leovold deck, depending on your perspective. That was very similar to my one BR deck from the VSL, and that I had been working on. But it's no longer a Remora deck, and it doesn't have nearly as many one BR cards in it anymore. Aww. And I wanted to play green. I know I, I wanted to play green because I like I like Sylvan Library's positioning right now, and I like Abrupt Decay's positioning vis a vis Oath. So I wanted to test those things out, and I did pretty well. I ended up getting third place, third slash fourth, and I could have been in the finals, but my my top four opponent, Frank, was on Vintage Lands, which is oh, simply not a matchup yeah. I am very familiar with. <laughs> and I, it was a really interesting match we had. I faced that yes. Lands deck a couple of times online, and boy, I, I, I think it's a... I mean, obviously I played Lands and, and Legacy, but... It's a real menace, especially when you're playing a token strategy. And if they get, if you can't tempo them out, they can just take control. Boy, wouldn't yep. it be cool if Fastbond was unrestricted for the lands deck? That would be so awesome. <laughs> I mean, that's that would be a the reason to unrestrict. Yeah, Fast that would Bond, be really interesting. So, so what happened? Well, we went to three games, and we we had a really interesting third game. I mean, all our games were interesting. Uh, I was continually questioning my play, meaning what what was my proper line what was my approach to the matchup supposed to be and in the end i had dak faden in play for a number of turns and i had i reached a uh, a fork in the road although i didn't realize it at the time where i could die where i could defeat him in a few turns but i was dead to one merit lage meaning oh, yeah. i needed to be able to stop one merit lage from killing me and the only way i had to do it assuming it happened at instant speed on my end step was vendillion click that's the only way I had to survive a Merit Lage. Once it was on the board, I could bounce it with Jace the Mind Sculptor, but not before it could hit me, right? Oh, jeez. So I played I played toward that line. Well, it turns out that <laughs> I died to that Merit Lage after drawing about a dozen cards on my turn and resolving Dig Through Time. And after resolving Dig Through Time, the top card in my library was that Vendillion Click. So I was one card short of surviving that. But the real problem is, is that I should have taken a completely different line three or four turns earlier. I should have been playing towards ultimate Dak Faden and find a Brock oh, Decay. Yeah. <laughs> that should have been my line, and I didn't realize it until it was too late. And so I think, in general, my lack of familiarity with the matchup and my inability to punch up the right line on the fly is what really did it for me. But really, ultimately, I blame Jepson's Malort for my loss. <laughs> um both aesthetically and chemically. Well, we are a family-friendly and... podcast here, but... <laughs> <laughs> That's right. I mean, it's their marketing campaign, really, that yeah. just did me in and, and caused me to take the wrong line. So it was a great time, though, and congratulations to Ben Perry, who is the our, our, you know, our local the, the tournament organizer for RAW. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, the librarian of Lang. He took it down, and he's actually the first repeat Invi- Team Series Invitational champion. And so congratulations to go out to him. He played Oath. And uh, it was just a great time. I mean, I played a fun deck, what I consider to be a fun deck, and it, it did well for me throughout the day. It had a lot of play to it. I was rewarded for many of my choices and punished for my lack of familiarity in a, my top four match, which is as it should be, right? I mean, that's right. just the way good magic tournaments go, I think. So no complaints. Wow. Good times. I'm I'm envious that I, you know, don't get to... <laughs> come out there and and roll with you guys but um it's always fun to watch your uh follow the the action on twitter and social media and and on twitch 
So if folks want to watch, I think all the all the matches are uh, recorded and, and uh, archived on the Manadrain if folks want to find them. That's right. There's a big Manadrain thread with lots of pictures and results and deck lists and such. And the, the event was streamed with a feature match each round and feature match for the top eight. So those are in the archives on Twitch, as you said. So good times were had by all, thanks to all of the Team Series folks who continue to organize and participate and make these things as good as they are. And uh, I would I would say that for all of you who have maybe burgeoning vintage communities in your local area, it, it doesn't have to be a big production, right? It, it doesn't even have to be 24 players. It doesn't even have to be four players. But bringing people together to play Magic is what it's all about. Uh, you don't need a particular format. You don't need a particular event structure. You don't need particular prizes. In fact, one of the things that was ultimately in the prize pool, thanks to our friend Jayco, was a whole bunch of good playable vintage cards that were signed old school style by all the participants. Awesome. It's become a bit of a, a, a tradition now for the old school yeah. community. And Jayco has carried that over to the vintage community such that now we all have a memento. Yep. I have this really awesome steel Hellkite signed by 24 nice. people. <laughs> and I, and I'm always going to remember because it's, it's signed and dated. And I'm always going to remember that it came from that event and what that event was. So these are the kind of things that you can do to grow and support communities in, in all of magic and all of your other hobbies too. But magic in particular is good for this kind of thing. Yeah. I've mentioned before this event I'm holding on March 8th, uh, old school 1996. I've got two pretty cool prizes I'm handing out. So, uh, yeah, yeah I'm going to be a little coy about them just right now, but, um, they will be, I'm giving them away for free <laughs> and no entry. So, you know, same thing, awesome. same thing Jayco's doing. Well, I, I think awesome. I've told I you to what they Share are, the but yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Cool. All right. Any other announcements from you, Steve? Well, I've been churning out, you know, the it, I've been churning out the history of, of vintage old school series, and I mentioned this in the last podcast. I'll just mention it quickly. The 2013 chapter is live, and um, 14 will probably be up next week. At this point, I only have one chapter to finish, and we'll be done with the whole project. So uh, the other the, there are four chapters unpublished, and three of them are under editing right now. So it's pretty surreal to almost be at the end of this. Wow. But what it means is that I need everyone to help me crowdsource the editing process and review. If you've got stories, anecdotes uh, that I'm, I'm missing or that should go in an endnote or a footnote, if you've got tournaments that I missed or if you've got some cool photographs of old school events, send them and, and you give me permission to use them, send them along. I could definitely use them. So cool. It'll- All right. You heard it here first. <laughs> so let's move on with another special and interesting and unusual topic. One that we've not done before, we're taking a little inspiration here from the Limited Resources podcast, who recently reviewed and gave a a bit of a historical breakdown for the set Alpha. <laughs> we're going to we're going to take a page from that, and we're going to review ostensibly for vintage, but and old you know school. in a broader context, yeah, and old school, the set Arabian Nights. We've debated how to exactly present this. Uh, limited resources had the benefit of having this on YouTube, and you could see the card. So we're going to ask our listeners to indulge us a little bit and do their best to have a 
uh, a spoiler, a visual spoiler at the ready. If there's a card that we're talking about that you're not familiar with, um, in some of the some of the cases, some of the cards we're going to go through, we will read text or just because there's funny wording or it's interesting. But in most cases, we're just going to assume that you know what the cards do and what they are, um, and we're going to go fairly quickly. We'll stop and pause when there's some interesting things to discuss. We're going to take it alphabetically, so we're going to start from the top. Kevin, you ready? I'm ready. Let's go. So the first thing to say about Arabian Nights, though, is that this was the very, very first uh, Magic expansion set. And when Magic was designed, it was actually not designed to have expansion sets. It was designed so that Magic the Gathering would be replaced by new magics. That is, in the original, (laughs) even before Magic uh, Alpha was released, uh, 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 Richard Garfield and his team had actually in development Magic the Magic the Ice Age and Magic the Menagerie, the Menagerie. And both of those later became, of course, Ice Age and Mirage. But they were intended to replace uh, uh, limited edition, not an, mm-hmm. an unlimited edition, not to actually supplement them. Um, and so Magic was such a huge success, they had to quickly figure out how to produce new cards, because obviously the only things they had in development were these essentially replacement sets. Um, and so that's how Arabian and Knights came to be. So it's a small, it's a small set. Um, and it's based on the, the stories of the 1001 Arabian Nights, which are, you know, the kind of Middle Eastern ver- equivalent of the, the Grimm's fairy tales. And it's kind of a side note. I've had difficulty trying to find a kind of a definitive edition of the 1001 Arabian Nights because there's three or four different popular translations out there. And some of them are better than others, and it's really unclear. So if anyone has a strong opinion on this, I would love to know. I ended up picking up the Harvard's uh, Classics edition, which is not, I think, the best translation, but it, it gets the job done. <laughs> so, um, so so starting from the top, one other side note to mention, though, Arabian Nights, because it was... Uh, you know, because Magic was not intent- originally designed to have expansions, there was a separate uh, back that was designed for Arabian Nights that mm-hmm. uh, that uh, actually says Magic the Gathering Arabian Nights on it and has kind of a, a purplish tint on an otherwise <laughs> familiar Magic back. That's Purplish tint is a bit of an understatement. This card is fuchsia. <laughs> <laughs> there was going to be no mistaking the backs of this card for anything else. <laughs> right. Fair enough. So we're gonna we're gonna we're gonna tackle this a card at a time, and then we're gonna do some holistic uh, holistic and assessments. But the place to start is Abu Jafar. Mm. Summon uh, on the card. It says summon leper. <laughs> it, it's just a one mana zero one that essentially kills things when it blocks or is blocked. Yeah, this is top down design for leprosy here. Anything it interacts <laughs> with, it kills. <laughs> Interestingly, I, I was I started doing some research on things for this, and the very first card comes up, Abu Jafar, and I'm like, oh, I'll I'll Google that. Apparently, this apparently this character is a planeswalker because according to the 1997 daily calendar for Magic, it says that he is a storyteller who has explored many worlds of Dominia in his lifetime. So apparently, wow. Abu Jafar. I mean, it's not it's not explicitly stated, but the only way to explore worlds of Dominia would be to be a planeswalker, I now, believe. This had to have been before he was a leper, right? <laughs> well, uh, it, yeah, I think that goes back to his origin story a bit, but I, I don't know. I mean, it's pretty wild. There's obviously these cards are dripping with history and reference and story. Yeah. Yeah, this card is unfortunately just really underpowered. 
Uh, he's, he's <laughs> really, really, really awful. The the art is awesome. He's kind of like you know standing in the front in the foreground yep. with a beautiful. Uh, it, well, it's basically the library, isn't it? Uh, I was going to say it almost looks like the Taj Mahal behind it, but it probably yeah. is the Library of Alexandria. <laughs> it's just beautiful. Yeah, it looks like the Taj Mahal, but it's probably meant to be the library. Yeah, right. Um, but this card is really not playable on anything, unfortunately. Right. <laughs> but the next card is actually much more interesting. It's oh, yeah. Aladdin. 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 <laughs> Aladdin. Uh, well, my <laughs> my Harvard's classic uh, book, the story of Aladdin, is Aladdin and the Wonderful Lamp. So, or or rather, Aladdin. <laughs> so I don't know what the actual pronunciation is, but it's been disnified into uh, Aladdin. <laughs> mm-hmm. And this creature essentially takes control of artifacts. Um, Kevin, what's your what are your memories and experiences with this one? I don't remember ever. See, I started in just after Legends was on the shelf and in revised. Basically, I didn't buy the older products because they were too expensive. I didn't play with this card until about a year and a half ago. <laughs> really? <laughs> I ne- I never put Aladdin into a deck when I was a casual player, and obviously not since as a tournament player. But the interesting thing that I only learned, you know, really kind of discovered in hindsight was something I had not internalized about the card when it was reprinted in Chronicles, was that you could take multiple artifacts with a single copy of Aladdin. And that's actually very, very powerful, such that I put him in right. my Grixis right. uh, 94 EDH deck that I talked about last episode. And he's really powerful. Boy, that's a good point. I don't think I ever... Mm-hmm. ever qu- so, I start My first game of Magic, I believe, happened in December of 1993. It was during the holidays, during the Christmas break. I was at a friend's house, and his older brother had a bunch of Magic cards, and they distributed among the table. And this, it, he had Arabian Nights. And the card, we'll get to it, but the card that, the only card I really remember from Arabian Nights that he had was Guardian Beast. It really stuck wow. out in my head. It's one of the yeah. first magic cards I ever remember seeing, besides, of course, lands and things like that. So, um, Arabian Nights is kind of really deeply intertwined with my experience of magic. But Aladdin, the, this card was a real kind of uh, shell shocker because it was reprinted in Chronicles. And that's the main the main association I have. I never owned it back in the day because I never played with it. Uh, it wasn't mm-hmm. a card any of any of my type one, you know, in, in before type one, you know, just constructed player friends played with. It wasn't quite powerful enough um, that we, we felt at least and it was kind of vulnerable to a lot of removal. Um, even though we all use a lot of artifacts. Um, but we use really vicious artifacts like <laughs> jester's cap and things like that you know was it like right. <laughs> um well it's really interesting as a casual player i was never attracted to this ability when when it was in chronicles because i obviously owned several copies but from a casual standpoint this is really super powerful and in context yeah. of arabian knights and alpha and beta the the ability to steal artifacts would have been very good because the artifacts were pretty high impact and they were also most of them, aside yeah. from Moxin and things like that. A lot of them were really expensive. Yeah, a lot of the the work of artifacts started in the four, like, five, six mana range, like, especially like in Arabian Nights. Like or disrupting scepter, right? Yeah, exactly. No. That would be a really powerful thing. That's true. I, I wonder if we underestimated this card at the time because I mean, I was playing. I was pretty much playing in competitive constructed from the summer of '94 until I quit in 1996. And probably in those early earlier days, we could have used this card. It might have just been that. You know, it's interesting, um, this isn't in the set, but the, one of the earliest cards, the, one of the earliest high-value cards I gravitated to, I think it mm-hmm. might have been my first $25 card, it, which is not <laughs> in the set, is Argivian Archaeologist. It's in Antiquities. Yeah. And 
I use our giving archaeologists for the exact same reason that you're talking about right now. That right. I wanted to recur my artifacts. I wanted to be able to reuse Tormod script and Feldon's cane and the artifacts that my opponent has disenchanted or shattered. And I also wanted to be able to, you know, I used really janky in my in 1994. I used janky things like uh, skull of Orm or uh, reflecting mirror and things like that. Um, <laughs> but I wanted to be able to recur those, and that was my first. That was my first $25 card, and it's interesting that the card is not worth much more than it was in 1994, <laughs> but, but, to, yeah. but it's basically for the same reason that you're talking about. So I, I would say EDH players should take a serious look at Aladdin, because this ability is actually really potent, and EDH is filled with good targets. And you don't even need to own the Arabian one. You can just get it in Chronicles. Yeah, that's right. They're cheap still. Interestingly, we're probably going to say this a lot, the original version is Summon Aladdin, the current version is creature human rogue. Right. So <laughs> he's a rogue. The rogue type. Yeah, is interesting too. It also does rogue interactions like with Prowl, which is funny. So so the next card in the set was Aladdin's Lamp. And this mm-hmm. is a really evocative card. Um yeah. this this uh, this text by the way, this Arabic text that hovers over it, I've been told it says danger, which is even cooler. Hmm. Um this Mark Tadeen art. Um the the thing that's really so <laughs> the simple way of understanding this card is that it has an X it's a mono artifact so it taps it's an X activation it's essentially impulse for X cards but it replaces mm-hmm. an, a, another draw so it doesn't give you another draw it actually replaces a draw that you would have mm-hmm. so um so that's a when when you can do it in type four for infinite mana it was one of the <laughs> most powerful effects we had in in the in our stack right Kevin. That's right. This was a big hit in Type 4 for a while. Now it's not even in my stack. Really? Why not? <laughs> yeah, I took it out. Uh, because it was too slow and unreliable. Doesn't do anything until your next turn. Well, and it, as pertains to something like Seuss saying, for example. Oh, that's fair. Yeah. It, but that's, I mean, that's neither here nor there. It's definitely a playable Type 4 card. Well, the... I'm, yeah, definitely is playable. And if you have to get a version, you should definitely get the Arabians version. <laughs> it, was, it was reprinted and revised. For, with with ten mana, but because they didn't have a ten colorless mana uh, stamp, I guess or die, yeah. it actually says five five. And so you could, if you were you know playing in 1994, you could tell your opponent it's, it casts 55 mana. If you were to somehow get it cheated into play and then animate artifact, you could swing in for 55. <laughs> <laughs> and I always used to call this thing 55 when I cast it in Type Four too. <laughs> it's just more fun that way. Yeah, definitely. Well, Aladdin has a the lamp. Yeah, Aladdin's yeah. got a lot of cool things in this set. You go from the lamp to the shotgun. <laughs> Aladdin's ring is an eight mana mono artifact that takes another eight mana and a tap to do four damage to any target, according to the card. It's a target creature or player. Right. In- interestingly, this was also playable in Type Four for a while, but it gets since out. Uh, classed by a number of cards most recently the everything a jig from from unstable right i i like this aladdin's ring though just for its it being the progenitor for this kind of effect right and also because the art is this great dran fraser art that yes. is so similar to the moxin and all the other dan fraser cards from this time where it's just an object with a trippy background yeah <laughs> it, it the 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 art is awesome it also was reprinted and revised it didn't get the uh, pseudonym shotgun until I think the seventh edition version, where the art the art has uh, a, 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 essentially a hand welding the ring 
with some smoke coming off of it, and then a figure uh-huh. in the uh, background that is essentially whose head has just been blown off. So it, yep. it really looks like he was just, uh, you know, the victim of a of a shotgun. So um, right. So we used to call it shotgun in in our Type Four days, but uh, I think both of these cards unfortunately suffered by being reprinted in in uh revised because they became so ubiquitous they lost their kind of cool factor not that they would have seen a lot of play i i seem to recall aladdin's ring showing up somewhere else but i can't remember where in some competitive deck somewhere but it's just an enormous active cast uh it, it costs eight mana to cast and activate so it's not like it's particularly yeah, easy it's pretty ridiculous the only way you could really reliably play this card would be with the urzatron lands from antiquities right maybe you could get there with that yeah but the next card in the set is Alibaba, which is uh, appropriately <laughs> standing in front of his wall, and uh, he's, he's a 1-1 creature uh, that you pay one red mana to tap a wall. So if your opponent is playing a, a wall deck, this is uh, this is your answer, right, Kevin? Yeah, just another one of those top-down designs. Hey, we want this character in our set. So, so many of these cards, we should have said it with Abu Jafar, but so many of these creatures in this set would be legends if you were to develop them in a top-down manner today, right? right? This After is legends. this is one person, Alibaba, right? Same with Aladdin, same with Abu Jafar. So this, uh, we're suffering a lot. I use that term kind of tongue-in-cheek, but we're suffering a lot with this set not being after legends <laughs> true i i think though it makes sense that abu, abu jafar is kind of a weak creature because he's a leper uh in, in this expression but you know mm-hmm. they could have diversified the casting costs and power and toughness a little bit more like would it really have killed them if ali alibaba was i don't know a two mana bear or even a gray ogre it might have right. even been better because i think the upside to this is in the early sets they tried to create cards that would host single linear strategies right so if someone's like, I'm right. just going to build a wall deck, well, it is actually nice to have something that can deal with walls. So Alibaba is <laughs> your go-to. Not that I've ever heard of anyone actually doing that, but it exists, <laughs> right? <laughs> yeah, that's a, a very kitchen table problem, but everything was a kitchen table problem when Magic was developed, right? Or originally developed. Right. I mean, the, the and it wasn't reprinted and revised, so it did have some cachet until it was... Alibaba's actually only ever been reprinted once in fourth yeah. in fourth edition. So walls are no longer a prominent part of the magic experience, but they were at the time. I mean, there were some very powerful walls. Wall of Swords. There were a lot of walls in Alpha. Wall of Swords is one of my, back in the day, I used to play it in my blue-white control deck for uh, in 1994 for a minute, because it's a 3-5 flying wall with, you know. Yeah, first strike, it, if, right? Yeah, flying it's, first well, strike? It's, it's, it's pretty powerful. I don't remember if it has, I don't think it has first strike, but it's still powerful. Which one am I thinking of? <laughs> There's Illusionary Wall, which is just enormous. It's like 7-4 flying. I think out of Ice Age. So uh, you're right that Wall of Swords doesn't have first strike. I was thinking of something else, but uh, yeah, there were so many walls in Alpha that Alibaba seemed to fit that theme very nicely mechanically and flavor wise. Right. And he's also a, a human rogue now. <laughs> <laughs> right. And now we get to one of the most powerful cards in the set. It, it, back in the day, yeah. at least the iconic Ollie from Cairo. Yeah. Was this? This was the first card that actively prevented you from losing the game in like an ongoing way, wasn't it? Exactly right. There was there wasn't anything in Alpha that did that. Exactly right. And there were only a handful of cards that were so the very very first ban and restricted list announcement uh, from Beth Morsan in January 1994. There were only a few cards that were actually from Arabian Nights that were restricted, and one of them was uh, Ali from Cairo. And in fact, in the original announcement, I'm looking at it again here. There were only two. 
<laughs> and Ali from Cairo was one of them. So it was restricted before Library of Alexandria. And, um, you know, at the, when I, when, it, by the time I, um, uh, kind of began acquiring power, uh, which was in early in 94, and then when Legends came out, the most powerful combo with Ali from Cairo was Spectral Cloak. And it was something I read about and was rumored, but I never actually, none of my, maybe one of my friends tried to build that combo, but it was actually harder to assemble than you would think. But the reason it was actually restricted because, uh, Spectral Cloak wasn't, wasn't printed at the time was because of its combo with Jade Monolith. So Jade oh, Monolith geez. was an alpha, uh, art four man artifact with one mana. You could take any damage done into any creature instead. So it becomes essentially kind of, you know, unless you can remove the ally from Cairo, unless you, with a direct removal spell, it's, it's a pretty effective tag team ta- uh, defense. Right. And also the fact that Ali was four mana and a zero one creature really shows how afraid they were <laughs> to make a good card that had this ability, right? right. It's, it's a, he's a kobold. Right. <laughs> you pay four mana for a kobold that has this ability tacked on because they didn't want you to be able to win the game with him also <laughs> by attacking. So and it's just really interesting what was, what were cautionary elements to them early in the design of magic. Artistically, I love I love this art. It's it's so starkly rendered. You know, he's kind of standing in front of a door, but he's holding this beautiful gem gem, and yep. uh, he's this elegant man in a turban. Uh, it's a it's just a classic piece of Mark Poole artwork. And I never yeah, owned this card until nice. uh, maybe a year or so ago, and I'm glad I picked it up because it's spiked since then. Um, yeah, naturally. <laughs> yeah, beautiful beautiful card. Do you have any other memories of this card, Kevin? I no, I've never owned one, and still to this day, I don't own one. But I have this kind of reverence because of its early restriction. I remember right. thinking how wild it was that this this <laughs> card was problematic when things like Moxin and Ancestral and Time Walk weren't, you know, right. early, early, early. And it was but, restricted uh, for quite a while too. Yeah, it's wild. So that brings us to the next card, Army of Allah, which is a three mana white white one instant that gives all attacking creatures a plus two plus zero, oh, kind of a um, how would you describe it? Kind of a um, a gauntlet of might for uh, for combat, but but more than that, it's a, it's 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 kind of like a, a, a it's a double crusade might be a better way of putting it. Boost. Um, <laughs> well, if, if you have like a handful of white weenie creatures and a crusade in play, this can be a lethal play. Definitely, and this is the first card really of the. I mean, we're only seven cards in, but this is the first card really that still is maintained through in terms of modern design. This kind of card, this kind of <laughs> your attacking creatures get some amount of power and maybe other abilities is printed today. I mean, they're, they're in most sets these days. White tends to get these, red tends to get these. So this card is very close to modern design, which is in stark contrast to a number of other cards, most of the ones we've read so far, which are not. It's also worth noting that this is the first of several cards that are in a subset of cards in the set that were misprinted in terms of their mana cost. Not so much misprinted as having multiple versions. Uh, due to some kind of printing error, the some of the commons in the set have different font and color varieties for their mana costs, specifically the generic mana portion <laughs> of their costs, which means from a collector standpoint, there are functionally alternate versions of many of the commons in this set and the uncommons. And this is one of them. So there's one version has a darker gray background around the the one in the mana cost, which is one white, white. And one version has a lighter version with a larger number one that's easier to read. And this effect means that 
even though there are 77 unique cards in this set, from a collector standpoint, there's kind of 92 cards in the set because of all these different mana cost variants. Interesting. Huh. Well, there you go. <laughs> well, the next card is a real big. Um, oh, yeah. And it's been a biggie since it was printed. Um, and that card is, of course, Bazaar of Baghdad. Um, now, there are, I believe, 10, 10 lands in this, in this set, Kevin. Um, and what's interesting is, if you think about it, sorry, I believe there, there are eight lands, right? Eight lands. And um, this is the first set that has lands that don't tap for mana. Now, that's not mm-hmm. saying a lot because it's only the second set in Magic. If you count <laughs> limited as un- and an unlimited as one cohesive set. But right. it is notable that there are no cards in Alpha, Beta, or Unlimited that are lands that don't tap for mana. And of the eight lands in this set, uh, three of them do not tap for mana. And this is one of them. Actually, I think it's four. Uh, Bizarre, Diamond Valley, Island of Wok Wok, and Oasis. Oh, yes. Sorry, Oasis does not tap for mana. Yeah. Trick me. <laughs> yeah, it's because it says tap for one. Yeah. yeah. It looks like it taps for mana, but it right, doesn't. <laughs> right, so half of these do not do not tap for mana, and this is one of them. And this card kind of came out of the gates in a big way in the balance deck, the, uh, the Masonette oh, balance geez. deck. <laughs> it was super powerful in that. And one of the cards that people forget that, that Adam Masonette used in the balance deck was Library of Lang with <laughs> Bazaar of Baghdad is a kind of functional Sensei's Divining Top, right? So he could yeah. put the card he wants, discard it on top of his library. <clears throat> which is pretty powerful. But then this card became really powerful with reanimator decks and then kind of went into another level of power once Wargorger combo became a thing. Well, it was both in in yeah, it was in Wargorger combo deck in 2003 and that's when this spiked to about 100 120 dollars along with workshop. <laughs> and you and I were just you know, you and I both owned like, I don't know, five or six bazaars and workshops at the time and we were trading them. I would trade my excess workshops for bazaars um, so I could get four of each. Because yep. they were about the same value. And then they went to about 200 where they were stayed for a long time, maybe like close to a decade. But Bizarre Baghdad was always a card that I felt very, was very, very evocative. It just, you kind of get the full feel of Arabian Nights. You get, you really are immersed in a space, this kind of busy marketplace where you got like in the background, you got some wheeler and dealers. In the foreground, you've got a guy holding a wheelbarrow. It's, it's a card that I think perhaps more than almost any other card in the set. Like, City of Brass puts you in a setting, Library of Alexander puts you in a setting, but this card puts you in a setting with people, and I think it's probably the most unique card in the set in that sense, because it gives you both the setting and the people, so it kind of comes alive in the image, and it's, to me, one of the most evocative cards in the set. The description you just gave brings to mind something that I like about this card, and it's, okay, like is kind of a strange phrase. One thing that's interesting to me is, I can't tell if this is a top-down or a bottom-up design. (laughs) And I think that's that's a rare thing in Magic, in my opinion, and one that is actually makes the card really super satisfying. Wow! Because it's a sweet spot. It represents, yeah, it represents the bazaar. It's a place where you wheel and deal, and it's got this, you know, it's got this um, resource translation effect that is very that feels very top down, like. The bazaar is, you're you know, is, off. is, yeah, you're getting over, yeah, you're, you're losing out on the deal, but you get something <laughs> that you want. But then from a bottom up standpoint, it's like, if we wanted to make a, a land that did this, it's very simple. It's not like you yeah. could, you could have really over engineered <laughs> a card that represents a bazaar, right? Complex economics or something, you know, cultural things that's this meeting of people that you alluded to. 
It could have been a super, super complex card, but it's so simple. It's just incredibly simple. And so it's really interesting to me. Also, this has one of the largest gaps between Oracle text and printed text. <laughs> Go for it. <laughs> because the, the Oracle text is tap, draw two cards, then discard three cards, right? It's one, two, three, four, five, six, seven words. The printed text says, tap to take two cards from your library, comma, after which you must immediately discard three <laughs> cards from your hand to your graveyard. <laughs> if you don't have three or more cards in your hand, comma, discard your whole hand. No spells may be cast between drawing and discarding cards. <laughs> uh, that is just, it's just so incredibly awesome. It, it is. You know, it. You may. I, I wanted to bring this up, but since you've already hit on it, the the specifications, the the drawing two, discard three. To me, that's always signaled you're going to getting ripped off in the bazaar. You know, you're getting mm-hmm. like you said, it's always been an unfair exchange. But the particularities of that were very important for the dredge deck because if this had said draw two, discard two, it actually would yeah. have been weaker for dredge. Yes, because the fact that you get to discard three means that you get to put the exact number of cards you want into the graveyard. You might yeah. not want to put your whole hand in the graveyard. You might just want to get, you know, the bridge from below and the uh, the the, um, the the two Golgari grave trolls or the tr- grave troll and the stinkweed in, but you want to hold right. the misstep and the force, you know? Right. So it's actually just, you couldn't have it better designed for dredge. I don't think you could actually design it if you were designing <laughs> from bottom up for dredge. It's just perfect. Yeah. It's amazing. And- it, it, yeah, it's just incredible how functional it is in that deck. And also think about Delve now, too. Right. The the alternate, you know, post-sideboard tactic that the decks have with Gurmag Angler. Oh, and that, and with Hollow One, too, to yeah. your point. So if you had only discarded two, Gurmag Angler and Hollow One wouldn't work nearly it, as well. And and I glossed over this, but but part of the reason it's so important in the World Gorger Dragon deck is because the when you go through the World Gorger Dragon loops, it comes into play untapped and therefore allows you to mill your deck. And yeah. so th- that actually is very important, and uh, it's the best card of the. <laughs> it's just uh, there was there was a point I, I was you know Brian DeMars wrote an interesting article. He says why is Library of Alexandria restricted in this card unrestricted because the amount of card advantage it generates just far exceeds Library. Uh, and and there was actually a debate where whether this is actually more powerful than Library, and I think that's still ongo- ongoing in some respect. There is a very simple metric that you can use to evaluate the potential. That is, think about potential energy in physics. The potential power of a magic card is how many cards it causes to change zones. <laughs> oh, God. It doesn't, it doesn't yeah. matter which zones right. or in which direction. But this card, just tap. It's five. For no cost yeah. other than tap, moves, f- makes five zone changes. That is absurd. That is a very yeah. basic metric for absurd power in a magic card. Think of another card that makes five zone changes. Well, Necropotence. For no mana. <laughs> Nec- no, for no mana. Well, Necropotence, you can exchange for z- for no mana. You can move it from but, the library to, a, to exile. <laughs> yeah. But you, no, but you paid three mana for Necropotence. Yes. This card you paid none for. That's true. And it's uncounterable. It is a know, land for all drop. And purposes. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So there's there's opportunity cost. But think about that when you're evaluating magic cards in the future or in different contexts is zone just raw zone changes is a very useful metric for understanding the potential power of a card. Obviously, context is relevant and yeah. this card didn't go completely bonkers well, until the dredge mechanic was made. Well, think about the, But it was still very powerful think before. Think about that. the cards that we mentioned earlier in this podcast, Doomsday. 
Doomsday is a good example. <laughs> That's one of the reasons why it's so powerful is because of the mass zone changes yeah, that it creates. It and, literally and moves 60. You're abusing... Yeah. Right. You're abusing the fact that it moves 50-plus cards to a different zone. Right. It's the whole reason why the thing is so powerful. Right. Gifts Ungiven, yeah. is, uh, by that metric, is far less powerful than Doomsday. Because it only yeah. takes four cards to, to... It moves four cards from one zone to two other zones. <laughs> your hand See, your that's favorite. a good comparison, right? Yeah. Think about Gifts Ungiven versus this. You pay four mana to make it, four it, zone it moves. It has less, less zone moves than Gifts Ungiven. I mean, less yep. than, than Bazaar. Yeah. <laughs> yep. It's pretty incredible. Well, what a cool card. And, and certain- Anyway, uh, we are destined to, t- to spend a lot of time on Bazaar of Baghdad. We were. We were. <laughs> and, and Jeff Mengus's art here is, is, I don't know. If I had to pick one piece of art from the entire set, you know, there's, there's so many different great cards. I mean, we could talk about Juzum, Library, yep. uh, City of Brass, Bazaar. Bazaar is in my top three for sure. Most iconic. Well, it's very evocative, I think. I'd like to back up one, though, because the art for Army of Allah is actually it's pretty cool. incredibly awesome and detailed and beautiful. Well, we're going to get back to Army of Allah later on, because there's a pairing, uh, a pairing yeah. with it. The next card is a creature, Bird Maiden, who is a flying 1-2 uh, for, for three mana, red and two generic. Kevin, I have to say, this yep. card really suffers from being 1-2 instead of 2-1. <laughs> yeah. Really There's does. no... There's no denying. Interestingly, too, that this is one of, I don't know, what is it, 10 or, yeah, it looks like nine birds in red. <laughs> it's kind of a, a a narrow wing of the bird tribe <laughs> with things like Rock of Courage as being the founder and Bird Maiden <laughs> being only the second. You have to go actually several years after Bird Maiden to get another red bird in Magic. The, this card was only reprinted twice, which is kind of interesting. It was reprinted in 4th and 5th edition and then just disappears. It's just, I yeah. mean, and the, the art is awesome. If this card had been 2-1, I really feel like we would have seen it in a lot of other things. I mean, it would be also good in kind of a limited format, but I, I mean, it wouldn't be it wouldn't be Thunder Spirit good, but I, I think it when, when you're playing like a deck, for example, with Gauntlet of Might, you know, whatever. It just would have shown up, I think, somewhere else. I, I couldn't agree more. It's This is the only creature in Magic that is a bird human. <laughs> and and its art just, I mean, as great as it is, it just suffered from being just a terrible, <laughs> terrible card. Yeah. I, you know, I'd like to point out, too, this art is, it looks simple on its face. Like, it's this, this woman who has wings, and she's flying, right? But then look closely at the composition, and yeah. you realize the whole thing is tilted yeah. forty-five degrees. This is simple, like a Georgia O'Keeffe is simple. It's it's, <laughs> I mean, it's it's absolutely beautiful. It's it. Yeah. You're absolutely right. You, you don't. You are literally sw- kind of not literally, but you are swept into the image. And it you know to really feel she's flying because, as you said, the horizon is it a yeah. kind of an incredible incline there with the clouds as well. So you really, really you really feel that kind of whoosh you know, the air carrying her up. Just yep. it's too bad that it's not better. Right. Um, the next card in and we're, we'll, we we will read some uh, a handful of uh, of the flavor text, but we haven't really gotten to ones that we think are really cool yet. Um, the next card, Bottle of Suleiman, is put simply, it's a four mana artifact that you tap and activate for one mana. You flip a coin. If you win the flip, you get a five five flying gin. If you lose the coin, if you lose the coin flip, it, it you take five. You lose five life or take five damage rather. Yeah. Um, this card was reprinted in in revised fourth, fifth, and sixth, and then has ceased to appear. But what's important is that this is the first card in Magic with coin flips. Yeah, Arabian Nights introduces coin flips to Magic, which has actually become there are a lot of things with coin flips like Mana Crypt and and uh, Goblin Game, not Goblin Game, but um, there are a lot of other coin flip effects. And this is the first introduction of that. 
So that's that's a notable thing. I never, ever felt this was a playable card. I know some people felt like, you know, I, I don't know what the math is, but, you know, what, what people calculate it. But I think the, the risk is just too high, and I never, ever, ever felt it was playable. Kevin, have you ever felt that way? <laughs> no, I've never thought this was a playable card. If you look at the rate, if you take a mathematical right. approach, you put five colorless mana and you get half of a 5-5 five, five flyer. You're basically, <laughs> you're getting essentially two and a half damage and... A two and a half, two and a half creature, yeah. and you take two and a half damage for five colorless? No, that's a terrible rate. <laughs> yeah. Obviously, obviously, the world doesn't work like that. You either get one or the other, but the, the way that they costed this card is a little bit incomprehensible. I guess they were just afraid of making it too good. They, they just didn't want it to be swingy, I guess. It's interesting. Imagine a slight variation on this card, where if you use it, if you lose the flip, you still it stays in play. Then I think it would have been much more viable. Oh, absolutely. It becomes much better if, I mean, because you, you might at first blush say, well, that's, that's not, that's not good. You could just, you're just guaranteed to get the five, five, but you're not. No. It's it, the five damage adds up, you know? Yeah. You can't activate this more than two or three exactly. times. Exactly. <laughs> so yes, it wouldn't have been still a good card, but it would have been if, much more reasonable. If I was a developer, I would have strongly recommended that. I just think it would have seen yeah. a lot more play and would have been a lot more interesting. It's still, you're still punished. I mean, it's still a high, a high risk yeah. play. But at least it, it it feels like it has a little bit more use. So yeah, the the what's the word I'm looking for? The motivation changes dramatically from the first, second, and third activations. <laughs> right? You, you activate it once and you lose. You're like, oh, oh, that's awful. So you activate it again, <laughs> and you're not. You're maybe not happy sometimes, even might- if you win the second time. <laughs> Right, but if you lose the second one and you've taken ten you're damage, you now hole. you're looking at the game. Yeah. <laughs> is it worth activating it again? I love that. No, I, you're right. I, that would have been way funner. It would have been way more interesting. Yeah, and and yep. it would have yep. been more incentive to use it. Well, now we get to a kind of interesting card, right? The Brass Man. Uh-huh. <laughs> yep, title character for our friend Andy Probasco. So Brass Man is a is, is an interesting and cute creature. You know, you think about the the way we were talking about costing things, Aladdin's lamp and Aladdin's ring and the bottle of Suleiman, right? These are expensive things. Brass Man is a one mana for a right. one three artifact creature. That's actually really, really efficient. <laughs> it's a good deal. Yeah, it really is. Especially as compared to all the cards we've reviewed even in this set. But obviously the Brass Man doesn't untap during your untap step and you have to pay a colorless to do it if you want him to untap. But this is this is a cool card, and I remember actually seeing this in a lot of contexts yeah. when I was young and new to the game because it, people were attracted to the efficiency of it, and you know, in some cases, the the novelty and the aesthetic of it. It's kind of a creepy, cute <laughs> yeah. piece of art by Chris Rush, and I don't know. I think a lo- I've talked to a lot of people who really like a Brass Man, and they like this magic card. Uh, <laughs> it 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 is a quirky card, and it it's kind of got that 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 flavor sensibility about it i yep. mean it can block a, a curd ape indefinitely which is nice i will say though that templating of does not untap as normal is kind of mm-hmm. an infamous templating from alpha that was just rife yep. with confusion you know time vault the time vault wars were waged on that template what does that yeah. mean and so on you know and there was of course a, num- a number of cards with that templating so it kind of gives me i don't know it it <laughs> <laughs> You have negative association with Precisely. that phrase. <laughs> yeah. But, you you know, you pointed out Kurt Ape, also highly relevant is uh, Savannah Lions. Yeah. This card matches up very well with the other weenie creatures in Alpha. No doubt. The, the, the Black Knight and White Knight, for example. This is, I mean, functionally very useful. Agreed. This is actually, I think, a playable, possibly. <laughs> 
Yeah, well, if this was printed today, people would consider playing it in limited, I think. Unlike many of these other cards that people wouldn't ever even draft, this one at least has some utility in the early and the late game. Right. Well, that brings us to our next card, Camel, which is just a beautiful <laughs> piece of artwork by Sandra Everingham. I love the spare simplicity of the background. It almost yeah. reminds me of like almost like this Japanese tapestries paintings, you know? They're just, you yeah. know, from from the, you know, 4 or 5 centuries ago. It's just so beautifully rendered. The card um so it, Camel is very simple. It's a zero one one mana creature for just one white. It bans, which is the, the a rules nightmare. Yeah. Um, and all creatures attacking in the band with Camel are immune to damage done by deserts. So it has a little <laughs> bit of a built-in uh, protection for one of the 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 cards that's prominent in the set. Um, you know, I have to say this is this is just straight top-down design. Right. Right. Yeah. The the Camel roams through the desert and is unaffected by the desert. I, I, this is probably a good po- a good place to kind of opine on early magic rules and you know banding was definitely a nightmare but people people actually i think overestimate how difficult uh the original rules were first edition rules Mm -hmm. as we've covered and i've covered in a an article i wrote last year for vintagemagic.com first edition rules are not actually that bad that the the structure of vintage uh, that first edition rules in terms of um timing rules for resolving spells Mm -hmm is not actually that far from I think in many respects it's superior to fourth fifth and to fourth fifth and uh fourth and fifth edition rules uh probably not revised but in many many respects superior to fourth um which got just overly complicated it's banding that was probably the biggest nightmare for rules rules people right right banding is as it's thematically very easy to understand and conceptually and physically very hard to implement exactly. from a rule standpoint. in practice. Yeah. There's too many different things that can happen, and then you get into damage resolution, which becomes very complicated. This is the first creature we've reviewed that still has its creature type as printed. It is Creature Camel. Nice. <laughs> well, go Camel. So, uh-huh. so that brings us to a very important and interesting and also controversial card, Kevin. Yeah. We're talking about City in a Bottle. <laughs> For I'm, I'm going to read this one. Yeah. For two mana... Whenever another non-token permanent with a name originally printed in the Arabian Nights expansion is on the battlefield, its controller sacrifices it. Players can't cast spells or play lands with a name originally printed in the Arabian Nights expansion. <laughs> so this is the first of what became a cycle, effectively, right? The first, the first set hoser. Yeah, expansion hoser. And this is a potent one, too. I mean, oh, the best. they weren't screwing it's, around. <laughs> it's the best one. I mean, between Golgothian Silex and, and uh, what's the chime? and, and uh, the, Yeah, Apocalypse Chime yeah, from and, Homelands. Yeah, and I think there's another one. This is, this is the best one. Um, you know, what's interesting about this card is, so it, it is Kandor, right? It's the city, it's the, the Superman, uh, yeah, the, crypt, uh, the city of Krypton, but, it, but in the Arabian Nights uh, story setting. Mm-hmm. This card, for back in the day, was just not very good. And the main reason was because uh, the errata it received was only relatively recent, and that many, most of the good cards in Arabian Nights, not all, but many of them were reprinted immediately in revised Chronicles and Fourth Edition, and so that this card actually only originally affected for for many many years, more than a decade. This card, almost two decades, this card only affected cards that were actually printed from the Arabian expansion, or later on had the mm-hmm. Arabian expansion symbol, like Chronicles. <laughs> Which is just, I mean, it's an embarrassing rules nightmare now in hindsight, right? Right. Which means that yeah. if you 
but there was even debacles in vintage tournaments where if you were proxying a card, you know, you know, it was it was like, well, well, putting that aside, putting that aside. Yeah, and people had who had all the Arabian Nights mountains. Right, right. <laughs> what it meant is that if you played, you know, for example, your sixth uh, edition City of Brass or your revised Curd Ape or your um, uh, revised Serendip Afrit, which was actually the most important card in 1994. 1994, 1995, people played a lot of Serendipa This card didn't affect it. It didn't affect Curd Ape and Serendipa which were, you know, Curd Ape was one of the anchors of the Lestray school, even though he had it in his sideboard in his 1990 Bertrand Lestray had it in his sideboard. It didn't affect any of those cards. So if you're play sitting, sitting in a bottle, you are functionally using it to just hose Juzum Jin, which by itself was just not quite as effective as it is now, as it stands today. Oh, and, and also Urnum Jin in Chronicles. So today it hoses all of those cards which makes it so much more powerful. And in fact, it's so powerful today because it hits any edition of City, and City of Brass, you know, any of those cards that we just mentioned, that some old school players thinks it should, think it should be restricted because it's so nefarious. But I actually think it's a very... <laughs> That's wild. I think that it's... People a, think it should be restricted. Uh, yeah, and it's like a transmute artifact card and it's a great hoser. I actually think it's a very important card in the set and underplayed. There is an interesting side note about this though, Kevin, and we, we've mentioned this before. City in a Bottle is the only card that you can play that can prevent a dredge player from playing a Bazaar of Baghdad. Not just using it, but from playing. There's no hmm. other card I'm aware of that prevents someone from playing Bazaar. Uh, on a permanent basis, yes. The card Sulfatara and Turf Wound can prevent players from playing oh, lands for that turn. <laughs> <laughs> I know, right? But in general, you are correct, yeah. And and So this, this yeah, this has a really unique and... And powerful method of hosing Bazaar of Baghdad Dredge. And so yeah. it sometimes would see play in like Mentor or Pyromancer Cyborgs as a one of to hose Dredge. And, you know, it's basically it was just used like Pithing Needle, right? Where instead of needling the Bazaar, you just play the city yep. in a bottle. It gets, it's not mental misstepable and, um, and it has the similar effect. So it'll destroy the Bazaars that are in play and also prevent yep. any others from being played or them obviously from being activated. So very powerful card. I want to talk for a moment about Drew Tucker. So Drew Tucker, who illustrated this card in many in the early days of Magic, is my favorite Magic artist. He has done, over the years, has done multiple versions of some of his cards, and this is one of them. He has reinterpreted his own art in a couple of different ways, and there's there's especially one of my favorite reinterpretations of his have been iterations on city in a bottle if you go to drew tucker illustration.com right now you'll see an alternate version which has this a whole city reflected in a, a circular bottle which is i think just an alternate take from his that is really beautiful there was an alternate version of city in a bottle that was i guess the original version but i don't know the story exactly it's just that <laughs> the art was, well, let me give you this summary here. So Garfield's response to seeing Lana where else for the first time was reportedly, that's not at all what I had imagined. And I think the same thing happened with City in a Bottle. The first art that was submitted was in fact rejected. It had a very small kind of pentagonal bottle with a very abstract city view visible in it. And Jason Jaco now owns this original art, which was never used for anything. 
And you can find it if you if you Google for City in a, in a Bottle Drew Tucker, you'll find this alternate version from old school MTG blog. That's where I found it most recently. And even since that point, Drew has done another uh, reinterpretation painting of his City in a Bottle that he sold a handful of copies of a few years back. And I un- own one of those. This is just one of a handful of his pieces that I truly love, but that he has continued to iterate on both originally, as, as I said, and since then, and you know, contemporarily in his own art. Unfortunately, none of his versions were used on Magic Online. The, the current Magic Online version is really nice, really cool by Daniel Lundgren, but this card and many other from early days of Magic have a special place in my heart because of Drew Tucker. Well, it brings us to probably one of the most important cards in the set. Oh yeah, definitely. Next up is City of Brass. So this is the first five-color land in Magic, and you all know it pretty well. Whenever City of Brass becomes tapped, it deals one damage to you, and you can add one of any color. This card was so functional in the early days of Magic in fixing mana and creating combinations of mana that the alpha duels could not. And it has been so ubiquitous, as it was printed in, reprinted, that is, in Chronicles, 5th, 6th, 7th, 8th, Modern Masters, and a couple of other super series and event decks in between, and has functionally, at least in the high 90% functionally, been superseded now by Mana Confluence, although there are still a couple of corner cases where the city is superior. You mentioned the five-color mm-hmm. lands. It was also known this as the Rainbow This is the progenitor lands. for all of them. And... Uh- <laughs> Yeah, and ironically, I mean, it's way better right. than most of the ones that right. followed it. E- even though this design is so elegant, I think it was they just found that it was just slightly too powerful for what they were trying to do with mana bases in Magic. Right. It's interesting to think about how they came up with this exact drawback, but it's just it's pretty perfect. I mean, it's really worked out yeah. well. So kudos to them. Sitting sitting of brass is, you know, anchored the deck. It anchored so many different strategies for so long. So yeah. And it's still beautiful, too, Mark Tadine. Okay, moving on to Kumbaj Witches. This is a fun card, not the least of which because of the art, obviously. I mean, this Kaja Folio color inverse black and white art is incredibly awesome. But (laughs) they do one damage to target creature or player, and then one damage to target creature or player of an opponent's choice. It's not even necessarily the controller of the thing you target, which I think is hilarious. <laughs> it says in the the gather rulings in multiplayer games, you can choose a different opponent player, opposing player each time it's used. You don't have to choose the same player that you targeted with the effect or whose creature you targeted. So it's a hilariously political card. It's like I do one damage to this and whatever you want to. Uh, the, I think I was looking up the history of this card and t- functionally. And it was it was succeeded by Fireslinger from Tempest, which just one just what does one damage to target and one damage to you, which is probably a superior ability, except for the political parts. But the Kubaj witches are one three. You know, owing to our discussion about the Brass Man, that's a huge and relevant power and toughness, especially in the early days of magic, because of the way it interacted with the other weenie creatures. So this is I think this card is really powerful and I kind of wish I had known how good it was when I first started playing Magic. It's true. It's it's black black too. Um, I have definitely seen this card played in old school of late, but yeah, I don't recall anyone playing it back in the day. Unfortunately, nor do I. Which is really interesting. I think the drawback was viewed as being a bigger deal 
than it than it truly is. It's real easy to build around this drawback such that it's not problematic. Also, this Kaja Foglio art, like many of hers, is somewhat risque, which is kind of fun and obviously does not truck with the, the current art direction for Magic. The Folios did some great art. Definitely. The next card is the first enchantment we'll be looking at. Cyclone for 2GG. At the beginning of your upkeep, put a wind counter on Cyclone, then sacrifice Cyclone unless you pay G for each wind counter on it. If you pay, comma, Cyclone deals damage equal to the w- number of wind counters on it to each creature and each player. <laughs> <laughs> this card is crazy. I mean, it's it's very similar to uh, the Armageddon Clock and then later on the Time Bomb. Well, it precedes them. It's the predecessor. Yeah. I, this yeah. Mu- is this the first card that actually puts counters on a card? It says put a chip on Cyclone. Oh yeah, the first yeah the first phrase in the printed text is put one chip on Cyclone. <laughs> That's great. Oh, and it also says each round, which is a hilariously you know like apocryphal version of the magic rules. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, true. <laughs> what round are we on? <laughs> this card is it kind of a uh, also preceded tornado, which we've used in type four. Yeah, but is uh, much much worse, much weaker. <laughs> yeah it's yeah it's very weak and um it's interesting that the art depicts that looks like the library again slash taj mahal true yeah. true Th- this does uh i mean it, it does it, it's kind of like a green pestilence would you say how would you put it yeah it's but it damages each creature which is something that green doesn't do very much right. so this is by today's standards this is i think kind of color pie breaking that damages all creatures and players it's it's not something that green would do anymore and it, yeah, it does. Green can attack things with flying, but this just hits all of them. Right. This card, I've never seen anybody play this card in any context. <laughs> have you? Uh, no, I I don't think so either. Unfortunately. Yeah. yeah. Now I've definitely seen the next one though. Dancing Scimitar. Oh yeah. A four mana one five flyer. This is another case where the power and toughness is exceedingly relevant because this card was just designed to block Sarah Angel and Sanger Vampire <laughs> all day long. <laughs> True enough. Yeah. This card was reprinted I, for many, many years. Yeah, and I, I have personally played this a lot. This was one of those cards that early on, because it was reprinted so quickly and revised, that I put this in a lot of decks in the early days. It was very good at, at stopping opposing 4-4 flyers. Because, you know, the 4-4 flyer in Alpha was the was the standard. Granted, the rare, at Rare, there was Shivan and Modi, but right. most people had Sengers right. and Sarahs and Air Elementals. Yep. Yeah. yeah. That's interesting. I don't remember anyone ever playing this, but... Um but it does do that 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 role very effectively. Well, and no one plays it in old school these days, right? I mean, right. it's just not necessary. The answers in old school are way better than a, a four mana creature that's there to block. So yeah, and mostly I, I'm confident in saying the reason I played it and my friends played it a lot as a kid is a we had them, and b we didn't know how good Swords to Plowshares was, right? We still thought that you weren't supposed to be giving your opponent life, that kind of thing. Right? We were idiots. <laughs> Well, the next the next card is a creature that uh, is is oh God, it's got an unbelievable Drew Cut Tucker art. Dan Dan, yes, uh, Dan, blue Dan. blue four one creature, but it can't attack unless your opponent has islands, and it's destroyed if you lose any, you lose all your islands. So it, yeah. it's a it's a vi- very efficient cast cost to power ratio here. I mean, the power is double the casting cost of the card, uh, but you have to be playing a blue mirror. And if all of your islands are destroyed, you it goes away. So it's yeah. essentially a sideboard card for the blue mirror. 
Yeah, it's, this card is very evocative to me for a number of reasons. The art is one of them, which I can talk more about that. But it, it's this is this is the most efficient like mana cost to overall power and toughness of any card we've re- reviewed so far. I think it's yeah. way above the curve in Alpha and and Arabian Nights. And well, from that from that standpoint alone, it's very well. There interesting. are cards that are twice as powerful as the casting cost, like Gazban Ogre, which we'll get to. But it is definitely up there. Yeah. So um, this art, I I know a handful of people throughout the years of of talking about art and magic. A number of people have told me in discussing Drew Tucker's art that it took them a long time to realize that Dan Dan wasn't just the two boats. Oh my god! <laughs> <laughs> Which I think is Come you know, it, in some cases possibly apocryphal, but yeah. still pretty funny. But I have a very special place in my heart for this card because in 1990, I want to say six or seven, I don't remember which, I wrote a letter to Drew Tucker asking wow. him to to sign some of my cards back then. Wow. I sent him, you know, a, a, a dozen cards or so. He wrote me a handwritten letter back, which I, I have framed. Nice. And I want, because one of the things I asked him was which of his arts was his favorite on a magic card, that is. And he said, and I quote, I think it's Dan Dan Fish, <laughs> which is awesome because obviously it says that he didn't know what the final name of the card was, right? And so, you know, he was given an art description, right? So I, I just think it's, I love that. I always think of this card as Dan Dan Fish because he wrote it that way to me. Another reason why I love this card is you can get time spiral foils with oh, this art. Isn't it? There are not very many cards in Arabian Nights that you can get foils of with their original art. Isn't it incredible that this card has been reprinted four times or three times, and all with the original art? Yeah, it's it's yeah. There's not a lot of cards for which that's the case. Chronicles Fifth Edition and Time Spiral. That is a time shifted card. That is so (laughs) cool. So if you want us, if you want to see a beautiful version of a Dandan, go find a Time Spiral foil. It's really nice. They're only like a buck or two as well. Yeah. Well, so cr- next up is the, the the titular desert, so to speak. <laughs> yep. yep. <laughs> which taps for colorless mana, which is not a given in this set, as you alluded to earlier. And then one damage or one damage to target attacking creature activate this ability only during the end of combat step. <laughs> Boy, that's incredibly so the desert, specific. Yeah. Yeah. This is another seriously top down design, right? The desert's going to hurt you. You might get where you're going, but you're going to take damage to do it. This. This card is kind of the subject of some apocryphal rumor rumor mongering that you know some people have said before that Arabian Nights was going to introduce a, a sixth color and that mm. originally that color was going to come from desert and that gotcha. you know and so but anyway that was never intended to be the case uh, but yes this card is kind of like as you said kind of the set you're in Arabian Nights you're in the desert um, yep. and it's interesting that this tapping for colorless is of course just better now post. Uh, um, <laughs> Eldrazi, Eldrazi than, uh, yeah. than it was back in the day. Yep, definitely. This this land got way better with the, the printing of the colorless mana requirements and mana costs, and that's saying something because this was already a really good card, right? Like, people yeah. play this in old school. It's it's useful from a control standpoint to, to, to weed out weenies like Savannah Lions. And it's certainly useful to, if you were drafting limited, like if you're with this, this would be a, a playable card. Definitely. Yeah, it's, yeah, that's right. Post combat, one extra damage because it's just it doesn't have to have been blocked or damage you or anything. It's just target attacking creature. Right. This, you know, the, the rules implications of this are subtle too. I I know a number of people over the years who have not understood that a creature is attacking all the way through combat to the <laughs> end of combat step. 
a lot of people are like, well, it's done attacking. It already dealt its damage, right? And that this card reinforces that that's not the case. Good point. Not many cards reinforce that. This one does. Well, there's a card here that actually interacts or interfaces directly with that, and that's the next creature, mm-hmm. Desert Nomads, <laughs> which I think is the only card with Desert Walk. I think it is. And interestingly, too, they're not just Desert Walk, but they're immune to the damage that deserts <laughs> would deal, which is great. Otherwise, they're just a Gray Ogre, but they're obviously you know a, a strict upgrade from Gray Ogre if you're... Right in the business of comparing things. Not that that was a, a rarity in Alpha, which had three other strict upgrades from Grey Ogre. Right. No, I don't remember people back in the day making much use of this card, um, but I'm sure if I had played more in the wake of Arabian Nights, if if I'd seen people being playing Desert, I would have been at least considered, do I need some Desert Nomads? <laughs> <laughs> I know. The art on Desert Nomads is interesting. It's Chris Rush. It appears to have depict four suns in a straight line and i'm unclear if that is meant to i think that's meant to evoke the passage of time rather than a place with four suns in in a row or four moons four stars yeah yeah it's probably given that i've never seen any other card other than like fifth dawn right but uh (laughs) i i get the feeling that's meant to evoke time good point interesting interesting observation and the weapons they're holding is like a spear a a crossbow and then a knife is that? Yeah, it looks like it. Or, yeah, I would agree. They're really out there waiting for you in the deserts. Um, the, the next card is also under the header Desert, but it's the mm-hmm. Desert Twister, the infamous Desert Twister by Zo- Susan Van Camp. Yeah. And bo- this card is awesome. Yeah, this card, I mean, it, for a one-liner that's just four, four, four words... I mean, boy, yep. that's a that's a big a big effect. <laughs> <laughs> Sometimes simple is good, right? Less is more. Yeah, the Oracle the Oracle version's only three words now. Destroy target permanent. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> now this this card was in my play, ex- play experience early on. This card was ubiquitous. Like everyone who played green thought, yeah, I need to put a Desert Twister or three into this deck because this is what I want to be doing. <laughs> I, we definitely caught on to the flexibility of this if you know it lacked efficiency. Yeah, I, I remember seeing this card quite a bit but i also remember everyone in my play group hating it because it was so expensive we were okay we were all in on i mean even in 1994 we were all in on shatter disenchant swords you were definitely more spiky than i was early on <laughs> but what a cool card is this this card's played in old school isn't it in some corner cases uh i've never really seen it i don't think i can say well it may be i haven't seen it though Okay. Well, it certainly doesn't fit into the standard strategies. It doesn't go into right. the deck or the zoo decks necessarily. I swear I've seen this in someone's sideboard though, but yeah, who knows. The next card is is one of those lands that does not tap for uh for mana, but it is a very powerful land that's been used in a lot of interesting yeah. combo decks. Diamond Valley. You tap it to sacrifice one of your creatures and you gain life equal to that creature's <laughs> toughness. <laughs> this the, the printed text on this is another just doozy oh tap to sacrifice one of your creatures in exchange for a number <laughs> of life points equal to its toughness <laughs> note that this ability may be used after blocking has been declared <laughs> god it's <laughs> fantastic um I, I loved this card when i was young and i i got a couple copies and put them into various casual decks like i had a health caretaker deck and stuff yes, yes. I, I really enjoyed this effect i don't know why this this I gravitated so much to this when I was a new player, but I did. Yeah, it's 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 really good if you're playing a lot of like preacher, ceasinger effects. What was the creature you just mentioned? Uh, Hell's caretaker. Hell's caretaker with which you yeah. can use to is a kind of reanimation creature, and you can right. keep sacrificing things. It's definitely good in that. 
Uh, Jason Jaco has a cool deck with it. Uh, with it, he calls Blood Diamond. With uh, um, <laughs> it's got a pair of preachers in it, and it also nice. has um, Disharmony, which is a, a Legends. Whoa. Yeah, Legends instant that uh, you basically steal in a, a creature for a moment and uh, during combat. During right? combat, so you can use you can steal it and then sacrifice it to the Diamond Valley. Pretty cool. Wow, that's it, interesting. Cool. I don't know if there are any other effects that existed at this time. There maybe there are. But just in Alpha, Beta, Unlimited, and Arabian Nights that allow you to sacrifice creatures of your own. There, that you I don't think so. They introduced the, the artifact. They're sacrificed. The yeah. but I mean permanence. Right. Um. They introduced the artifact in Legends that did it during your upkeep. I can't remember the name of it at the moment. But yeah, I think it was unique back then. Yeah. Pretty cool. Speaking of unique, jeez. Oh yeah. Next up is Drop of Honey. This is a doozy. Talk about brutal efficiency for a single green at the beginning of your upkeep. Destroy the creature with the least power. It can't be regenerated, which was relevant back then. If two or more creatures are tied for the least power, you choose. When there are no creatures on the battlefield, sacrifice Drop of Honey. This card is has gone crazy of late. It's just brutally efficient, and it has obviously been uh, future shift, not future shifted, but color shifted in periphery nodes. Um, in periphery nodes in uh, Planar Chaos, right? Right. Right. Yeah. I mean, this card, it, this is the predecessor to the Abyss. The problem with the card is that it doesn't do anything the turn you play it. It doesn't do anything on your opponent's turn. You have to get back to your right. turn. And then it, it takes out, you know, the weakest card on the table. So, um, because it, by definition, it requires the lowest power. So it's slow, but it is, it is very powerful. Yeah. It, it's a build around in a sense. It, it promotes control strategies very well. And it's also just a two-card combo with certain large creatures, <laughs> especially those that are indestructible or have Shroud or Untargetable right. or whatever. Because it says, um, oh, no, this, I'm sorry, the, the current Oracle version doesn't target. So I was mistaken go. about that. But it does destroy, which means indestructible or, um, what's the other thing I'm thinking about? Anyway, if, if, you, if the creature wouldn't be destroyed from the effect, then you can keep the Drop of Honey in play indefinitely, right. which I always thought was awesome. I always... Yeah, I had this had this deck in the one and only old school. I had yes. this card, I mean, in the one and only old school deck that I've ever yes, played. Yes, your Living Lands deck, which is super cool. Yeah. Boy, Living Lands with this. Uh, <laughs> takes a while to wipe yeah. the board, but it's not as fast as Tabernacle, but my god, it, it really <laughs> makes sure that this thing sticks around, right? Yes. Yes, it does. <laughs> Um, and it's sl- it kind of basically is like a mana vortex. It just clears the board slowly but surely. Um, the, you know, I, I wanted to mention this about Diamond Valley. Diamond Valley's art is really cool because you can see the diamonds in the valley, and there's like this warrior who's like in the foreground who's just a skeleton who clearly got caught up in the valley and was and died. But Drop of Honey's art is is like remarkably abstract. I mean, obviously it is literally called Drop of Honey, and you see you see a <laughs> drop of honey coming out of the mouth of of a bee's head. But but this kind of like this art of enzymatics art of like this bizarre orangish honeycomb with just the yeah. head of a of a of an insect of a bee popping out and this enormous drop of honey coming out of it is just like incredibly unsettling it's menacing yeah. and weird yes i, I love it <laughs> and the and the colors too the colors are a little bit equally unsettling yeah 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 i i I love this card it's beautiful there is a really cool in 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 inquest number three there's a really cool interview with anson maddox that if anyone has a copy of that i'd recommend he's kind of got this kind of like punk vibe going on he's really kind of like like he looks like a punk rocker (laughs) like in the in the interview but uh but his art is i mean the artists are just so great in arabian nights it's just man 
An- yeah. Another another great one, but 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 unsettling. Kind of like this is the kind of image you would see in a nightmare. <laughs> kind of a, a, a David Lynchian <laughs> buzz, you <Yeah>. know, <laughs> terrifying. Yeah, it, it also reminds. It kind of evokes uh, Kafka's metamorphosis. Oh my god, it does in, in a way. Yeah, yeah, exactly. It's great, and it's a disembodied head, like peering out of that of the catacomb. So it's just it's the, yeah. it's so, so foregrounded in such a powerful way. Um, the, the next is Ebony Horse, which there are two kind of horses that I always get confused in here like that, because there's Jandor Saddlebags and Ebony Horse, which are both by Damien Willick, but who've done these kind and of... And they both untap creatures, too. Yeah, and they <laughs> both have this kind of like hyper-realistic painting, and they're just beautiful Arabian horses. Um, yeah. And Ebony Horse is a three-mana ar- artifact that taps for two mana to remove one of your attacking creatures from combat. Treat this as... this is I'm reading from the actual text, not the oracle text. Yeah. It's so it's a maze exactly. of myth for one of your creatures, basically. <laughs> Ex- um, and this and it's it's very inefficient in a sense because it's three mana to cast and two mana to activate. I never ever saw anyone play this card in my play never. group, never. even though it was widely available because it was in revised and fourth. And I don't know, I kind of don't know why. I just thought we didn't understand the value of being able to swing in a larger group of creatures and save one. Um, but then this card was definitely recapitulated in reconnaissance which I think was in Stronghold, which is the white enchantment that lets you do this for much uh, <laughs> much less mana and investment. Yeah, Reconnaissance is enchantment for just white, and it has zero colon, remove target attacking creature you control from combat and untap it. Like, the Reconnaissance is thousands of times better than this Ebony Horse, <laughs> aside from the fact that you have to pay white mana instead of generic mana. Well, yeah, this this creature, I mean, this, this artifact, rather, it's not a creature, it's an artifact. Yeah. Uh, it's not even an artifact creature. Uh, this it it's not expensive by Arabian standards, but it's still too expensive for its effect. Yeah, I would agree with that completely. And it's really a lost opportunity too, because by today's standards, an ebony horse could be such an oh. epic magic card. Oh yeah. And why it's this thing that saves one of your attacking creatures is a little bit of a mystifier at this point. <laughs> I mean, I suppose it's, it's a good horse. It's, you ride into battle and right. it keeps you safe. It's probably one of so, the stories. Yeah. Um, if it is, I'm not familiar with it. But you're right; the art is beautiful. The next card is this is a card that is incredibly iconic, but you don't really yeah. see talked about very much. It's El Hajaj. Is that mm-hmm. your pronunciation? I've heard El Hajaj, and I've heard El Hajij because there is an accent over the A, and this is a case that I do not know how to pro- properly pronounce it. But not like healing solve, I mean, huh? Yeah. Well, no, that one I do. <laughs> the, uh, <laughs> I, I mentioned that because Kevin did a PSA reminder on how to pronounce that. <laughs> yeah, just so you know, the L is silent in healing salve. Um, the uh, El Hajiz has a prototypical life link, which is humorously because yep. of the evolution of the rules. He doesn't in the Oracle doesn't actually have life link, but the card as printed says you gain one life for every point of damage El Hajiz inflicts. <laughs> inflicts being the greatest word. Um, Oracle being whenever El Hajiz deals damage, you gain that much life. And I can't actually describe the whole history of lifelinks evolution, but what I can tell you is that this happened incrementally such that at some point along the way, lifelink was a trigger and it functioned, the printed text on El Hajjaj functioned differently than how they had defined a lifelink. And so the two kind of diverged in the woods and then never met up again like they should have. Interesting. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. So El Hajjaj still has a triggered ability which does not function the same way lifelink does. Lifelink happens immediately. Right. You can die. Even right. if you're about to gain life from your El Hajjaj in combat, you can die before his right. ability resolves, which sucks. Right. 
I think I have a vague recollection of this card being used kind of with bad moons and unholy strength effects. Yeah. To try and there was some maybe of that. some health and yeah. beyond to get gain some life. Um but but this the art is just I mean, my god, it's probably a top ten art in the set. This the way in which half of his face is shadowed yeah. is so amazing. It's, yeah, there's so much negative space in this art, it's fantastic. And yeah, I and just you love can it. It's, feel it's, him peering out in the, in the shadow. Yeah. It's just Yeah. It's great. Well, let's let's um, go ahead. This, but this card is so weak by today's standard. Oh, yeah. it's, un- it's just terrible. For three mana, I mean, you wouldn't even want to yeah. bother. Um, yep. Elephant Graveyard. My God, this card is one of the most expensive cards in the set. I have no idea why. It's not like <laughs> tapping for colorless or tapping to regenerate an ele- elephant or a mammoth are really that great. So what's going on here? <laughs> I think it's just uh, the, the reserved list combined with speculation, combined with maybe a tiny bit of EDH play. People who have elephant generals. Uh, um, I don't think there's much there's much explanation for it, really. It's interesting how subtle this card is because it's again, it's top down design, right? Yeah. Regenerate target elephant is the second ability after tapping for colorless. It's not special in any other way. It's so it's just really interesting <laughs> how how narrow and specific this card is. Compare right. that to its right. its uh, spiritual successor, Swarm Yard, which is a land from. Uh, time spiral, I think. Let me verify. Yep. Yeah. From time spiral, t- swarm yard is the same exact card, except the second ability is regenerate target insect, rat, spider, or squirrel. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. I mean, it, it, you, which yeah, you would think of all the effects in here, you would think it would be something like regenerate a gin or an afrit or something like that. But I guess it wouldn't really make sense thematically to re- regenerate a, a, a kind of a, a mystical creature. So you kind of have to do a real world one, but. But mammoths were mammoths in Arabian Nights, you know. It's like, no, there's only and humorously there's only one elephant in Arabian right. Nights, and war it's the the war elephant, which is not it's not particularly special, right? So and it's just bizarre mammoths. that there's this particular sub theme. Yeah, are there any mammoths in, in Alpha? Um, yeah, war mammoth, war mammoth, of course. Yeah, yeah. So there you go. You have war elephant yeah. and war mammoth. So it's it's yeah. if you want to build your mammoth deck, your elephant deck, there you go. <laughs> But it's pretty unflavorful that a uh a kind of a northern hemisphere war mammoth, like it's right. a woolly mammoth, would be would get any benefit from an elephant graveyard in the Middle East. Right. Right. <laughs> that's some um, that's some continental drift action going on there. Definitely. So our next creature Next is a pretty important card. Definitely. Honestly. This I mean for yeah. two mana you get a two Erg Raiders is two mana for a two three. And uh, if you do not attack with it, it deals two damage. This is a card that I definitely saw on Black Weenie decks back in the day. Oh and yeah, this is another. It's just incredibly efficient. Um, and again, because of how it matched up against the other weenies of the day, it was just for two mana. If your opponent had a black knight and you had an Ur Raiders, you know you were getting a big advantage. Yeah, <laughs> Granted, even if even if, even to, if yeah. blood, uh, bad moons in play. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And it just the way that it matched up against, and it could block you know curd apes if it needed to, which is not a good rate. You want to be attacking with it, but still, just the efficiency here was fantastic. Yeah, if you don't it's attack, su- though, summon you, raiders. If you, <laughs> is it still? No, it's not. Yeah. It's just the card is listed as summon raiders, which I like. And speaking of menacing, these guys are quite menacing here. They've got their kind yeah. of swords drawn, and this guy, and you know, it's just a. You can actually kind of they're ju- they're kind of s- just uh, there's kind of spittle coming out of their mouth from their right. their uh, their cry battle cries. So there's a entirely shared color palette between Erg raiders and El Hajij too. Good point. It's the same yeah. artist as well. Yep. Well, that brings us to uh, probably one of the most iconic cards in the in the entire set, which is Urnum Jin. Yeah, 
Urnum Jin was so formative for the period of time shortly after it was reprinted because it was in standard. Right. right? The fact that it got reprinted so, in Chronicles was de- the defining feature of it. Yeah, there was a whole a whole genre of decks called Ernie Geddon. Ernie Geddon, yeah. Yeah, that were green, white, and X-based decks designed to put this giant creature into play and then cast Armageddon. You know, it's interesting. I've searched pretty hard, and I can find very little, in fact, zero evidence of Urnum Geddon's decks in Type 1 or, or Magic Constructed um, back in the day. But people have definitely built some effective Urnum Geddon decks in, in old school, modern old school. But it didn't really I exist think, in Type 1. I think that's because of Juzam interacting with dark ritual and juggernaut interacting with workshop i I agree with you i just think it's interesting yeah Yeah, i agree i agree now what the the kind of quirk about this card of course is that uh, you give your opponent a creature uh, a creature one of their creatures forest walk which is kind of a weird element to this card but for four mana four five you really can't be beat i remember in the early 2000s i briefly played standard and they printed jade leech and there was another card right around there that were you know yeah kind of reminiscent of Urnum Jin. I think there was There have been several. Yeah. Yeah, there was the there was the Thorn um there was Nettletooth Jin and then there's another one with Thorn in its name that I, I think I've forgotten. But yeah, they kept trying to make basically it was just four mana four four. They kept trying yeah. to make four mana four four a thing and there were multiple swings at it over the course of Magic's history because of this card. Yeah. So cool. So cool. One of the best cards in the set, undoubtedly. Um yeah. and and you know the first the first also, big Ifrit and Jin we've seen right also the second creature in the set that's creature type still matches its printed creature type Jin. <laughs> but i think most of the gins do so it won't be the last i mean this card is it was in the list of all like the top 10 best creatures in the in the type one back in the day even yeah. and even as late yeah. as 1996 so the next card is eye for an eye which is <laughs> a really kind of interesting card it's white white instant and um i want to make sure i'm looking at the oracle text here but Next time, the source of your choice would deal damage to you this turn. Instead, that source deals that much damage to you, and eye for an eye deals that much damage to that source's controller. Right. So it's not a redirection. So it actually... It's just a copying of damage. Yeah, it's fork. It's a white fork of damage. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but this is, again, this is top-down design at its at its fullest. The, the Mark Pool artwork is both, like, simultaneously, like, fascinating and disappointing here. It's like, yeah. I mean, the guy whose whose head is face down is like is is kind of like I don't know how to describe it. Interesting, but and the perspective on Bl- the on the sword Blase. is cool. Yeah, <laughs> well, unconscious, but 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 there's also something just like comically unsatisfying about this this particular panel. Yeah, I, I agree. I don't like this art very much at all. And the white fork for damage is probably the best way to encapsulate this card. <laughs> Oh, and it's also it's obviously been been superseded functionally by a number of cards. I never saw anyone cast eye for an eye when I was playing. Neither did I uh, back in the day. You know what? I take that back. I think I probably saw someone do it once, but I, okay. I it's like you know in the dark recesses of my memory, I I seem to remember it somewhere. But here we have our first aura, yeah, in fish liver oil, which is a hilariously <laughs> banal like concept for magic, right? right. Enchanted creature ha- uh, has island walk, and that's it, <laughs> right? Right, blue one enchanted creatures island walk, which I suppose yeah. is good if you want like I don't know, I don't know what. <laughs> I guess. Well, in, in Alpha, blue had phantasmal terrain, so there was that sub theme of changing lands into islands. There you go. Yeah, I guess again, this feels more like top down design, though, in my opinion, because they wanted fish liver oil to do something. 
Right. <laughs> it could have done a zillion things, and it, just, it gives you island walk. doesn't even make sense, right? You rub this oil on yourself, and suddenly you're a fish. Right. I don't think so. Right. It's pre- pretty weak. <laughs> yeah. The, the next card would potentially be equipment these days. Yeah, I agree. Flying carpet, which is obviously... You know, just a reference to the the famous flying carpet from a number of different Arabian Nights and other settings. But it, it does what you would think. It does what it says on the tin. Target creature gains flying until the end of the turn. I do think it's unfortunate that if, that if the creature is destroyed, you, you still have to destroy flying carpet as well. I always felt like, <laughs> I mean, honestly, I always felt like this card would be just, I mean, like equipment, right? If the creature dies, the equipment doesn't die. Why Why is the well, flying carpet dying? That is functional errata for the card. Has that that ability was removed oh. in the. Uh, uh, I'm trying to figure out which version it was. Sorry, I got to. I got to go back in it time to figure like, out which one it was. It looks like it was sixth the sixth edition. Yes, between fifth and sixth was removed. Yeah, interesting. The same time that Doomsday received its errata, <laughs> so did Flying Carpet. Weird. That's weird. Uh huh. Wow. So for those who might not be following along here, the <laughs> the original printed Arabian Nights text and indeed Re- the next few versions. Fourth and fifth. Yeah. Say, if that creature is destroyed before end of turn, so is Flying Carpet. The, f- the fifth edition Me- version said, if creature is put into graveyard this turn, bury Flying Carpet. <laughs> <laughs> so, I mean, the idea, you know, more top-down design, right? If you're flying this thing and you die, the carpet goes with you, apparently. Well, um, I'm glad Which we're- obviously flies in the face of <laughs> Disney's Aladdin, where the carpet is sentient. I'm glad we're doing this, because I, <laughs> I played this card, exactly. I played this card in the Jinn Freet War. <laughs> Yeah, it's one of the the treasures, and um, I don't know that I knew that. So, all right. Well, the next card is actually a card that uh, is on a flying carpet and has uh-huh. got a lot of. He's got a lot of play, a lot of play. He's the flying yeah. man. I have to say, he, I think he sees a lot more play in old school these days than I than he did back in old Type One and Magic Constructed. Yeah, this. I mean, this is just a great card. Obviously, it mirrors Scrib sprites from Alpha and. I have both of them in my Edric EDH deck. This is just, I mean, this is the card we we say when we think of new one blue one one flyers, right? Or variations of them. Like this, oh, this is a great flying man. Yeah. <laughs> right? Because obviously this this yeah. card has been superseded in a number of fronts. Yeah. yeah. Um, but it's the, the art is just simple and beautiful. And and also it's very evocative of motion and action. This this person flying on this flying carpet has this sword drawn behind them. Yes, but it, you know it looks like they're speeding the glint, into some the glint combat of the, or something. The, the off off camera light source reflecting. Yeah, off it. it's just so awesome. I do have to say that there is an incongruence here for me between the title and the image. There is a yep. man, not men. <laughs> <laughs> I know. the The flavor text says uh, Sophia clapped her hands, and twenty flying men appeared at her side, each well trained in the art of combat. Uh, but yet, the art depicts a single man on a single carpet. <laughs> Whereas in script sprites, you actually see multiple sprites. You know, so it, the plural yep. is is uh, appropriate. This is another card that you can get with this original art in foil in Time Spiral, if you wish. Awesome. Which is unfortunately. It appears that they kind of watered down the art in a way. It looks like they really? smoothed it or blurred it. Yeah, because it looks far more crushed and and digital in the oh, Time Spiral version. Yeah, I what think did they, they do? It, it, I think they went to work on it. Yeah, yeah, that's unfortunate because it just it's the the lightness of it, the airiness of it. It now looks like it's almost underwater as opposed to in the sky. That's really yeah, a, I agree. It's unfortunate. Um, I, I was going to say it, it is interesting and notable that the only reprint of this card is Time Spiral. <laughs> so yeah. it's kind of odd. It kind of a, a big, a big gap there. It's a big gap, right? Right. The next card is a card that I definitely saw a lot of play. Um, yeah. Over the kind of 
over a long period of time. And it was in Stompy for a while. It was in old school Zudex and and I don't I haven't seen it. It's still an old school Dex. It's Gazban Ogre, the mm-hmm. the the green mana two two that uh, during its controller's upkeep, the player with the highest life total gets control of it. So you better you better play it with some burn. Yep, high risk, high reward. But you but this is. Yeah, but this is just efficient mana cost to power and toughness there, at its core. It's it's just like Dandan. Dan. It's two to one power yeah. power to to. So this is an example of. I mean, really, Arabian Nights is known for is having these extremely hyper efficient creatures that have drawbacks. So we've looked yeah. at, for example, Urnum Jin has the drawback that it gives its opponent uh, creatures uh, uh, forced walk. Erg Raiders, if you don't attack, you take two damage. And here, Gazban, you risk losing control of it under the wrong circumstances. So, but but. The trade-off was that, you know, from a design perspective, these cards had drawbacks, but they were all calculated risks, and they all saw play for years after Arabian Nights. Arabian Nights had a kind of a persistence in the Type 1 format long after it was printed because of these creatures with significant drawbacks. Right, right. Next up is a fun one, Giant Tortoise. (laughs) Two mana, one, one, but it gets plus zero, plus three while untapped. And this card was reprinted in Eternal Masters. Which is interesting because what it does is it testifies to what a nice role player this is in Limited as a common blue creature. And it's it's still, this is functionality that's still relevant and maintained in Blue's identity for Limited today. Interesting. That is low power, high toughness, cheap creature that is a, you know, like an aquatic creature, in this case an amphibious creature, uh, that is designed to just sh- shore up the ground while Blue then deploys mid- mid-game flyers. So it's, it's pretty funny. You pointed out the Flying Men went from Arabians to Time Spiral. This one went from Arabians to Fourth, which was only a couple of years, and then Eternal Masters. <laughs> so an even longer time period Interesting. in terms of reprints. Uh, I... Um I f- I, what's weird about the art is that it kind of has a flatness to it. There's not a lot of dimensionality to it, which is True. interesting and weird. Is this the the only? Is this the first creature that has that clause? If it's untapped, it gains something. Do you know? Oh boy, I, that's a good one. I it, wouldn't it know. It might be because I don't recall any of them from Alpha Beta Unlimited. But that's something that we've seen a lot of later on. You know, so yeah, I'm, I can only think about later examples. Well, the next card is, again, the card I mentioned as being so iconic, I remembered it from December 1993, and it's yeah. Guardian Beast, which uh, costs just one black. No, I kid. It, co- <laughs> it costs one black and three, but the three is so faint that it, it's hard to even see. It's right. a 2-4 Guardian. I don't know what its current oracle is. Maybe you can tell. Beast. Beast. <laughs> yeah. And he's, he looks like, I mean, so the the purple Guardian, and the, and the whole image is just suffused with purple. But all you yep. see is his like bright yellow eyes, some menacing. It looks almost like um, baleen teeth, like a baleen. Yeah, they're long and thin, right? Yeah. And then he's got arms, uh, six arms, six appendages, right? <laughs> One that's off screen, and the arms and legs are basically the same size and proportion. So he's like <laughs> up in the tree with one arm and a fist, and grabbing it with another, and one with his feet firmly planted in the ground, with which maybe maybe in the skulls, but um. This card is just, it, it's a protection card in black. It protects your artifacts from being destroyed. So as long as it's in play and untapped, your artifacts cannot be destroyed. And that has a quirky interaction with the last uh, errata on Chaos Orb, which says that when you use Chaos Orb, um, you, uh, you you destroy it. So um, Yeah, so it's pretty good in old school is what you're saying. Well, yeah, what I'm saying <laughs> is that you can u- iteratively use Chaos Orb 
You know, you can't use it multiple times per turn because the artifact comes into play tapped, but that's pretty pretty good. Yeah, this card is really cool, and I'm sad that I never had one as a kid because oh, yeah. I just love the look of it. And purple is my favorite color, and the the thing is simple and kind of menacing, as you put it, and really cool. This ability transitioned into white, yeah, a white over version. the course of yeah. There's actually a couple of them, I think. Leonina Bonus and then Fountain Watch. I think I'm not sure if I got the right first one right, but also the Oracle text is bizarre because obviously they had to kind of chisel away at the meaning of the original printed text on this card because the current oracle text says as long as it's untapped non-creature artifacts which is not not ambiguous but non-creature artifacts you control can't be enchanted they have indestructible and other players can't gain control of them (laughs) what a strange trifecta of protections right they're indestructible and you can't enchant them or gain control of them which is it's just bizarre <laughs> that is oh yeah and it says this effect doesn't remove auras already attached to those artifacts <laughs> it's interesting the the actual card text itself implies that but it doesn't it's not explicit because it says right it says well it does say if if an artifact is enchanted or stolen while guardian beast is tapped it remains so while guardian beast becomes untapped but also says your non-artifact creatures cannot be further enchanted destroyed or taken control of someone else's <laughs> control so it's really <laughs> It's really yeah. odd phrasing, but that's, I guess, kind of par for the course here. But the 2-4 body really is, is meaningful. And um, yeah. you know, this, this card is used in old-school transmute control decks. I mean, it, it, the reason to splash for black is basically because of this. Because you use a toolbox of artifacts, and it really does prevent them from being, being uh, taken. So I think I own two or three of them, and I'm really glad I picked them up a couple years ago because it's spiked. Yeah, now they're re- ridiculously expensive, like so many of the good cards in this set. Yep. I would I would say uh, EDH players out there, if you haven't looked at this card, take a look at it because I think it would go well in a mono black, maybe Gonti deck that it's heavy on artifacts or something. And I, you know, I'm loath to suggest someone buy a two or three hundred dollar magic card just for fun. So maybe maybe proxy it up or something. But uh, I think this card might be going a little bit under the radar in the casual community because of how old and expensive it is. <laughs> when really, it's just kind of fun to play with. It's neat. Yeah. Uh, next up, I never played Hasran Ogres. <laughs> Neither did I. <laughs> <laughs> two mana, it's three, a- two, which sounds like a great rate, but unless you pay two each time she un- she attacks, she does three damage to you. Speaking of cards with no, thank drawbacks, you. yeah, it's it's kind of an yeah. off-putting card, too. <laughs> yeah. Dan Frazier doing his best Foglio impersonation, I think. <laughs> that's, a good, that's the perfect way of putting it. <laughs> yeah. This this was originally commissioned by the Foglios, and Dan Frazier doing it is, is very different. <laughs> this is this is yeah. an ogress, to say the least, yes. Yes, to say the least. Yeah, I don't I never liked this card. It's something <laughs> just that when I, I mean when I was first getting into the game this this uh ratio of cheap creature that you have to pay a bunch to or it damages you was just not attractive to me at all and i was never that aggressive of a player and that's just that's a high price to ask especially when among alpha and beta uh, i'm sorry alpha and arabians there's so many other good black creatures yeah. that are cheap yeah that she's just pretty far down the list i don't think this card sees much play over or graders but it does invert no. the power and toughness so right it's more aggressive that's for sure it's a sui- it's kind of a prototype suicidal black card, right? It's the kind of the flesh yeah. reaver, right? That's a good comparison, actually. Yeah, progenitor to uh, sarcophage and those those ones. <laughs> Carnophage, sarcomancy, and flesh reaver. Ah, yeah. <laughs> uh, you're right. I was conflating a few. <laughs> well, the next one. Uh, is- so let's let's talk about her jackal. Yeah, this is great. 
So this is another Drew Tucker masterpiece, a one red summon jackal, which is still a jackal, mind you, has not been changed hmm. to a hound. Hmm. Um, target creature can't be regenerated. Tap target creature can't be regenerated this turn. This is really interesting because this is another one of those Alibaba models, right? Designed to foil a particular strategy. Yeah, it's, 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 it, exactly. It's the Alibaba, except instead of for walls, for creatures with regeneration. So if you're <laughs> right. really annoyed by someone's regeneration tactics, there you go. Cyborg and your Herjackal. I the- mean, I'm, I'm sympathetic to this. Recall in the early days of Magic, yes, you had Terror and Swords to Plowshares, but if you were a Red Mage, you had disintegrate, I guess. That's true. But you didn't have too many ways to deal with a regenerator, and there was a a, a creature enchantment called regeneration in Alpha. <laughs> <laughs> well, in in Ice Age, you have incinerate as, as well, which prevents right. from being yeah as a finisher. But yes, no, that's true. I mean, having uh, abilities that can having tactics or counter tactics for narrow but annoying abilities is actually important in the design of Magic. And her jackal yeah. functions just like Alibaba in that way. It's just, I think I, my criticism is the same. It's unfortunate it couldn't be like a bear, right? Oh, well, yeah, obviously it's an incredibly weak card. If they just added one colorless or one generic and added a power and toughness, this would have been a much more playable card. So, Yeah, I'd like to just add, too, that the geometric pattern in the back of this I, card is far more evocative of Sandra Everingham than it is of Drew Tucker. I was go- He did not use geometric patterns very much like this at all. I'm I'm sorry to interrupt you. I, I'm so glad you made that point, because I was going to point out how unusual this art is. I mean, there's almost a kind of uh, anthropomorphic char- like quality to this, like, you know, like a centaur quality, where you feel like the, 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 his abdomen of the jackal is coming out of the middle of the, of the, of the card frame is almost yeah. humanoid, and then it rises yeah. up like a jackal. And then there's this, so there's two dimensions to this, right? There's the foregrounded figure, and then there's this off-center pattern. This geometric pattern that's a very clear geometry and kind of a compelling geometry. I don't know what it yeah. is about it, but it's 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 interesting to look it at. It is. It's very interesting to look yeah. at. It's not quite a honeycomb, but it's it's just kind of got this mixture of triangles and circles, and it's really compelling. <laughs> I know, and very just very unusual for Drew Tucker's art. Also, the fact that the geometric pattern is in stark contrast to what amounts to a solid color wash in the rest of the background. Like the the whole right third of this card is just a soft red color. The, the composition is with, really unusual, with no, right? With no texture or very little texture, right? The figure is uh, just set. It's just is, bizarre. The figure is kind of set out by this composition, but exactly, yep. it's it's very very unusual. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. Yep. Uh, this next one's an important card. If for no other reason than people will look recognize the art as a, or the, the wrong card. <laughs> yep. And, you know, in a lot of cases. So the If Biff Afrit, which is a 4-mana 3-3 flyer in green for 2GG, and it has the ability for green If Biff colon, If Biff Afrit deals 1 damage to each creature with flying and each player, any player may activate this ability, um, is fascinating. It obviously evokes Cyclone Definitely. It's on got, a 3-3 flyer, yeah. so it, it's way out of color pie for green. In fact, it's so far out of color pie <laughs> that they put this art on the wrong creature in Revised. <laughs> no, I didn't mean to imply causality there. But this the was, art was used in Revised for the Serendibifreet. I will always associate it with Serendibifreet as a result. Yeah. Be- yeah. Because, you know... Which is a shame because this is a really interesting, strange art. It's in fascinating. Green. It's like a, a an, an elf noble of a sort. Who's regard was wearing this this flirt, uh, 
filigree outfit regarding this what i guess is a a bottle or a black hole mirror or something yeah it's it's i mean he's almost like a like you said but, but his eyes are closed or, or, which is bizarre or, it's like or contemplative. Facing down. It, it is it's it's i mean he's almost dressed in kind of a baroque manner he is dressed yeah. in a kind of baroque manner with this like velvet and then this filigree uh and then it almost looks like this genie is where this Afrit is wearing a wig, like a a, a dark wig, <laughs> and contemplating this object in this kind of you know amorphous background with that kind of Dan Fraser effect. This is not a yep. Jesper. Jesper Meifers, in my mind, is associated with these really refined landscapes and and you know not these kind of figure figurative um, imagery. It's just yeah. not Jesper Meifers for me to my, to my mind. It's really different. And also. And it's it's completely against what I see as the flavor of this card. Like the flavor of this card is it's kind of an uncontrollable yeah. creature that any yeah anyone can channel, and it will kill itself if enough people contribute <laughs> mana to it. And, and this this art has nothing to do with that. It, it doesn't. It's bizarre. Speaking of the effect, <laughs> I think the reason I never this card in my group never saw play, or in the tournaments I went to in ninety four ninety five never saw play. Yeah. And the reason is because it's just too easy to kill itself. You can't really yeah. keep this thing alive. If your opponent has three mana, three green mana, they're going to just wipe this thing out at their earliest opportunity. On the flip side, if your opponent doesn't have green mana, this is an incredibly aggressive creature. Because if you put two green mana into it on your turn, they take five damage. Yeah, that's true every turn for four mana. Yeah. So, that's, and if you've got any extra, you can wait till their turn and put another two into it. You could conceivably be doing seven a turn. With this thing, I mean it's, that hits on the the same scale as Force of Nature. <laughs> with with City of Brass, though, there's a lot of green around in in an old school uh, type one, yeah, and and a lot of Birds true. of Paradise out there as well. Unfortunately, well, not for long. <laughs> not with this guy in play, but I mean, yeah, <laughs> fair enough. <laughs> fair enough. Yeah, that that first green activation kind of puts that Birds of Paradise in a bind. <laughs> This is a cool card. I think it should actually have seen more play than it did. Yeah. I, I think. It, there, also, it's kind of a... You, you could do some build-around stuff with it, in a sense, but... Yeah. Like, with flying carpet, right? It might have actually <laughs> just been better if it didn't have flying, because then it, would, it wouldn't destroy itself, you know? So in yeah, some, true. some way, the, the invade, that's, it's, it's an unusual thing to say, but it might have been the case. It's worth noting that flying carpet does not say creature you control, just so you know. Oh, got it. <laughs> the next card is oh my god it's a great card great great image i mean a great image it really is and controversial too very much <laughs> so we're talking of course about island fish jaconius which costs it's it's the big overcosted blue creature in the set it's the sea serpent in the set blue blue right. blue 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 four and you have to pay <laughs> blue 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 during your upkeep to un untap to untap island fish jaconius uh-huh. the island fish and it cannot attack unless the opponent has islands Islands in play. It, it's got the Dan Dan uh, conditionality. Can't attack unless your opponent has right. islands, and it's destroyed immediately if you don't have any islands. So, my God, this is this, a great... This card is, is dense. <laughs> it's a great Jesper Meifers um, uh, card. I mean, it's a landscape, but also a creature, and it's so beautifully rendered in a, in, in a sunset. Yeah, it really is. It's, it's really pretty epic. It's one of only four creatures in the history of Magic that are 6-8 base power and toughness. Yeah. Sylvan Primordial, Gerzigost, and Dread Defiler are the other three. But uh, you hit on the landscape accent, uh, aspect of this, which is meaningful on a couple of different axes, because this creature's original creature type was listed as Summon Island Fish. And 
And the fact that this creature was ostensibly an island to some people created some uproar when Fetchlands were were printed. But it really, the uproar existed before then. It's just the Fetchlands really threw it into relief because a lot of people, pretty firmly tongue-in-cheek, proposed that you should be able to put this creature into play with a polluted delta because it's an island. And, you know, from a flavor standpoint, it is an island. But obviously, by the time that happened, this creature type, this creature no longer had the type island. And it's, that happened long before that. But I, this, that's my favorite association with the island fish is I just want to be able to fetch this with a flooded strand. <laughs> and it's not going to do much. It's because <laughs> it's just going to sit and play tapped and not be able to attack in a lot of cases. But it would be pretty busted to be able to do that. I endorse that, that application. <laughs> now, of course, if it's your first uh, thing, then it will immediately die because you don't have an island in play. So you've got to, you've yeah. got to. That's right. You, yeah. It's a, yeah. At best, it turned two island fish. All right. We're at about the halfway mark here. Next up is Island of Wok Wok, <laughs> which is another one of those great lands that doesn't um, produce mana. And it just says target creature with flying has base power zero until end of turn. This was another concept that. Uh, was it first introduced in this set with the the Sorceress Queen and the Island of Wok, yep. Wok of setting something's power to zero? Yep. Yeah. And this art is interesting, too, because it has a really... Okay, there's no island in this art. Nope. <laughs> it has a person who appears to be ostensibly flying, although it's ambiguous as to whether or not they are or just doing their best Leonardo DiCaprio impersonation. But there's also, strangely, a... Uh, half half literal half implied representation of the taj slash library going with this person in the sky it's this is i don't i don't really know what's going on here is this person (laughs) flying and this image of the library is reducing their power it's kind of inexplicable it really is um it's it's i mean it's a really kind of beautiful figure and it's in a dynamic pose but it's still pretty ambiguous as to what's going on (laughs) yeah you know this was a card that, that that um well, the, the the flavor text says the Isle of Wakwak, home to a tribe of winged folks, is named for mm. a peculiar fruit that grows there. The fruit looks like a woman's head, and when ripe, speaks the word "walk." <laughs> so it doesn't really doesn't really uh, illuminate that, but just cut some enigmatic, mysterious <laughs> phrasing there. Right. Um, this card, you know, was inter- intriguing to me back in the day, but it immediately became boring as soon as Maze of Ith was printed. Oh well, yes, obviously. So. I think it kind of receded into the the past and never really got its due. If Maze had never seen print, I think this card would have seen a lot more play. I love the fact that the first Gatherer ruling from 2004 is, this is not an island. Yes, <laughs> yes. <laughs> need, need to clarify uh, yeah. that. The, the next card is actually a surprisingly powerful card, I have to say. Yeah. Uh, it's Jandor's Ring. It costs six mana, and it's got uh, the... Dan, this beautiful ornate ring in the back of a Dan Fraser swirl. Mm-hmm. It's it's a mono <laughs> artifact. Two mana. Discard a card you just drew from your library and draw another card to replace it. So it's got the it's got that Sylvan Library problem of having to oh, keep yes. track of a card. But um, in the Afrit Jin War that we played a couple months ago, uh, the player who drafted the Necropotence deck out of my uh, PT ninety six decks also secured this from the middle of the board, and he was using this like gangbusters. Um, before he, interesting. I, he had, what he had was he actually got library and this and necropotence. So he was going up to seven, activating library and then using this. Pretty unreal. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, this card is. It, you're right. It's it's a little deceptively powerful. Although the the cost is the is pretty cost, high at six. Yeah. yeah. But um, also this this is a rules nightmare that they want to just distance themselves from the <laughs> if they could go back and not 
make this card this way, they definitely would. Yeah, we never, when I was young and playing the game, we never played this card. We just didn't understand what filtering and looting was good for. Right. I mean, at the time, I was far more interested in, um, um, was the Antiquities Jam Day Tome, but you have to discard Jellum Tome. Jellum Tome. Jellum Tome was, I loved yeah. Jellum Tome. Loved it. I played that card a lot. But that the the how you were supposed to use that card was easier to grok for me. <laughs> right. I mm-hmm. honestly think that this card suffered much like Aladdin's lamp and Aladdin's ring by being reprinted and revised because the mystique yeah. was just taken out of it. It's like, oh, yeah, that's that totally. crap card from from revised that you open your revised pack and you're like, oh god, oh god, yeah, <laughs> yeah. I know. <laughs> it would have been so much cooler if it hadn't been reprinted. Uh, the next card is Jandor Saddlebags, which is again the kind of mirror to Ebony Horse. It's two yeah. mana and three to untap uh, a creature. It's three mana to untap a creature. Um, this cre- card is actually its, its only notable use, in my opinion, is in my Transmute Time Vault deck because ah, nice. Because if you animate, yeah. if you play Animate Artifact on Time Vault, then this becomes the third part of the combo that you can use with. This is the Voltaic key. Yeah, it's the Voltaic yeah. key with Transmute Artifact, and you only need one, and you can transmute for it once you've assembled the combo. So you know. Um- you alluded to before how beautiful this art is. It's almost photoreal. Yes. And it's just incredible. It's really beautiful. Also, I feel like this flavor text is completely out of alignment with the function of this card. <laughs> Go ahead. It says, each day of their journey, Jandor opened the saddlebags and found them full of mutton, quinces, cheese, date rolls, wine, and all manner of delicious and satisfying foods. Like that flavor text really needs a better card because because that, that sounds like a lot of fun. Not just untap a creature. <laughs> I I completely agree. Yeah, that's that doesn't yeah. exactly get you excited, does it? <laughs> <laughs> anyway, this card is beautiful though. If you can, I mean, the original Arabians copies are like looks like eighteen bucks or so, but you can get a pretty plain yeah. one for five or six. Yeah, I had, I had to get one. Really pretty. So we're over the yeah. we're well over the halfway point here. But but what's interesting is that as we go through the last half of the set, it uh you know we're we're six cards over the halfway point. What's interesting as you go through the last is that this last half is dense with great cards. I know it's, the next the next eight cards are <laughs> incredible it's, cards. It's incredible. One after the so other. I'm just gonna step out of the way and let you go off on the next one. Yeah, so next up is Jeweled Bird. This is, okay, this card has a lot of things going on. One, it it is an anti-card. It costs a single mana. It, the first line of the Oracle text is remove Jeweled Bird from your deck before playing if you're not playing for anti. And the ability is tap anti-Jeweled Bird. If you do, put all other cards you own from the anti into your graveyard, then draw a card. And the reason Steve let me go on this one is because this was a staple in the old five-color format, which, ironically, um, LSV referred to in Limited Resources Alpha Review because Alpha has Contract from Below, and Contract from Below and Jeweled Bird went hand-in-hand in in the five-color format. But So this card allows you to basically anti-it on behalf of whatever was in your ante and put whatever you had in the ante into your disc or in your graveyard, and you draw a card to replace this. So. This card is, aside from Contract from Below, which is just brutally broken, this card is actually the next most efficient anti-card. And it's it was subtle because it created some cultural things in the five-color community. Because every deck played four contracts and four jeweled birds, because it was an anti-based format, you would find yourself acquiring your opponent's jeweled birds with regularity. <laughs> Everyone had a stack of jeweled birds. 
which was facilitated by the fact that they were printed in Chronicles, which was actually really good for that format. But it became a subculture of five color to alter the cards in a number of different ways. And having other people's jeweled birds in your deck became a bit of a status symbol because it meant you had beaten them and acquired their jeweled bird, you know. But it also, in a sense, made the format a little bit more economically feasible because jeweled bird was such a cheap card that you could play this anti-based format with otherwise expensive magic cards. We were playing with unsleeved dual lands <laughs> and in certain cases, unsleeved power. And if you anteed your mocks, that sucked a lot, but you had these four jewel birds in your deck with which to kind of buy it back in the middle of a game. And it also was not dependent on you winning or losing. Right. I, it, so, th- so if I could just, I just want to interrupt on that particular yes. point. The most infamous ex- high profile example of that was, oh, was yes. when Kai Buddha won the, the magic invitational by uh, exchanging his his jewel bird for an opponent's card and conceding, and thereby winning the Invitational. <laughs> <laughs> because the conditions for victory in five color as part of the Invitational were tied to the value of cards you won, right. and his play ensured that he would have more value in the ante than his opponent would over the course of their match. And it meant that he, he quote-unquote, won due to card value because he swapped out with Jeweled Bird, which was a cheap card. Yeah, so I have a high, high affinity for Jeweled Bird. I still own a stack of them That's with awesome. all manner of customized arts and stuff. I've seen many of them. They're cool. Yeah, I have ones with Big Bird. It's <laughs> a particular favorites of mine. And so it has a soft place in my heart. It is obviously has no function in Magic today, which is, I don't think, bad, because I think Anti was a tactical error on the part of Richard Garfield. But... I still have a soft spot for all the games of five color I played, all the jewel birds I swapped with friends, and so I have a strong affinity for this card. You probably have more experience. I mean, you're in the point zero zero one percent of Magic players' experience with jewel bird. <laughs> yeah, that's true. I mean, the five color was not a large community you were to on begin the committee. with, and I was for the the banner restri- uh, banner restricted uh, decisions for a while at least, um, and. Obviously, those people who played original Magic for Anti are few and far between at this point. I did play a few games of Magic for Anti back in the late 90s, uh, but it quickly fell out of favor in my playgroup for the same reason it you know, fell out of flavor, favor with basically everyone, which is no, no one wants to lose their yeah. cards. <laughs> and when we were playing casually, just, you know, kitchen table Timmy type stuff, we didn't play with the Anti cards either, except for one stupid occasion. But no, no one had jeweled birds and contract fellows in their deck. We just didn't want to play that kind of yeah. magic. And so I, I think that contributed in a large cultural sense to Anti leaving the game in addition to the legal I issues. I think we set up some house rules if we ever did play with Anti where it was like, you could, like, if you flipped over a card that was worth more than five or ten dollars, then you just flipped up a different card. But yeah. And there were a lot of variations of that kind of mitigating factor in the five color community as well. Cool. Cool history. Uh, the next card is a, a kind of inter- interesting card, Jihad. White, yeah. white, white. Choose a color as long as opponent has cards of this color in play. All white creatures gain plus two, plus one. I'm reading from the card itself, not the <laughs> Oracle sure. text. But this is actually a very powerful crusade effect. For one more mana, you can, as long as your opponent has yeah. a, color, a, a, a colored card in play, a permanent that's non-land, you, you get, your creatures get plus two, plus one. I am actually somewhat surprised that this card isn't going for three to five hundred dollars now. 
because back in the day, this was actually one of the most brutally effective Arabian Nights yeah. cards. Like, yes, a Juzim Jin was a, a potent threat, right? But you know, there was swords to plowshares, right. there was control magic. Jihad was actively hard to answer because if you weren't in white for the disenchants, right. most of the other colors weren't good Can't at answering this it. kind of card. And also, a lot of those answers were slow or sorcery speed. If you just tapped out against someone with a couple of knights and and jackal, well, not jackal pups, uh, savannah lions, this card represented six to ten damage <laughs> right. in one turn. Right. If you've got even in old school today, if you have, for example, a clergy of the holy nimbus, a savannah lions, and a thunder spirit, and you slam this thing right. on turn three or turn four with those, in pl- it's strong in play. It, it, this kid's game over. <laughs> strong. I mean, yeah. that's lethal. Right. And never mind how many of the good white creatures have first strike, so the additional two power is functional both from a damage and from a board presence standpoint, because then yeah. chumping becomes almost impossible against these four and five power first strikers. I mean, even the board I just described with this in play is 11 damage, so. Yeah. This is... I have a lot of respect for this I card. Too. I feared it a lot when I was well, uh, when I was a, young It's playing. not a cheap card. I mean, this goes for over 100 in nice condition, well over, so. Sure. Uh, but it's that's still pretty far down the list in terms of expensive Arabian Nights cards. <laughs> it is a functional rare from the set. So yep. um, I, I just wanted to make a brief comment about the art. I really like the art in here. And one of the reasons I like it is because it's kind of got that like flat East Asian appearance, but it also but yeah. but it has perspective because you have the um you, Yeah, you've got the faded silhouette imagery in the, in the background. Yeah, you can silhouette yeah. and then the, the the kind of clash has got like spears and lances just like you know, arrayed in, and it's just, and I, I love, I love the, the coloring and the decor and the armament. It's just, it's just a really cool piece of art. There's a lot of good detail too. Very. There's a lot of, of, of ring mail going on there. That's well depicted. Very detailed. Yeah. I, I, I really like the art on this. So the next, the next art, we get into kind of our, um, a lot more gins and afrites in the last half. Um, yeah, this is uh this is a card that the art is really, Really cool. I mean, it's not necessarily iconic. Yeah. I'm not going to call it iconic, but it's cool. It's you've got this kind of uh, the June. It's June and a free, which is black, black one. So the same casting cost is a hypnotic specter, and it's a three three flyer. But it has that one little drawback that you have to pay black, black during your upkeep, <laughs> which means that you would want to ritual it out. But it's kind of got the um, what's that card in fourth edition? That's a four one flyer. You have to pay blue in your upkeep. Yeah, illusionary forces. forces. It's got the illusionary Is forces the problem, but it's it's even amplified, right? So yeah. Junin Afrit, I think if it just had a one black upkeep, then you know <laughs> That would be incredible. It would good. have had it would have been a very different <laughs> right? Yeah. Yeah, I agree with everything you've said. The art in this card has always been has always caught my eye. It's very well, it's very um what's the word it, there's a lot going on, but it draws your eye to this flaming fist, <laughs> yeah. right? So it's like it's very action oriented in terms of how you view it. But then you look over at the character, and the character is real dense, complex. You know, this strange musculature, this yes. strange face. And then you look up, and you realize there's flaming horns of a sort. Yeah, it, I I don't like the depiction of the figure's body and body detail because right. it looks. It looks comic book like pet bad. Yeah, anatomy. it looks like nineteen ninety four Jim, like uh, Rob Liefeld or something. Yeah, right. But the composition of the yes. piece and the colors yes. is still very yes. evocative. Even the background colors, the way they contrast with yeah. the, with the foregrounded figure, I completely agree with you. I think that makes it it it, it gives it kind of life. And it's yeah. weird. I mean, in some respects, I almost wonder if the fourth edition version of it is more more so because the 
the white border creates an even stronger contrast, which is kind of weird. They they like they did for most uh, fourth edition cards. They washed out the whole card, including the art. And in this case, it serves to draw the character into greater release yes. because the figure doesn't sink into the background as much as it does in the original, yes. which is darker and more saturated. Totally agree. And then the kind of c- yeah. c- component pieces of the body become more visible and somehow, especially the head. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Interesting. Interesting card. Well, it, at any rate, it's a beautiful it, card. I love looking at it. I never, never played it. Never it. saw play because <laughs> the, the drawback was just too... I mean, it seems silly to say it, but the drawback was just too steep. What you want to do was ritual yeah. something out, and you can't do that. And so it just became a fundamental yep. barrier to seeing play, which was yep. not a problem for our next card. <laughs> <laughs> so, expect my visit when the darkness comes. The night, I think, is best for hiding all. This is the Jews <laughs> Yes, the most iconic magic card of all time. Quite possibly, yes. Uh, five, five for four does one damage to you during your upkeep. Similar to the Urnum Jin, Magic spent the ne- the better part of the next fifteen or twenty years trying to create the next Juzum yes. Jin. Right? Baldovian hordes making. Yeah, they kept making five fives for four, mostly in black, but not always. And they kept trying to recreate this effect, but there's just no substitute for this Mark Tadine art. This just incredibly enormous monster holding this <laughs> yes. tiny human in his in thumb and forefinger with this menacing grin the vi- the and visage, the giant ring in his the nose, visage, the horns, the humongous, <laughs> yeah, the humongous horns that would make the movie Legend jealous. The smoldering red um, smoke in the background. Yeah, the card is just beautiful and it's simple. Yeah, you know, perhaps a bit overpowered for its day, but uh, simple and easy to understand in a sense. Now. Again, as a as a aspiring Timmy back when I learned how to play the game, I was immediately turned off by this drawback. Yes. Right? I was in the, the large swath of the community that said, Oh, I don't want to pay my own life, so I'm not gonna get this card. Uh, you know, much to my chagrin now, but this was just not the kind of card that attracted me, but I still recognize that it's just incredibly beautiful. This this card is uh, <laughs> boy, this card used to kill me all the time. Uh, it, it was just a card you just did not want to see very often. I mean, it, between it and Hypnotic Spectre, this card could come down on turn one so often and just, and just yeah. wipe you out before you could even have an answer, especially if they just went him or sinkhole afterwards. Um, I, I have a little bit of story about this card. So this card yeah. was, when I was playing in 94 and 95 and 96, the most expensive card in Magic. It was actually just more expensive than Black Lotus at a point. Oh, yeah. And it was what eighty to hundred bucks. Well, at the I think time? when like Lotus was like eighty, this card was like one hundred twenty-five to, and then when Lotus okay. got to one hundred twenty, this went up to two hundred. And you know, I never owned this card back in the day. And a bunch because I played Control and mostly I played Blue White right. Control and not that it was a kind of a the deck type thing that I independently developed. I didn't know about Weissman at the time, and and I built a Blue White Control with I had two Sarah Angels and one Mahamodi in my deck. And um, a lot of one of my friends, a number of my friends, actually had Juzem decks. And those were always really fun battles, but I never owned them. I just, they were out of, you know, I owned power, I had all the power, but I'd never owned Juzum <laughs> because it was just, it was like an extra step beyond, you know, it's like, I can afford power, I can't afford Juzums. <laughs> it was a little bit frustrating. <laughs> so in 2000, I was um, visiting uh, graduate schools and I saw at a local store a Juzum for 125 I was like, man, I've never owned a Juzum. I really would, maybe I should get it. I ended up not getting it. But uh, about three, maybe 2000, 
2014 or 2015, I tweeted a famous tweet, now famous, <laughs> where <laughs> yes. you even know what I'm talking about. Oh, absolutely. And I, I said, I, I'm, I'm looking to trade my four Tarmogoyfs for four Juzums. And Star City Games and a number of other uh, online formats said the exact same price for Juzum Gen as my, is the uh, future side Tarmogoyfs. And no one took me up. LSV replied to me and said, boy, if I had those, I would do it. If I had Juzums, I would do that trade. And I, yeah. I, and no one took me up, so I went on eBay, sold my Tarmogoyfs, and then bought Juzums. And I actually bought them for <laughs> cheaper than I sold the Tarmogoyfs for, so I made out on it. And I got, you know, near mint Juzums, which I owned. And I, unfortunately, I've just, I've never played with them yet. But for the first, because I, you know, I just haven't <laughs> built, I mean, I've loaned them out, but I've never had a chance to play with my Juzums. But I sit there and just, you know, pet them, stare at them admiringly. Uh, because I never owned them back in the day and I finally owned them. And now, you know, now if I got rid of them, I would probably not be able to, I just, it would be absor- exorbitant to pick them up when I even don't play them, you know? So, oh, of course. Yeah. Uh, the last really expensive card I got was, um, I got a, a like a tabernacle at 500, uh, a couple tab. I mean, I own one and I got two more uh, about two years ago or a year and a half ago. And now they've doubled in price. And, and Juzam is right. Ju- now the Juzam is like, I don't know. Star City Games is sold out for a thousand. And Tarmogoyf, uh, the future site, ta- future site Tarmogoyf is selling, uh, on Star City Games sold out at $99. So, <laughs> so what you're saying is you have chosen wisely. Yeah. I made the exchange at the right time. <laughs> but it, it is, it is really fun owning Juzams, even if you're not playing with them. It's fun though. I, I, but it, but it's, it, it's just what I'm trying to say is that for a long, long, long time, you know, for several years, it was the most expensive card in Magic, even more than Black Lotus, and 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 it held that value and remarkably for a decade. Like I said, up to two thousand, it was still. I mean, it was still one hundred fifty dollars. I thought one hundred twenty-five dollars. That's a good deal. Um, and then it kind of dr- drifted up to two hundred and stayed there until old school. And then they, now it's exploded. But. Interesting. So also interesting is that in the last two hours, Rich Shea tweeted quite um, ironically that. Today I learned Juzam Jin's flavor text is actually from a strikingly beautiful love poem. Huh. <laughs> and he, he links to the wiki page for a poet named Walada Bint Al-Mustakfi. So it's not actually from Arabian Nights. <laughs> Mustakfi. Uh, apparently not, although I, I, haven't, I don't have time to read this whole entry right now, yeah. so I can't say what the connection is. But uh, for those of you who are interested, take a look at either Rich Shea's Twitter or look up the, the poet. Walada bint al mustakfi. Interesting. <laughs> so, I'll have to keep reading this after we're done after recording. That, it's on the, on the to-do list. Yep. There well, you go. You know, we could spend a long time talking about Juzum Jin, but uh, it's it's heavily played in in necro decks, in pre necro decks, in old school decks, in black weenie decks, yeah. in anything with dark rituals. I think considered the number one creature in that 1996 unauthorized uh, type one deck a book I have. I think it was considered the number one creature in the game. Um, so right. there you go. And it's the most, in my opinion, the most iconic image, but, um, you know, there are a number of, yeah, com- I, I think that's number- true. There's a number of competitors, yeah. but yeah. Well, the next card we've got is Cabal Ghoul, which is, uh, three mana black and two generic. It's a one, one, but here's the, here's the trick. He's, is he our first growing creature? Well, I know send vampire is our first growing creature, but he's got the send vampire clause. So except not uh, better, better, than that. right. It's whenever yeah. a creature dies, he gets a plus one plus counter at the end of turn. Yeah. Now, I love this card, 
and it's for the reason that I played a couple copies in my Hell's Caretaker deck that I alluded to earlier. And because this art is so awesome. It's amazing. Uh, It's just so... I don't know how... How would you describe it's, this it's, art? It's a skeleton figure, it, but it's like a skeleton well, spirit. Well, I would say it's a, it's a skeleton head with a, a, a tiny vest <laughs> around some, it looks like tentacles just floating floating yeah. in, dar- in dark space. And it's it's so high contrast. You know, the skeleton's head is actually, it looks like it's somewhat brightly lit, but the background is entirely right. black, which is unusual for it's a like magic card of in command, this era. dark. Exactly. <laughs> and so I was immediately in love with this art when I first saw it. And then... I actually learned of this card after I had my uh, Hell's Caretaker deck already built and and, and operating. <laughs> so I was like, oh, geez, I'm doing this already. I should have one of these. Uh, so I, I have, That's I don't remember how many copies I still have, so, but but I loved this card so much. So uh, just, just so the Hell's Caretaker combo, if you were like, for example, to use Trich of Skellion, to ping your opponent twice and then ping itself, it dies. This gets plus one, yeah. plus one, then you bring it back, and then you just can re... Right, by sacrificing another creature. Because the Hell's Caretaker swaps two creatures. Yeah. It doesn't reanimate, it swaps them. Oh. So I was always losing my own creatures. But the deck was filled with things like Ruck Eggs, which you haven't got to yet, but things that gave me value when they died. Um, That's super anyway, cool. It wasn't th- this, was in the, this was in the late 90s, so it was around... It was after Ice Age, because I had Ashen Ghouls. I had Nether Shadows. Um, anyway, but I just was really attracted to this card, both visually and functionally, and it's I still love it. It's visually amazing. It's amazing. It's I, yeah, it's probably it really in my is. top ten visual images from the set as well. It's pretty close to a playable card today too. I mean, if it was printed today, it would, might be a two-two, but this is close to something you would print. I think there are creatures with abilities very similar to this in the last few sets. I just don't remember which ones. Yeah, it's. I, I just. I, I mean, obviously, I, I don't remember actually anyone playing this card, um, but okay. I remember seeing it. So I think people were trading yeah. for it. You know, and interested in it, but I don't remember actually seeing it on the battlefield in front of me. Yeah. But the next card, so the I next actually card played is, with quite uh, a bit. And in f- I, I never did, but that's because my friends didn't have enough for Freaks and Jins. <laughs> but we're talking about King Suleiman, yes. who is a one white for a one one tap destroy target Jin or a Freaks. So Keep I, go. <laughs> well, I already mentioned that I play blue white control back in the day, and I actually have rebuilt yeah. the the deck in my uh in, on, in my notes, but uh. I never left home without this card. So I, I always had a <laughs> pair of these cards in my sideboard, 100% of the time. Every tournament I yep. went to, I would have two or three of these, three, two or three of them between my main deck and sideboard. Sometimes I'd even run one main deck and two in my board because I faced, I wow. faced a Freets and Gins just so darn often. Like I said, my, my friends, they either played Serendib decks or Juzum decks. And some, and I don't remember really seeing Urnum decks that much, but they were there. And I just, they were just ubiquitous. So. It, this card did major, major work for me. He was like, he was the number one card my opponents hated seeing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, because, yeah, I mean, this is just brutally efficient against some of the most brutally efficient creatures that came out of this set, so I can see why. I was never in that competitive kind of metagame. My friends didn't, I mean, didn't play a lot of Jins and Afrit, so I just looked at this card and thought, yeah, that's cute. Yeah. And moved on. Another one that would definitely be a legend by today's standards, right? Yeah. No, it's true. And and I remember when I got back into Magic, which is funny, because I, I, I quit. The main reason I quit Magic is because I, I love Type 1, and they phased out Type 1. And, I, and, and shortly after Alliances, I played in the Alliances pre-release. I couldn't find any Type 1 competition, and all my friends stopped playing, or they drifted to Type 2. Mm. Uh, there were a couple people who continued playing Type 1 into 1997, but after that, they stopped. And I was just frustrated with that. And so when I got back into Magic in 2000 and re-encountered it, 
I saw there was a card called Suleiman's Legacy. Legacy. That was like, yep. was it white red? And it was similar to this, except it, it, it was more of like a city in a bottle type where they couldn't be played. Yes. I was like, whoa, yes. whoa, like this is even better than King Suleiman. <laughs> you know, and then I realized that no one actually played Jins and Afrits anymore. Uh, but, <laughs> but, but yeah, King Suleiman was, he definitely did a lot of work for me. And, uh, and you know, when I, when I quit, I kept a page of cards and the cards I kept were, my Alpha and Beta Sarah Angels, even though that uh, Sarah Angel, uh, Sarah Angel, Alpha, you couldn't play with Alpha. I just kept it as a collector. Uh, a King right. Suleiman, and I had an Aladdin's Lamp in there with 55. And I had a few other cards, but th- <laughs> this was one of the cards I kept in, in a, you know, up in a closet somewhere, even when I wasn't playing Magic or quit. It's a cool card. One of my favorites. Well, speaking of cool cards, this next one is one that may numerically speaking, may be the most played card from Arabian Nights in all of Magic's history. Yes. Don't you think? It's so fundamentally important to the game, it's hard to even overestimate that. I mean, it's, its role, its very basic functional role in the game is so elemental, so fundamental, that it's hard to even describe it. But go ahead. Yeah. We're talking, of course, about Curd Ape. Red for a 1-1, summon Ape, which is still also an Ape by today's standards, but Curd Ape gets plus one, plus two, as long as you control a forest. Right. This as was the gold standard for beatdown creatures across many archetypes and formats and decks and years. <laughs> it's been reprinted several times, um, several promos, ninth edition from the vault, dual decks, and most recently in Eternal Masters. And it was just the... Uh, the the gold standard, if you couldn't beat the Kurt Ape, <laughs> yeah. you know, Taiga into whatever follow-up it was, you, your deck should basically just go <laughs> yeah. home. I mean, it, it's the core of the Zoo deck for over half a decade. And and part of the reason why it was called Zoo was of, because it started right, with these apes. Right, started with these apes. <laughs> you know, when I was writing my History of Vintage series, I was finding players to interview who played Magic before the institution of the ban and restricted list in January, late January of 1994. And some of the players I would talk to, like Rudy Edwards and so on, they would say, you know, you know, there were a lot of deck designs that you could template uh, that you couldn't actually build. They were absurd, you know, like the the thirty <laughs> lotuses and you know the the twenty nine time twisters, thirty lotuses and one brain guys or whatever, right? You couldn't actually, right. you know, Very, 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 very few people, if anyone, could ever actually build that. But what you could build right. was a deck that had, you know, fifteen curd apes and fifteen lightning bolts. And, and and seven <laughs> taigas and the rest islands and, and, and forests. That was actually something people could build and did build and was yeah. actually just insanely good, like basically unbeatable. <laughs> you know, and, and uh, the Lestray school, I mean, he, he, he it's unfortunately he had the Curtis on the sideboard, but the Zudex for the mid to late 1990s were just the best deck in type one. They beat the, the deck and the Necro decks in all the highest, most competitive events. And Kurt Ape is the is the, the the beating heart of that deck, and I think there was even a point in Legacy, Kevin. I'm I'm trying to remember this. Maybe like in the mid 2000s or late 2000s, where there was like a deck called St- with Step Links, and I think Kurt Ape was even played in that at one point. So he even had had a yeah. late renaissance, if you will. Uh, and he's certainly heavily played in old school today. He is definitely one of the top ten greatest creatures uh, in 1996. Uh, uh, you know, Magic. He would be in the top ten for sure, sitting there with you know Hypnotic Specter, Juzum Jin, and Urnum. And Kurdip was banned and extended wow. for a while. Wow. Yeah, I had forgotten. Similar that. to like the Juggernaut ban in in Vintage. 
and his reprinting in in um, Revise was really responsible for making him everywhere. Yeah, that too. <laughs> yeah, everyone had tons of copies of Curd Ape, and it was so good that people loved it. What a it. cool card. It's, it's a card yeah. that pushes you again into multiple colors, so you get that kind of core green-red, and that's that's the defining... <laughs> the Taiga deck, is the, is the this is why. It's Curd Ape. Right, and so Curd Ape was, was reimagined color shifted into loam lion that's it the loam lion deck yeah. the same the same card in white with all the same text and abilities plus one plus two as you control a forest but at the time this was in world wake yeah and some other stuff happened in world wake that made well, loam lion it... not quite as relevant oh. <laughs> <laughs> right because <laughs> <laughs> they also stupidly you know created jace the mind sculptor and uh stoneforge mystic and a few other things at about that time but I think the best the best uh, ancestor of Curd Ape is Wild Nikava, yes. right? Yeah. Which is still occasionally played in modern and, and obviously ups the power level even further. Yep. Speaking of power level. Oh, jeez. Yeah. So my, my vote for probably my favorite card of this set, when you take into account all of the casual play and the competitive play and, and the mystique around it, and that's Library of Alexandria. Uh, needs no introduction, really. Why it taps for mana is beyond me <laughs> when you compare it to the rest of the lands in this set. It is right? kind of puzzling. Yeah, by comparison, Island of Lockwalk should tap for five. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, yeah, I mean, library is is the be all and end all. It's the it's the the standard candle for card draw in a lot of sense, and it's the thing that still warps the vintage metagame to this day. It's interesting. Library was not restricted in the initial Ben and Restricted List announcements, or even the second one. It was restricted mm-hmm. after Antiquities was released. Um, and th- there are recorded decks of decks with four libraries. Um, so it- it's interesting. I mean, it's just, I think it's that's when people really began to understand the power of card advantage. And Library was yeah. largely responsible for that. It's iconic, iconic then and iconic now. In your research, did you ever find library decks with candelabras? Because um, <laughs> <laughs> I wouldn't wanted to do that once I figured C- it out. Candelabra, interestingly enough, was restricted with library, but but no, I didn't. That not not no, causally. Not causally. In <laughs> yeah. fact, candelabra was was restricted because of um, its abuse in kind of mana flare type decks. So yeah. Well, I'm on record saying that I want to play in a vintage format that that offers four libraries. I, I, I want to see unrestricted. I would library. love that as well. I mean, we've in, in podcast. You know, we this is that's one of those close cards that over the years the metagame would seem very conducive to unrestricting it, and then at other times it would seem very powerful, like overly powerful. Yeah. And at certain points in our podcast history, we've recommended that, and in other points, we've shied away from it. And I know a lot of people think that's just lunacy. A lot of people have said that they don't want to be involved in that format. They think, you know, one library is already game breaking in in vintage matches today. And I believe that's true, but I believe well, that there's a workshop decks would have sitting uh, in a bottle on the sideboard in a heartbeat if library was on. Yeah, and also there's there's this co-orbital relationship between library and wasteland. Right. If you had access to four libraries, then decks would be more incentivized to run five wastelands, and the the format would shift. And I think you would reach an equilibrium whereby four libraries was not correct. And we've talked about the reasons why in terms of its effect on your own mana base. And I think we would reach a yeah we'd reach a point where decks played a, a few libraries, two to three, and most decks had a few answers, you know, two to four answers, and it would be okay. I think it would be. 
you would still see certain games that would be dominated by library, but the, the I think the format could right. adjust. I mean, like City in a Bottle would would be a much better card. <laughs> see a lot more play. Yeah, that's true. And the in and the splash hate for Dredge would be very welcome from a workshop standpoint. Yeah. So yeah, there's a lot. There'd be lots of downstream impacts from that, but I actually believe the format could handle it. The fact that the card is going up on a thousand dollars now is just further evidence that's never going to yeah. happen i mean it, it really depends on the environments and when you have like a heavy gush environment you know w- w- when there's a lot of control decks when you're more in like a post return to ravnica environment where there's a lot of black green control decks library becomes much much yeah. better but if you're in like a really fast yeah. environment like maybe some of the faster gush environments or some of the like gifts or like tps environments of the late 2000s then then library is yeah. less less of a concern yeah I agree. Right now might not be the best time, but I, I couldn't have said it better. Our next card is really an oddity, and it's an unfortunate oddity. It's Magnetic <laughs> Mountain, and I'll tell you why it's an oddity. Uh, it's it's Red Red 1, and... Okay, go ahead with the Oracle text. Uh, blue creatures don't untap during their controller's untap steps. At the beginning of each player's upkeep, that player may choose any number of tapped blue creatures he or she controls and pay four, that is four generic, for each creature chosen this way. If that player does, untap those creatures. So this is a, a red color hoser for blue, right? A permanent paralyze for all blue right. creatures. Except blue obviously has the weakest creatures in many respects. So it's it's it, the reason this card is a little bit of an oddity is because it's so narrow, right? It's like... Yeah, well, yeah. they were not afraid to make color hosers that were really narrow and really harsh in the, in right. the 90s. But it is. It's a paralyze for the whole team. And uh, yeah. the Magnetic Mountain, though, it, you know, the... the even though it might be a top-down design, the effect does not necessarily reflect what the title or the image is doing. I have always wondered about what the tie was between magnetism and tapping blue creatures. <laughs> I I mean, in the art, it shows several weapons, Flying towards some cutlery, and, a, and an anchor on a chain. <laughs> um, so maybe it's the blue, the piracy, you know, ship-related elements. Because these are all kind of mm. ship-related things for mm. the most part. But man, that's a tenuous, that's a tenuous reach. Right. I've never, I've never seen this card in play. Have you? Never. Well, I, I take it back. In the okay. Agenda Freak War, it's one of the one of the traps, and yeah, oh. <laughs> and it, that's it's unfortunate because there's so few blue creatures. Um, some people who yeah. play the Agenda Freak War have errated it to say uh, all creatures that an opponent, an opponent. Whoa. Yeah, I think yeah, that makes it much more interesting. Good. That's way different. Uh, this next card is one that I have kind of a soft spot oh, for. Yeah. I always thought this card was so cool. It's Merchant Ship. For a blue, it's an O2. Merchant ship can't attack unless defending player controls an island, which stands to reason. Whenever merchant ship attacks and isn't blocked, you gain two life. And when you control no island, sacrifice merchant ship. When I first saw this card, I was totally enamored with the top-down mm-hmm. design of it. I thought, how cute. It's just a little ship that you send out. And if it, if it makes its way back, you get two <laughs> life. <laughs> um, I've never seen this card in play in my life. <laughs> I can't. I can't say that I have either. Uh, but the Tom Vonerstan Strand art is is really compelling as well. It's really satisfying. <laughs> I like it. And once again, it's got the Taj slash library in the background. Yeah, it reminds me of. Um, it reminds me of some of the 19th century paintings I've seen at the Frick. You know, and that kind of like that kind of uh, naval style. You know, like the post Napoleonic. Yeah. It's, but it's it's simplified and and kind of really iconic as a result. It's also a little strange to me, and I'm sure this was intentional, but all of the buildings in the second layer of the art behind the ship are without right. color. They're washed out. That's strange. It is, it, but it, it makes the background <laughs> bl- yellow sky and the, the ship just stand out yeah. so much more. 
yeah they pop that's really interesting yeah this is the kind of card that i would want to um put in an edh deck if i could make ship tribal or something you want to know something funny this is summon ship the current oracle is creature human (laughs) it makes no sense i think i heard that i gotta be honest there is not a human depicted in this art anywhere there's nothing human about this and the whole thing is about the boat how in the world did we land that creature human (laughs) oh well yeah obviously i guess they must mean that it's being it's being crewed by humans anyway i love this card it's cute i've never never played it i don't even own one (laughs) (laughs) next is metamorphosis this is part of kind of a subset of cards even starting in alpha with sacrifice that allowed you to translate sacrificing creatures directly into mana it's and this is very closely related to sacrifice it's weird that it's a sorcery and not an interrupt though because sacrifice is an interrupt and this is a sorcery um, all those yeah. things that you sacrifice a creature for mana usually be- are interrupts, so I'm not sure what's up with that. But Well, I don't know either, and this art is gruesome. Yeah, <laughs> it really is. <laughs> it's this, this woman becoming a snake becoming a woman. I don't, I don't know which direction we're going, but uh, wow. Yeah, it's wild. I never, I, well, hold on. Let me try to think. I think at one point I tried to make a metamorphosis deck when I discovered that Ruck Egg was a thing, but it yeah, never Yeah, I can never recall anyone playing it either. Yeah. The next card, though, I can recall people trying, and oh yeah, this is the how do how would you pronounce this? Majay Jin. Yeah, I was always said Majay. The Majay Jin is infamously red, 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 and it's six <laughs> three. And there's there's a there's a parallel version of this card. Uh, the Yidwin yep, Afrit. The Yidwin Afrit. Uh, if you choose to attack with with it, you have to flip a coin. Uh, if you lose the flip, uh, he is tapped but doesn't attack. So <laughs> the Oracle text says, "Remove it from combat and tap it." There you it. go. So basically, he's a three. He's a basically a three, three for three, right? Right? <laughs> yeah, of. kind of. Yeah. <laughs> it's noteworthy that these, this, the Majajin and the Yidwin Ifrit are mirror images of each other in a functional sense. Each one of them, though, gets a kind of benefit if you use its alternate mode. Meaning, the Yidwin Ifrit has a very similar text. It says, "When it blocks, flip a coin." If you lose the flip, you remove it from combat, and it can't block this turn. Um, so the Yidwinafrit is 3-6, which is bad at blocking. The Majajin is 6-3, which is bad at attacking. But if you use them for their other mode of sorts, you get no penalty. Right. So if the Yidwinafrit right. attacks, th- that's just a, a generic 3-6. Yeah, the Majajin is a good blocker at 6-3. So I, in my opinion, the Yidwinafrit is actually the better <laughs> yeah. deal. Because it's an it's an aggressive Why? creature with no drawback, basically. That is a, a keen observation, and I doubt I would have appreciated that when I was fourteen. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I'm in the same boat. I never actually played with either of these creatures because I looked at the coin and, flipping, and it's one of those things that that I completely bounced and off. Maybe of. they should have reprinted Yidwin instead of Majay and revised, because as you said, it's just better. Yeah. So yeah, it's just a way better card, and it's Drew Tucker. Well, the next card is is finally uh, one of these like you know less well-known cards that I definitely had seen play. Morse Calvary is actually a card I played with for a very brief period of time in 1994. Um, Yeah, Yeah. I I played with... I had a... a, one point I had a a white, mid-range white deck that had Angry Mob from the Dark, and (laughs) I had uh, had Morse Calvary and Crusade. um, And yeah, I I played with this, and uh, I mean, it's it's just one of the more efficient cards. I mean, one of the more efficient... You know, War Elephant is four mana for a 2-2. For four mana here, you get a three-three. Yeah. So with trample, and when when you start packing in crusades and things like that, it actually can deal some significant damage. So, um, yep, this was 
This so, is a card I've seen play. I've, yeah. I've seen, and not only have I played it, but I've seen it play in other other decks. Um, just want to reiterate that Damian Willich here was really committed to his craft of the orange color scheme <laughs> because this is the fourth of El Hajaj, Erg Raiders, Jandor Saddlebags, and now Moorish Cavalry that have the same exact color palette. It. He also did Ebony Horse, but it doesn't have the same and, orange. And like like Ebony Horse and Jandor Saddlebags, it is really hyper realistic. I mean, you've got incredible yeah. rendering. It looks great. It's, it really is nice. Yeah. yeah. the The next card is one of the weirdest cards in the set. <laughs> basic basic mountain. mountain with the sword the scimitar <laughs> yeah the kind you didn't want in play for a couple of decades because of city <laughs> exactly <laughs> <laughs> um yeah the, the basic mountain for those who don't know and i imagine many of you do but uh, it was a mistake basically it it's owes to the fact that arabian nights was meant to be a standalone set not an expansion so when they originally drafted the set it had all five basic lands in it and Another one of the errors, like the ones in the mana cost coloration and fonts, was the fact that they forgot to remove Mountain from the from the print sheet. And so the set was inadvertently printed with only one basic land in it, this Mountain. And that's just a, a holdover from its original intentions as a set. It's still a, quite expensive for a basic land, though. Well, it's, it's, I mean, it's got that Alpha Doug Schuler art, one of the, the three. And it, it's beautiful. Yep. I mean, there's no two ways about it, it. It looks fantastic, and now they get more and more expensive. And it's every also day. nicer now that uh, sitting in a bottle does not kill it. So it's actually oh yeah, it got way more way popular. more functional. Uh, <laughs> yeah. The next card is Naf's Asp, which is a one mana Stompy card. Uh, it's a one mana one yeah. one, but when it inflicts damage, your opponent has to spend one before the draw phase of his or her next turn or lose an additional light. So it's kind <laughs> of in that sweet spot as a kind of what would you call it like a Kind of a weird jackal pup type card, or a uh, yeah, Gazban ogre, or what are some what are some of the other? Uh, well, Savannah Lions is the prototype, yeah. right? What's that but, green creature? There's another green stompy creature that that's a two one that I is there dogs a wild dogs or something? Wild dogs, yeah, the cycler from yeah. Saga, yeah. There's been a long history. Matenda lion, yeah. yeah. If this would be this one's actually this is actually somewhat cl- close historically to Matenda lion because that one also asks them to pay mana. Got it. I was just going to say that if this had been printed later, it might have been, it might have dealt damage and poison as opposed to yeah. uh, life. That's a good point. Yeah. Um, this card has very weird mechanics. I think this might be the only card that is like this. I, I could be wrong, but the, the Oracle text says, whenever Naf's Asp deals damage to a player, that player loses one life at the beginning of his or her next draw step unless he or she pays one before that draw yes. step. So you have this Delayed. window of time yeah. yeah, between that the NAS ass being, dealing damage and then their next draw step where they can pay one at any point in that time and this card just tracks that. That's really unusual. Right, so they could do it on your end step or or their upkeep. Their upkeep or, or just at the end right. of combat or during your second main phase. Is that how phase. it's intended to work? It's so weird. Well, yeah, at any time. So, like, you could go to your second main phase and cast a spell, and they could be like, in response, pay one colorless to your next. You delayed trigger, yeah. <laughs> Bizarre. It's so weird. It's I, so weird. I don't know that I've ever played it that way, but I don't remember. I remember, th- I think this card may have seen play in some st- weird stompy deck somewhere, but yeah. I, I don't recall the specifics. Uh, you know, I was just reminded when I was looking at Oasis... Uh, that was reprinted in 4th edition. But I just remembered that the Moorish Cavalry was, I think, the third card that was reprinted in Time Spiral with its original art, and that's its only reprinting. 
So similar to the Flying oh, Men. Oh, Morse Calvary, yeah. Yeah, is in Time Spiral as its only reprint. Hmm. Anyway, but that doesn't mean anything. Oasis is a land that was reprinted in fourth and not since. It doesn't produce mana and it taps to prevent the next one damage that will be dealt to target creature this turn. So it's another top-down it's, design of the lands in the Middle East. It's the flip side of desert. So yeah. it's the there's a lot of cards that are paired in this set. You, we've mentioned we haven't mentioned all of them. We mentioned quite a few. Right. We mentioned Majajin and Yidwin Afrit. Yep. We've mentioned Oasis and Desert. The one we haven't mentioned, and we're getting to it, is uh, is uh, Jaha- as Piety and Army of Allah. Right. Which right. are the opposites of each other, almost the opposites of each other. Um, so quite a few effects like that. So it's less of a cycle and more pairings. <laughs> yeah. Next up is a personal favorite of mine, the Old Man of the Sea. This card oh is so God. cool. Oh, um, it's great. And it used to see play in Vintage. A and lot. It, it, it might, again, in some alternate future, but it seems less likely day, day in and day out. But that was, this is another top-down design. It's a one blue-blue for a 2-3 summon Marid. <laughs> or Merid. I don't actually know yeah. how you pronounce it. Now it's a Jin. Which is strange to me, but weird. Uh, you may choose not to untap old, old Man of the Sea during your untap step. Tap gain control of target creature with power less than or equal to Old Man of the Sea's power for as long as Old Man of the Sea remains tapped, and that creature's power remains less than or equal to Old Man of the Sea's power. After after the restriction of Gush in two thousand and three, until the unrestriction of Gush in two thousand seven, this card was basically a vintage staple. Yeah, I loved uh, because, it during that period. I mean, we played it in like every sideboard. We played it yeah. in like blue control sideboard, like control slaver, or you name it. We yeah. played it in gift sideboard. We played it in doomsday sideboard. I mean, like every mono blue sideboard. It was just the go-to card for dealing with null rod based aggro control fish decks. Yeah. I mean, there was nothing else you could do, and that was the perfect solution, because you take their creature, you block their attacker, and they can never get through. And this thing is a 2-3 by itself. Right. So they can never launch their assault on you with this card. It was just, And it was just the perfect wall. <laughs> those decks played of- such weak creatures back then, those blue-red null rod decks. Their oh creature God, base was so bad. It was like spike tail hatchling. <laughs> yeah. Anyway. It's, it was it was the perfect solution. And uh, yeah, I mean, we played this card in all... And then you could even steal things like Ophidian. Or whatever. I mean, it was just yep. or Goblin Welder. Goblin Welder. Yep. Yeah, card was really good. Yeah, some, someday this card may see a resurgence in vintage. Uh, in old school, I really like it against uh, White Weenie. Uh, obviously, sure. it's great there. Um, but yeah, it's. I mean, this is one of the higher value cards in the set for a good reason. Yeah, has a bit of a weakness to Crusade in that context, unfortunately, because of this uh, clause that the creature's power can't ever exceed the old man's power. <laughs> right. This card got a lot better when they printed equipment. If you're in a, a ca- more casual context, like EDH or something, if you put a sort of fire and ice on this thing, it gains a lot more utility. Good point. Yeah. Next up is a cool card. This is just oh, a cool yeah. card. This is the Oubliette, which is, you <laughs> yes. know, the, the black version now of what you would call like a Oblivion Ring. Right. But when it's a... <laughs> It's an enchantment for one BB. When Oubliette enters the battlefield, exile target creature and all auras attached to it. Note the number and kind of counters that were on that creature. <laughs> when Oubliette leaves the battlefield, return that exiled card to the battlefield under its owner's control, tapped, with the noted number and kind of counters on it. If you do, return the other exiled cards to the battlefield under their owner's control attached to that permanent. <laughs> 
So it's yeah. you know, the model for Oblivion Ring, but back in the day, Magic was very concerned about if you set a creature aside, it should keep all right. of its characteristics, so it kept Ta- its auras Tano's, and counters. But Tano's Coffin did not, unfortunately, yeah. and so it creates, and it allows you to grow trikes, you know, really big <laughs> as a result. But the, yeah. uh, the printed wording on this card includes the word hence, <laughs> which I just love. Love it. <laughs> love it. Yeah, this, oh. I mean... For for mono black decks who need to remove a creature, um, obviously they have terror, mm-hmm. but this can this can really help you in the mirror. And so this is a kind of card I picked this up a couple years ago from you know for my mono black deck, which I've never played. But it would be it's a sideboard card for the mirror. Yeah, you know it's probably one of the best you can play. This card has recently exploded in price because it has never been reprinted, and because it's a common, it's useful in pauper. So it could be repl- reprinted. It's not on the reserve list, it's right? It's not reserved. It could be reprinted in in, Ma- in Masters 25, for all we know. Wow, and, that would be cool. And it might be. But uh, yeah, now it's like a 30 or $40 common. And it's got a, an amazing art. I mean, oh, it's, yeah. it's, it's, it's simple, but it's really... I mean, you know, it's like Cask of Amontillado yeah. terrifying. Yeah, you know, it's the composition like- <laughs> is perfect. And, yeah. yeah. <laughs> it's actually really subtle if you look at the oh, art. Oh, my God. The light coming through the yeah. grates... Is 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 on the it's, the skull? It's it's oh my god! It's true, and it also is bending. It's it's, it's expressionistic. Yeah, this is a very expressionistic card because it, the light bends in a kind of theatrical way. Yeah, it's wow! It's great. It's it really great. is. It's just beautiful. It's so evocative. It's just yeah, love it. Well, the next one is is piety, which we we alluded to, yeah. which is uh, three mana, uh, white and two two generic instant. All defending creatures gain plus zero plus three. Tell him turn. I've never seen this played, and it's pretty bad. <laughs> but but it's uh, but you know, I suppose if you have a, a big defense, this, you know, I, I will say though, when I was building my white decks in 1994, one card that I really liked, the only really defensive card I liked besides Maze of Ith, righteousness. Um, absolutely, <laughs> you you beat me to it. I loved I loved righteousness because it was so big. Yeah, you know, and it's so cheap, and no one ever saw it coming. It, it was just, just functionally removal, you know? I did not know that Righteousness was reprinted in Heroes vs. Monsters, the dual deck. That's funny. <laughs> I just looked that up. Yeah, I I remember really enjoying Righteousness for the reason you said, because it was so big. It's like one mana to plus seven, plus seven. That's got to be good, right? And the other reason was it's because the art was so understated, because it looked like a banalish hero just being reverent and being rewarded with so much power and toughness for it, as I right. thought Righteousness was a sweet card. But this card, Piety, I mean, the art is nice. You know, I do actually like the art, yeah. you know, but, uh, you It's know, not very impressive. It's, <laughs> it's not It's not anything to take home. The card is bad. Yeah. Just bad. And, uh, you know, the art isn't good enough to make it, you know, it's above average art for the set, but the set is full of great art, so. Uh, the the next, next card is awesome. It really is. It's so strange and interesting at the same time. It's a uh, six mana pyramids, so it's really expensive. But it is an interesting anti land destruction effect. So for two mana, and it's a poly artifact, meaning you can use it more than once. <laughs> you can prevent. That's funny. <laughs> you can prevent a land from being destroyed or remove an enchantment from any land. So ostensibly, it would be pretty good against land destruction, which were very popular strategies back then. I mean. I, my opponents would play stone rains and sinkholes and strip mines all the time. The problem is, of course, the six mana means you're never going to be able to get to cast this against your land destruction opponent. Yeah, and you know this 
the the current um, oracle wording on this card is is funny in how unusual it is not not ter- terribly unusual but it's an activated ability that's modal and there's actually not that many of those in magic there's plenty of sorceries and instants and there's a lot of triggers but there's just not that many activated abilities that are modal interesting so you have to choose one or the other yeah yeah well, I think this card is awesome. I mean, it's also the art is very, I think, impressionistic. You said for Oubliette it's, it's, applies here this, too. This is, this is, I would call this cubist. Would you? I mean, the, yeah, well, I mean, the, it's super geometric. Yeah. And it's geometric in a way that is not designed to be realistic. Yeah. It's like the, the horizon line looks like a, um, a, uh, a Mondrian painting. <laughs> you know, it's like this, like, uneven line. Yeah. You know, and then the pyramids themselves don't really even look like pyramids. They're just, I mean, the 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 lines are just—they're not just, right, and they're not physically not. They're yeah, their relationship to one another is not actually possible. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's it's a it's I think it's a, I think it's very cubist, and uh, it, it's very very much like a a, a Cezanne painting, except minus the, the the colors. It's just like geometry and and Cezanne. It's 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 interesting. Yeah. So. I agree. Uh, I, 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 it's very evocative to me. My eye always goes to this card whenever I see it. Yeah. I, when I said Mondrian, I meant uh, Cezanne, but there you go. The next one so, has that same effect on me. <laughs> oh, God. The next one's art is great. Ugh. This is a Repentant Blacksmith. It's so good. A very simple card. Two mana for a 1-2 protection from red. Very functional, good card. But this Drew Tucker art is... It's it's kind of fascinating to me. I feel like you could you could have whole art lectures on this card this art yes and and i can't really speak to why that is exactly but i can tell you that the the figures (laughs) the figures are very it's abstractly rendered but they're very accurately rendered it looks like you can see these two men standing here in this forge but the forge is completely abstracted it's like it's like drew tucker's like you know spread water on his watercolors to just remove the definition of the forge except for the fire which the two men are stoking it looks like one or both of them are stoking it's just and the 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 abstraction of the forge itself kind of replaces the meaning of the forge with the meaning of heat it's like heat or smoke or flame encompassing the thing so you feel like you're hot yes. when you look at yes. this art that is the most amazing thing about this painting is the the kind of radiation around the kiln yeah is so abstract and so cool that it, you really do get a feeling of temperature and the and it's just it's it's like a blend of heat and smoke and shadow that's just so well done and it's it's a it's a really a kind of fascinating uh composition and design you just want to stare at it forever i know i feel like you could get lost in it i collected you know i used to collect all the sets back in the day i had sets of all the uh complete sets of um revised and i had like four complete sets of chronicles and this was one of my favorite cards that was reprinted in chronicles yeah i never owned uh, a set of um arabian nights or antiquities back in the day or legends but i did have a set of the dark revised and in, in, in chronicles and forth in fact i bought boxes and boxes of chronicles <laughs> yeah so did i actually i also am in love with this flavor text because of how applicable it is for my confession they burned me with fire and I found that I was for endurance made. I just, the, the way that relates to the function of the card is just incredible to me. I love it. Right, right. It's great. Well, I, I don't remember seeing him play, being played much, but there, there was in one of the invitational decks, someone was playing a pro red blue creature. 
And I, I do think those showed up in uh, Pro Red Matter. It mattered. Yeah. So. yeah. The next card is great for a number of reasons. Yeah. Uh, the Ring of Maroof. So this <laughs> is the original. This is the progenitor for the Wishes. It's a five yep. mana mono artifact that says five. You put five mana additionally into it and says instead of drawing a card from the top of your library, select one of your cards from outside the game. <laughs> this card yep. i'm reading the card printed text this card can be any card that you have that you're not using in your deck or that for some reason has left the game which you know related to exile ring right. of maroof is removed from the game entirely after use <laughs> in the one of the f- first floor rules announcements it was clarified i think it might have been even the first it was a numbered item in beth Morsan's floor rules announcement that announced the first ban and restricted list it explained that this card could be used to retrieve cards that were removed from the game or in your sideboard, setting the standard, the precedent mm-hmm. for the wishes later on. In judgment. So, in judgment. So, this actually sets that up. It, it doesn't just, you know, it doesn't just precede those cards. It actually sets the standard for how those will be ruled to be played in tournament settings. Right. Um, you know, th- this card is, again, one of those cards I never owned back in the day and, and was very expensive, so I never really thought I- felt I needed. But the artwork, so it's Dan Frazier's swirl in the background, but the ring itself is so cool. Yeah, it's the, yeah, it's a, a figure's open mouth such that they're, yeah. you know, ostensibly yelling, but it's it's really cool. The face, the, the uh, it's just something like you just really want to own it, you know? You know, I want that ring. It's it's funny. I never really internalized how Dan Fraser did three rings in this set: Aladdin's ring, Jandor's ring, and Ring of Maroof. Good point. And we they're all they all have his here. similar touch to them with the the stylistic background. Yeah, yeah. Dan Fraser. I mean, those are great artworks. So the Ring of Maroof is anything but efficient. You have to put ten mana in it, and you <sighs> replace a draw. So it's just a horribly inefficient Magic card. That said, I did play one copy in my five color deck for a couple of years, and I have altered it so it, the ring is the <laughs> is the one ring from the lord of the rings nice and did yeah. you get to grab whatever you wanted yeah yeah do you did. have any memory of any card you grabbed with it uh i think i grabbed a lot of removal spells. i think i got like a fireball <laughs> or wrath of gods or things like that it was a catch-all removal spell in a lot of cases got it yeah too bad i mean again this card suffered greatly from being so expensive i mean even if they had it like i don't know three and then four to activate yeah it, it would have been a lot better. way over costed well and really the, replacing a draw is the thing that does it oh god if it just yeah. sat in play and it was like seal of wish it would be a really good card you know it would functionally work a lot different but having to replace a draw is just a death knell yep I mean, it's almost as expensive as Planar Portal to play and activate. <laughs> right. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Anyway. Which, yeah, which really tells you something in comparison. They were, this is another one of those things like Ali from Cairo where they were very afraid of this effect. It be, yeah. Being so unpredictable and unprecedented, they just didn't know how to cost it. So they just went way too safe. Well, we're in the home stretch now. So let me, uh, let, let me move to the next card. The next card is the second card that was restricted in the original ban and restricted list announcement. <laughs> And it was not restricted uh, for very long, and it was not. It was restricted because of a, an, an interpretation of it that uh, is no longer the case today. And this card, of course, is none other than Rook Egg, mm-hmm. which costs three generic and one red, and is a beautiful Fabergé design with a kind of like embryo animal, you know, in part of the shell. Mm-hmm. Uh, but this egg is a zero-three creature, and basically the gist is that if it goes to the graveyard, 
you put a 4-4 flying red creature into play uh, and you use a counter to represent it. The problem is that at the time, it was understood to be quite literally, if it goes to the graveyard, like for example, if you use Bazaar Baghdad and it goes to, the gra- to discard it, it goes to the graveyard and then you get a 4-4 creature, which would be basically like a really powerful basking Rualla with Bazaar, right? Right. <laughs> It'd be like... <laughs> It'd be ridiculous. The, the original <laughs> hollow one, effectively. It, exactly. It's hollow one. <laughs> um, with flying, even. Yeah. So, um, so anyway, you know, it was uh, errated um, for its intent. It does say go to the graveyard. So if you want to be a stickler about text, then I don't know. How would you handle it? Well, I mean, this is just a, a shining example of the classic problem that will never fully be resolved, right? But between printed text and original ruled intent and designer yeah. intent, right? Uh, my they tried to put all this. They tried to put all this behind them when they reprinted an eighth and ninth. Right. Maybe they reprinted an eighth and ninth just so they wouldn't have to deal with that issue. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Um, in, in my opinion, it's pretty silly to think that they really meant for you to discard this card right. to to get its effect, especially in the same set with Bazaar of Baghdad. <laughs> but but who knows? There were lots of crazy combos in the original days of Magic that were unintended, and so my instincts tell me that. It was probably just an oversight that it didn't have the extra lang- explanatory language of going to the graveyard from play. You'll note that the text box is full, basically. With, you know, you could fit another 10 letters in, but it could be that they just put so much other explanatory language here that they left out the part that would have clarified that. <laughs> but then cards, room. cards that have, you know, five point font like Lich or whatever kind of fly in the face of what I'm saying. So I, I, I genuinely don't know, <laughs> but I feel like the intent is clear. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's a card that I never actually saw. I did see a little bit back in the day, but I think when people played it, they played it under sketchy circumstances. <laughs> so, well, this is another one that I mentioned earlier that I had in my Hell's Caretaker deck. I loved turning this in and out of play nice. to get more creatures. You know, That's one of the things awesome. I never really thought of is that the if you were to just ignore the context of the card mechanically and look at that art, what kind of creature is that? Well, it's not entirely clear, right? It could be like, a, it, it's got like a little bit of a feather or fur, but you can't quite tell, right? Look at the way the wing is reaches up and is tipped with a claw. Oh, I think it's like that's an very eagle or a hawk. No, I think that's very clearly a dragon. I think this is. I think this was meant to be a dragon or a drake. And yeah, but they use the word ruck, which is a, I believe it's German for some kind of bird. I don't know if it's exactly for bird, but the, the you know the German version of rock, ROC is replaced with ruck. So I think that that's meant to be a German word for bird, but I believe this art is depicting a dragon or a drake. You'll note that the text box doesn't list a creature type. It just says 4-4 red flying creature. Yeah. It, it has since been oracled to create a 4-4 red bird. Well, that <laughs> that resolves Wizard's view of the what it is. But, <laughs> yeah, definitely. Yeah. And uh, maybe someone asked Chris Rush at one point before he passed. If anyone has, let us know. That's true. I imagine a lot of people talk to Chris Rush about this card. It's so iconic for him. The next art, of, the next uh, card is Sandals of Abdallah, which is yet another card dealing with Island Walk. Yeah. So it's a four mana artifact. It's a mono artifact, and for two mana, it gives it one creature Island Walk, and it has the same clause as uh, as uh, Aladdin's flying carpet. Uh, flying carpet. Yes, yeah. thank you. Which is still in the Oracle. It says target creature gains I walk until end of turn. When that creature dies this turn, destroy the sandals. Yeah. So the flying carpet because it was ne- it never reprinted. It was never reprinted. Why? Yeah. 
Oh my god! I know, right? Oh, so someone's got to someone's got to get on this one. <laughs> <laughs> we got inconsistent flying templating for sandals of Abdallah and flying carpet. It's really yeah, frustrating. Pretty frustrating. But, well, the uh, next card this, is Sandstorm, yeah. which is it's just imminently flavorful. But why is it green? I couldn't tell you. One green instant. Sorry, I, it's just a green instant. All attacking creatures suffer one damage. It does seem like a red effect, doesn't it? Definitely. I think this would be red. Yeah, but back Have in the day, this, color, spy, I, color pie was weird vis-a-vis green damaging creatures. You know, I, I remember back in the day, um, the, I remember actually myself using the Siren's Call uh, combo with uh, Holy Day, you know, oh, just as yeah. a kind of like prep thing, but I don't remember anyone ever playing this kind of effect. Hmm. This kind of like, uh, what is this, kind of like a uh, fumarole or like, what, Sim- Simoon is the word I was looking Simoon, for. yeah. Yeah, it's like Simoon. Um, never saw it, never saw it, saw play. It's kind of a forgettable card. Yeah, I completely agree. Unlike the next dozen cards. Oh my boy, god. Boy, the murderous row of cool stuff coming up next. <laughs> and none yeah, th- more this- so... Go ahead. Well, this is this is my favorite. I think this is my favorite card in the set. Okay. Honestly, I mean, Bizarre Baghdad is probably, in my opinion, the, the in my personal opinion, like my favorite in terms of... Um, the the intersection of all the things we've talked about of context, flavor, style, setting, you know, all that. Yep. But this is this is my I think just my overall favorite card in the set. Yeah. And we're talking about the Serendib Jin. It is a two blue blue creature, five six flyer, uh, which is just ridiculously just ridiculous. powerful. <laughs> <laughs> what a crazy rate. Crazy rate. But with a really steep drawback. Um during your upkeep you have to sacrifice a land and destroy it. It says it says on the card you must choose one of your la- own lands and destroy it. Yeah. I, I realize that there's some controversy over over this, so I'm just going to read the card, the the original text, and then you can correct me with the the uh, <laughs> oracle. It says if you destroy an island in this manner, Serendib Jin deals three damage to you. Serendib Jin is destroyed immediately if at any time you have no land in play. So um, I've been playing one of these in all of my blue red aggro control decks in uh, old school for the last couple of years that I've top baited the Eternal Central events with, and I've Eternal Central three consecutive uh, events, yeah, with one of them, and it's it's just a big finisher. And um, what's interesting is that I've kind of gotten really good at figuring out the timing of this card. So you know, it doesn't really matter to take three damage if you're dealing five. It's not that big of a deal, right? You can suck it up. You can sacrifice an island, but you also can build a deck that has, for example, Blood Moon in it, and then you can turn a lot of sacrifice like your volcanic islands. To the Blood Moon, or you can sacrifice Mishra's factories, or strip mines, or right. library, or Maze of Ith, or all kinds of other lands, you know, even a city of brass, so that it doesn't really, it's not really painful. Right. So you can design a deck pretty well so that you can just like win out with tempo with this. And it's really hard to deal with. This guy, remember, he, he in combat, he kills Juzum Jin and survives. So <laughs> yeah, it's really interesting how Urnum Jin and Juzum Jin became the standard bearers for R&D developing creatures and trying to mirror them yeah. for the rest of ma- or magic, when this card is obviously more degenerate than both of them. <laughs> it's true. And in a sense, Why that's a that? good thing, because this is not the yeah. model we should have been following. We should not have been endeavoring to make four mana blue 5-6 flyers for the rest of magic. <laughs> that, would, that, was a, a t- that would have been a terrible model. But this is obviously just a step above them in degeneracy. 
That's so true. And it's an interesting question as to why this card never kind of quite got its due. I think obviously the presence of Dark Ritual is the big reason Juzim. And then the and standard the fact that uh, Urnum was printed in Chronicles just gave Urnum a platform and kind of visibility and recognition that it never never would have otherwise had. Um, but I think the Serendip so Serendip suffered from not being reprinted. But it also suffers from the fact that the marginal the marginal utility of Serendip Jin is kind of quite diminishing relative sure. to its brothers and its brothers because sure. you know it's I actually remember in the late in the early two thousands uh, there was a little card shop in Columbus that I played at where I picked up my power again and um, started competing when I was got back into into vintage and type one at the time and the store owner just to humor me built a type one deck with like four Jusims and four Serendip Jins. And it was like humorous, you know, with City of Brass and everything. But um, you just you just can't really manage a board with two Serendip Gins very well. <laughs> right. Understood. You have to win very quickly or you're dead. <laughs> so the so, next card is... Uh, I just want to call attention. Yeah. To, you, you were alluding to it when you were reading the card, but there really is a, a templating issue here with regard to Destroy versus Sacrifice. But throughout this set, they have replaced the Destroy upkeep failure... <laughs> the, the the failure to make an upkeep payment of some kind or something similar they've replaced yeah. the word destroy in all these card texts with sacrifice june and afrit dan dan island fish uh i think there's a couple of others jihad all those cards said you must discard it or destroy it and they've all been replaced with sacrifice and the reason that is a functional change that actually matters is because if you play a consecrated land consecrate yeah. land on one of your lands then you can keep this thing around indefinitely with no drawback, right? right? In old school, that's true, and in in vintage, you could just be something as simple as uh, you know, Darksteel Citadel, right? Yeah. Wow, wow, that's too bad. I mean, maybe it really should be corrected. What do you think? Do you think it's worth correcting it, or do you think it's it's well, the, the the rules translation? I think, yeah, I'm of the opinion that it's a rules translation. They. But you can make the case that the printed text is functional, right? So, I mean, you and yeah. I are all very familiar with this argument. So the printed text works if you if you clean it up a little bit. It's very clear. You must choose one of your island lands, own lands, and destroy it. I mean, that works today. But you have to filter that through twenty five years of rules adjustments and how things, uh, how thing the meaning of things changed over time. I don't know, are there any cards that say sacrifice, that actually use the word sacrifice? Diamond Valley doesn't. Uh, uh, does metamorphosis, let me check metamorphosis. I don't, I don't think it does. I gotta, I gotta find it again. Moorish Cavalry Metamorphosis. It, it says sacrifice a creature of yours in yeah, play. Right. So I think that's a pretty compelling argument that they knew what they were templating. But then it Diamond says, Valley just, says tap to sacrifice one of your creatures. Yeah, so the two the two yeah. true sacrifice cards use that word, and yeah. the like the four or five other cards that are conditionally go the conditionally go to your graveyard, like Dan Dan. Dan Dan says Dan Dan is destroyed immediately if at any time you have no islands in play. As, as does Island Fish Chaconius. Exactly. So so there definitely is a distinction. Yeah, it's tough. It's yeah, it's tough. It's tough. It's tough to say whether that was just because those are on the creatures, and the creatures all say destroy. Juno Nefrit says if you don't pay this bla- black black upkeep, it's destroyed. Yes. and may not regenerate. Yes. So, jeez. But, but take a look at Cyclone. Also, Cyclone says uh, 
It says, if not discarded, Cyclone immediately does one damage per chip. So What a mess. What a, yeah, exactly. What a mess. They're yeah. obviously using a completely inappropriate term on Cyclone. So. <laughs> yeah. Yep. And, and, we'll and Alpha, was, Alpha was rife with referring to sacrifices as discards, too. I think I would hew as closely as possible to the original text if if it works, if it's functional. Yeah. And I think it is functional here. And this hasn't been reprinted, so there's not there's not a really great case for it not working, as it says. Well, aside from the fact that they just don't want to. <laughs> the next card, uh, of course, following Serendip Jin is Serendip Afrit, which mm-hmm. I think actually has a legitimate argument for being the best creature in the set, <laughs> oddly enough. Yes. I think it combination of power and efficiency yeah yeah and and the color it's in uh yeah you know at the time i think it was a slam dunk in in the in the mid 1990s it was a slam dunk it was Juzum. but i think in this day and age given how decks are designed i think serendip afrit is probably the most powerful car- creature in the set well, uh, well there's also curd ape but <laughs> that aside <laughs> I mean, in part of it is because Serendip Afrit goes in so many of these different decks. It goes in like these blues. It goes in the blue-red aggro control. It goes in the, these like blue-white, green skies decks with Sarah. And it goes in. Uh, I mean, just it can go in other things too. It can go in blue-black. You know, um, yeah. it's just it's just. I mean, it's Delver of Secrets. It's the first Delver. Yeah, it's just incredibly, incredibly efficient. Right. It can be deployed on turn one and certainly turn two really reliably. And then. Um, if you can protect it, it it just will win the game with a little bit of support. Right. This this artwork, by the way, is crazy weird. Um, you know the the original Serendip Freet artwork is just just really weird. Yeah. What does that have to do with this creature? Nothing. Well, I think it's I think I mean, it's saying I it's this flying, is a, this is so. a genie, right? This is coming out of its it's coming out of its bottle. It's it's not a well, but it's an Afrit. Well, Afrit I don't know how Afrit relates to. I genie, think they're but, just okay. different kinds of genies, and and uh, okay, yeah. This Afrit is coming out of its bottle, and kind of like a stream at a time. It's like unspooling out of the the bottle, and it's kind of like this weird, yep. demonic-looking, double-faced. It's just weird. I, I and it's got a scimitar instead of one of its hands. <laughs> yeah, I, I, <laughs> it's kind of like a sliver in that. Respect. I mean, I use the these four for my blue red deck, but I actually prefer the Seren- the um, if Biff art. Oh, yeah, do you? I do. That's funny. I mean, the I mean, aesthetically, I like the Arabian card, but from a pure art perspective, I, I think the other art is more interesting. That's fair. Yeah, this art is really gruesome, and I'm not a big fan of it. Actually, it's like Hellraiser. <laughs> <laughs> A little bit. So, do you do you think this is the most powerful creature in the set? It's hard to say. I I think so. I mean, obviously, power is an ambiguous term in in magic, but in terms of its efficiency and the you know the the strength of the drawback versus how quickly it finishes games. Obviously, Juzam you know is one more mana for two more power, right. but flying is hugely relevant in old school and back in the day. This card gets blanked by far fewer things than Juzam did, and, and it can't be bolted. Which is just cannot yeah. be overstated, and it can't be just you know it can block a, a factory, and even if the factory is being pumped, it survives. I mean, yeah. back in the day, I remember people playing with it, but I remember not feeling the kind of respect for it that I have today. I don't think we really fully understood its power, and I think that you know this this thing can't quite trade with a Sarah, but the fact for three mana it almost does is just incredible. So yeah, well, the next card is a real tricky one. One we've debated a lot in the past that's true and it's the only card that is in this set that is banned from vintage for not being or not <laughs> anti, for being an anti-card yeah yeah or or um 
dexterity. Yeah. Dexterity, yeah. But there's no dexterity card right. in this set, is no, there? No. They're all they're in Legends and Alpha, yeah, among other things. So we're talking about Scheherazade. And we, we don't need to read the whole text of this thing, but this is where you play a sub game and whoever loses it uh loses half of their remaining life points rounded down. So basically this is a you know, functionally a ten damage bolt <laughs> on a twenty twenty right. board. Uh if if you if you lose the sub game. And it, it's a obviously a top down design. I mean the the framing device yeah. of the Thousand and One Arabian Nights is that Scheherazade is the Sultan's uh, mistress, and the Sultan uh, murders each mistress that he uh, he beds. And uh, the way that she prevents him from killing her is that um, is that she spins a tail until he falls asleep, and then spins another tail the next night and keeps it going. So, uh, but this art is great; it really is great. The the Kaja has Kaja Foglio has packed so much into this simple piece of art. Yeah. I mean, you've got, you know, the Scheherazade here, like, telling her stories, but you've got this, this. Uh, uh, I mean... Well, she's in a bed, you know, so the setting of where she tells her stories is right. is firmly depicted. You've got the moon in the background, you've got the kind of laced, uh, you know... Uh, Gauze. Yeah, it's just, it's yeah. just great. I, and it looks like there's a hookah in the foreground, <laughs> and then some kind of decorative mobile yeah hanging i can't from, quite tell like, what that's it, meant it to might be. be a lamp a lamp yeah oh yes okay i see what you mean looks like it could be a lamp an oil lamp i've um yeah i've uh i picked one of these up um maybe a year or two years ago just because i wanted to own it and uh yeah quite happy that i have <laughs> well <laughs> it, it is from, effectively the titular card of the exactly. set i think i got it for like 30 or 40 dollars and just a couple years ago and now <laughs> it's like many times that so it's banned in every format. <laughs> right, right. But it is it is legal in Eternal Central's old school, and it's quite obnoxious. Go. I mean, I took a picture <laughs> uh, the last year's Eternal Central old school. I think I saw, what was it, four or five nested sub-games? Oh, and, wow. and the players had kind of figured out this mechanism for, like, compi- you know, c- c- condensing all the cards so they when they unnested the games they would be able to figure out what was happening i posted a really funny picture on twitter of that last uh last uh fall well it's worth noting that despite the fact that this card is banned in basically every format that it could ostensibly be sanctioned in they keep reprinting it (laughs) because in unstable they printed the countdown is at one which is three rr for play a sub game starting at one life huh and then for the rest of the main game, if a source would deal damage to a player who didn't win the sub game, it deals double damage to that player instead. So there's a variant of Scheherazade that's been reprinted in the last year. Not reprinted, but printed in the last year. Wow. I, I was unaware of that. That's interesting. Yep. Cool card. Very cool card, don't you think? I mean, I do remember... I do. The, the, the flavor part is fantastic. Do you remember... What was it... Um, one of the Carp brothers, probably Ben, was playing like Scheherazade and in, in, is like a Burning Wish target just to be obnoxious in one of his decks a while back. That was pretty annoying. <laughs> no, I don't. But uh, I must admit that the mechanic, the you know, in-game mechanic of playing a sub-game has never interested me at all because it's like, it's it's to me, it's a semantic concept. <laughs> like, let's play another game of Magic. Okay, let's finish the one we're in first, you know? After that, yeah, I'll be glad to play another game of Magic with you. Yeah. But the fact that they call it a sub game has never really interested me at all. It just seemed like administrative, uh, unnecessary. Yeah, I mean, we we debated that. Uh, we won't have to rehash that here. <laughs> but I will say that watching <laughs> right. these players 
play like these four or five nested sub games was quite fascinating. And also watching them like decide when to scoop and when not to and who was like it was fascinating because this one player was like winning all the sub games but losing the war because that's because funny. he was he was winning the sub games but he was losing time on the match <laughs> you know what i mean he was losing it's like inception yes exactly so anyway the next card in the set is a really cool little card really cool little card sinbad yeah. who is one of the heroes of a thousand and one arabian nights um, and it's just, he's a 1-1 one, one for two mana, a blue and a color, generic. He taps to draw a card from your library, discards it, unless it's a land. Um, it's actually really kind of subtly powerful. Really powerful. I, I found an yeah. insanely powerful use for this in Old School 95 that kind of led to this yeah. card to spike for a little bit. But the use was in a reanimator deck in 95, because when 95, you get Ashen Ghoul uh, yeah. on top of Nether Shadow, and you also get Dance of the Dead. So basically, anytime you activate this, unless you draw Dance of the Dead or Animate Dead, you want to discard it. I mean, yeah. if or you draw it, right? If you draw, and it's so insane with Bizarre, because if you tap it and you draw land, then you get to keep the land, and then it actually gives you more cards in hand to draw with Bizarre. If you reveal right. a Bizarre, all the better. If you reveal a, yep. tri- a creature, like a Triskelion or a Polar Kraken or a Nether Shadow or Ashen Ghoul, you discard it. So it's like, right. so in. Perfect. insanely synergistic yeah. and if you discard and it's even better than that because if you bizarre and discard sinbad then it gives you more creatures to trigger nether shadow and ashen ghoul so it's like it's like perfectly synergistic in that deck right every possible outcome is correct right the the <laughs> other at one point i had like and you can and it also helps you keep hands that don't have bizarre even though you have four d- uh. Uh, demonic consultations so in one of the games i played <laughs> i had double sinbad and it was fine I'm like, okay, I'll just discard yeah. stuff, and then I eventually find Bizarre. Um, just really, really good. Um, one thing I wanted to yeah. mention, though, um, some old school players have thought talked about using it with Field of Dreams, and I think there's another effect where you can... Oh, obviously, Sylvan Library. It's pretty good with Sylvan Library. Yeah. But with Sylvan and, and, and Field of Dreams, you can do some... Of, there may be another... I think there's another card that you get to see. Petra Sphinx, or maybe something else, but... Um, there are other combos in pre ninety five old school with Sinbad, but he just he's just a lot of value, you know. So and, yeah, it's a really cool. And you could you could use him with Library of Lang if you wanted to, not have to discard something else. You know what I mean? So you get some optionality there. Anyway, right. So what's going on in this art? You know, it looks like he's climbing a mountain sideways, but it's just it's just who the hell knows? I I feel like he's holding on to a dragon. Oh my god, you're right. Kevin, you're absolutely I right. Think those That's are a scales. claw, clawed hand underneath. Yeah. Yeah. Wow, I never knew that. I think he's riding a dragon. Suddenly this card is the art has become far more interesting to me. Seriously. <laughs> I mean, I always thought it was kind yeah, of mundane, but yeah. wow, that he is. That's a clawed that's a clawed grip. It's, it actually evokes Studio Ghibli. Oh my god, it does. To me. Yeah, it feels like spirited away now. Or like the wind also rises. Just that air, yeah, that yeah. aerodynamic feel that's pretty cool the next card is also really cool in fact the two in a row we've got it's kind of funny that they work out this way alphabetically singing tree is four mana for a zero three summon singing tree <laughs> tap to reduce an attacking creature's power to zero it is now oracle to be a plant oh sadly. god singing singing tree was so much better um so this is target attacking creature has base power zero until end of turn and the card right after it, which we can talk about these two kind of together, is Sorceress Queen. 
And she is now a human wizard. She used to be summon sorceress. But she's target creature other than sorceress queen, which is hilarious, has base power and toughness 0-2 until end of right. turn. Another another pairing to, here. Another, yeah. Yeah. And we talked about, I mentioned sorceress queen with respect to the island of Wakwak, but it's kind of a trifecta of a sort um, of those three in this set. So the singing tree has never been reprinted, and it is reserved. Uh, Sorceress Queen, though, was immediately reprinted and revised right. and has been a few other times since then right. and has become, in my opinion, something of an iconic card. But but my the way I've interfaced with this card has always been with the revised versions or fourth edition yeah. versions. And so looking at the Arabians version is a little bit foreign, but also really satisfying so because the, the black border makes it makes the art pop so much more. That's so interesting. Yeah. I don't know. I think I might own one black-bordered copy of this, yeah. but the art, this Kaja Foglio art is just really intense. <laughs> I, I had to pick it up for the uh, Jennifer War. I had to say that the um, singing tree art is kind of um, dist- unsettling to me. Just this... this Why is well, that? It's a little bit of Wizard of the Oz, Wizard of Oz, where you know the, the yep. bark is opened up in the middle, and there's this kind yep. of barky mouth. <laughs> and, yep. and you know, obviously, it's hard to convey, uh, uh, you know, in a static <laughs> image, uh, uh, the notion of a tree singing. But it's just yep. th- there's this kind of like stillness in the image that's kind of like almost like a landscape. But then you've got this like yep. weird anthropomorphic Wizard of Oz type thing, and it's not it's not very fantasy oriented. It's more of like a realistic, quiet moment by a creek. But it's got this yep. weird mouth on this bark on this like thick bark of a tree so it's just unsettling and, and then there's the skulls you know floating around yeah the tree. That, that just reinforces the unsettled <laughs> nature of it it's like it's it's kind of like yeah i'm ominous. trying to picture it's it's very it to me it's got kind of a jim henson sort of feel yeah like i could picture the tree being portrayed in um in the dark crystal <laughs> <laughs> that's the kind of vibe that i get from it yeah, yeah, that's exactly right. That kind of like slightly, slightly cute, slightly scary. Um, yeah. yeah, that's exactly right. The, the, this artist that did a good impossible job. anatomy, right? <laughs> Rob Alexander did a good job. Yeah, it's beautiful. Well, that brings us to so, stone throwing devils. Oh man! <laughs> <laughs> oh. I've definitely seen this in play. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, we all have. In vintage, in, in, no less. In type one, <laughs> blocking my ophidians very unkindly. Uh-huh. <laughs> Before they got paralyzed. Yep. <laughs> yep. Uh, and and this definitely sees playing old school as well. The yeah. the the old first strike stone throwing devils. Common. Sometimes those with the most sin cast the first stones. <laughs> <laughs> what these have never been reprinted. Isn't that remarkable. And they're still only like two or three dollars. Yeah, it's essentially flying. <laughs> it's really the funny. flying man equivalent, right? Flying man. Yeah, I love this art. Oh, it's God. kind of a little bit frenetic, but it also kind of implies the quantity of devils that there are, unlike the flying men, right? Yeah. But this art is like they're they're gonna get you with their stones. I mean, <laughs> it's just enough <laughs> of them that it's annoying, and you can't keep track of them all. <laughs> yeah, it's a little bit. It's like a little bit Gremlins meets. Um, yeah. I mean, I can't quite tell what's going on in the front, but it looks like they're up on the parapets. But it's hard to tell because there's like trees behind them. 
Yeah, I don't know what's going on, but I know that Guillermo del Toro directed <laughs> yes, it. Yes, exactly. <laughs> this is a straight out of a scene of Hellboy 2. Well put. Have you seen Don't Be Afraid of the Dark? Uh-uh. Oh, that's pretty menacing. And they, those are similar to Stone Throwing Devils. But anyway. Yeah, yeah I love this card. I've always kind of had a, a, a simple affinity for this card. I don't know if I own it's any, actually. I mean, I own almost all the rares in the set. The only land I don't yep. own is Elephant Graveyard. I own every other land. And the only, and I own all the, I actually don't think, the only artifact I don't own is Jewel Bird and all the other artifacts. Really? Yeah. Because you have to, you have <laughs> to get funny. them all for the Agenafreet War. But, um, and I own almost all yeah. the other rares, but this is a card I, I don't think I own, never owned. Well, there's next to no application for it well, in Magic. You have to play, I mean, you really do have to play a dedicated mono black deck and probably, here's, here's the dividing line. If you're playing mono black for Fallen Empires, then I think it's justifiable inclusion. Because you can, with Bad Moon, okay. you can pump it up, you know, get it. It helps against the other creature decks, right? Yeah, I, can, I mean, I the Mono White decks are playing, like, Clergy of the Holy Nimbus, so this first strike actually matters. It, well, and the, the Tundra Wolves, right? Tundra Wolves so, and, and Savannah yeah. Lions, it can, it can definitely do some work. Right. Yeah, it's a cute card. I like it. Next card is a card that my, I think I transform my evaluation over time. When this first card yeah. first was... This is an important card. It really is. So we're talking about uh, an enchant creature, unstable mutation. When when I was playing back in the early, early uh, the mid, early and mid nineties, I gave this card no regard whatsoever. Yeah, me too. Like this is just totally dismissed it. But I think somewhere around like you know the early two thousands, I saw people playing like Stompy decks with this, and and I really like I was like, wow, this is one of the best creature enhancements ever printed. <laughs> yeah. I mean, just in terms of pure damage, right? Yep. I mean, it's because ba- it, basi- it basically represents six damage. It's basically exactly. one blue, six exactly. damage. Exactly. Which is like, you know, twice as good as giant growth. And, you know, if you're. And lightning, and lightning bolt. bolt. <laughs> and I, I do remember back in the day, the big thing that you would try and do with Berserk was, was bloodlust. Do uh, you take ball lightning, bloodlust, Berserk? That was yeah. the big. That's 20. Yeah, that was the big thing everyone was trying to accomplish and never could, never could accomplish. Um, <laughs> but, you know, if you go. Unstable mutation, giant growth, berserk. It's basically the same thing on even a small yeah. thing. <laughs> yep. Yeah, this card is it. I have a, a healthy respect for it because it was printed and revised. I have a ton of copies, and I also hate the art. So yeah. I thought, well, I don't, I don't want this card. It kills my creatures because I was never really an aggro player. I like, but yeah. then having seen people in tournaments build the nice tempo decks, put this on a, a, a scrib sprite and go to town. I have respect for this. I like the style of art, but this art, I don't like the the figuration, the, the composition or design. Yeah. I mean, I like that kind of like dark, swarthy painting. You know, it's like it revokes like Frazetta, but but uh, yeah, this art is not great, not that great. <laughs> so we've already talked about the war elephant a little bit. It's just a four mana, two, two trample bands. Pretty generic, pretty unexciting. A nice little piece of art, but ultimately quite forgettable as a card, and unfortunately, under, yeah. sadly, underpowered. I just noticed the artist is Kristen Bishop, which is not a name I recognize no. at all. Uh, this is apparently the only card she did well. <laughs> in all of Magic. What do you know? Huh. It's it's quite nice. It, it is. is a very nice war elephant. Certainly. It's just too bad that they, it's it's hampered by being saddled by a sucky card. Yeah, and the the color scheme really works with all the oranges that Damian Willich brought to the table. <laughs> so, yes, it's quite nice. Yeah. If yeah, if I if you if I hadn't been able to look at the artist line, I might have pegged this as one of his. 
Yeah, that's but, true. Uh, it's thick. It's interesting. Yeah. Speaking of artists, Susan Van Camp's Why Lily Wolf is actually one of my favorites. What? A- I think it's 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 kind of a corny. Um, I mean, her her style is always this way, but it's kind of a corny like uh, Three Wolves T shirt, yes. you know, by today's meme yes. standards. But it's actually genuinely beautiful yeah. and very well done, and the the depiction of the wolves is great. I actually really I find it very satisfying this art. Yeah, it's it, you're right. It's one of those like I don't know late '90s T-shirts that you would see with you yeah. know. But what's cool? I mean, what's it's done just well enough that it doesn't it doesn't quite sour over time. Yeah. But, also, it's yeah. not filled with you know stars and any yeah. kind of things that implies mysticism so much as just right. Uh, uh, you know, offset impressions of this wonderful right, wolf. Right, you've got the kind of action up front where he's howling, and then you've kind of got the the face mm-hmm. view overlaid. Um, but I, which which is interesting because how else are you going to depict a wolf giving another creature plus one plus one? You know, right, right. That's a good point. <laughs> I like this interpretation. <laughs> yeah, he does. So he taps to give any other wolf, uh, any other creature in play plus one plus one. So it's a little little booster yeah. there. The wolves they they do better in packs. Um, right. But I, I've never seen this card played. Never seen it. No, nor have I. It's not. It's not really very good by today's standards. I mean, you kind of you can get this effect for one mana in, in today's <laughs> sets. So true. And the last yeah. card in the set is Yudwin Afrit, which we've already covered. So Kevin, let's use our last minute or so, just kind of big picture. You know, the set. The set is just big picture. The, the set is weird. It has some strange recurring elements. The whole Jinnafrit thing. The named creatures that should be legends, but they're not. <laughs> The uh, all of the Middle Eastern desert setting, of course, it can, there's a lot of repeated use of the the Taj and the the library, that kind of yeah. thing. Various various artifacts and settings from the Arabian Nights, of course. Right. But my absolute favorite, there are two things that stand out to from this set for me. One is power. This set has just incredibly powerful cards. Most of them are Jins yeah. or Freets. There's a creature. Is so many cards that make a statement in terms of power, and then also the lands. Right, the library bazaar, Diamond Valley Elephant Graveyard. The lands are interesting, unique city of brass, obviously, and powerful too. So I, it feels almost like there's kind of a tribal element to the Jins and Efreets, but they don't play off each other in any meaningful way. Yeah. So the thing that stands out to me is just the the brokenness of the power and the lands. Well, having done the set review, so I I, I think if there's one enduring feature of this this set. It's the lands. The lands are the most enduring yeah. feature of the set. This They're so formative. City, City of Brass, Bazaar of Baghdad, Library of Alexandria, and then the second tier. I mean, even when those cards, when the other lands don't continue to see play, the kinds of ways in which they directed design, you know, preventing damage, dealing damage, sacrificing, yeah. regeneration, all those, all these things kind of, you know, um, inform what was, what came after, you know, even Island of Wok Wok kind of prefiguring maze of if so um and and obviously antiquities builds on that in a big way with lots of the first man land so i think i think you're i think the lands are the most enduring feature but for the short term and for old school players and for you know a good five years the most important feature wasn't the lands it was the most the hyper efficient creatures with huge drawbacks it was serendipa free juzim jinn urnum jinn and to a lesser extent serendip jinn and and um and then you know the uh, the 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 low the, the the turn one creatures like Kurt Ape and and Gazban Ogre and things like that. Um, I have to say though that um, so there's eleven 
cards in each color. And I think there are three, two or three rares in each of them. And by rares, I mean you two, right? So yeah, Black sure. has <laughs> Juzem and Guardian Beast and maybe one other. White, I think there's, I don't know if you can tell if it's two or three. I think the Cabal Ghoul was the, the third. third, I think. Yeah. yeah. Um, what I was struck by is how many thematic pairings there were, which we identified, you know? Yeah, I like that. Like the flying carpet and the sandals, the um, the ring and the 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 Aladdin's ring and the Aladdin's lamp, the uh, piety and uh, uh, army, army of, Allah. of Allah, and yeah, I mean all of that. Yeah. I really thought that was cool. How there's all these kind of like cards that, but on the and the in the final analysis, I think that if they had just made a few tweaks here and there, could have made a huge difference. You know, because you've got like whole swaths of this set that are just fundamentally unplayable garbage you know <laughs> yeah and then you've got if they had just made them a little bit better then the set could have been a little bit more balanced and more interesting overall yeah i agree with you it's one of the things that always makes me shake my head at early magic sets is why it, did you put bird maiden and serendipifrit right. right in in the same set right just infuriating why do you have i know why do you have Juzam Jin and then like War Elephant? <laughs> yeah. And yes, I know, I know Rarity has something to do with it. Don't get me wrong, but this this set really pushed pretty hard on the the huge creatures with huge drawbacks thing. Yeah, but you know what? It's interesting. So, um, for being so early in the design of Magic, this set when it was first released didn't have a whole lot of opportunity to make good on one of Richard Garfield's guiding principles which was the, the interactions yeah. and sometimes the intentionally unforeseen interactions but all it takes is like a couple more sets before you get spirit link and yeah. then you can put spirit link on a serendipifrit and go to town yeah. <laughs> so it still makes good on that it's just that it kind of reached really far down one extreme for being this young in the game yeah it's true and you've already mentioned this uh, this other point i'm about to make but I think this set really opens up the utility creature front. You know, you've got Aladdin, Aladdin, who steals things. You've got the mm-hmm. first creature that steals other creatures, Old Man of the Sea. Yep. Uh, you've got um, um, Sinbad, right? And then, of course, you've already right. mentioned the, the two quote-unquote legends. And Sinbad certainly would be, be among them, but Alibaba and uh, um, what was the other one? The uh, anti- Abu Jafar. Yeah, the anti-regenerator one. Um, the her- that's the herjackal. Oh, her- I don't think yeah, that would be, be a legend. Right. But still, there yeah. are five or six creatures in here that would be legends by today's standards. And, and five or six creatures here that do kind of utility functionality. So yeah, yeah, yep. Yeah. So it's it's interesting. It's got a lot of the elements that makes magic great. Um, and uh, you know, drop of honey is the. There aren't a lot of enchantments in here, but those that do are interesting. I mean, a drop of honey cyclone. Um, uh, it's 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 certainly unstable mutation. It's just unfortunate that. You have jank like, uh, you know, fish liver exactly, oil, <laughs> exactly. Yeah, and and really narrow things like magnetic mountain. But um, but you've got also these like token creatures like rook egg and and uh, the bottle of Suleiman. So you've got elements that will become important later on. You know, hearing you describe that, thinking about this set in by today's design standards. So this set only has what was it, seventy two unique cards in it, I think, and y- y- you take one away for the mountain. So you're talking about a 70-card set that has these incredible extremes of balance. It's got you got Juzam and Serendib and Library and Bazaar at the top. And at the bottom, you've got War Elephant and, and Piety, yeah. right? Fish, fish liver oil. It's, it's 
almost impressive that they were able to pack that broad of a right. range of design right. mistakes, basically, yeah. uh, into a seventy card set. It's it's they and the the thing that got sacrificed, I think, was a lot of the middle. There's just very few cards in this set that you would call filler, right. mid range right. cards like desert nomads is a gray that's, ogre that's, yeah uh, that was my complaint right i mean i said i made this point but like War- moorish cavalry is like that missing middle yes exactly it's that is the perfect example of it's a four mana three three with trample it's just war mammoth reprinted but also in four mana you've got juzam in this set right yep and at three mana you've got Old Man of the Sea and Serendib Afrit and Yidwin Afrit. You've got these just incredible extremes of power that they just they just didn't design sets with uniformity in mind at this point. At least not the expansion set. But a, a beautiful set. Um, it really is. Is your f- lots of great early art. What did you say is your favorite art? Is it Dan Dan? Um, what did I say? It's definitely one of the Drew Tucker pieces. <laughs> it would be either Dan Dan or Repentant Blacksmith. Oh, that's a great yeah. one. That's a really great one. What did I say was my favorite art? Do you recall? Well, you talked a lot about Juzam Jin, but I don't know if it was your favorite. Yeah, I think I said Bizarre might be just all, oh, bizarre all around. Great. But yeah. man, there's some great ones in here. The Ring of Maroof is amazing. The the <laughs> um, I, I don't think I really appreciated the kind of odd Cezanne, Paul Gauguin, you know, py- elements and pyramids with that unstable line at the top and the kind of... yeah like off kilter geometry is really cool um yeah i uh, uh oop- city of brass is still beautiful art o- Oubliette too. And, and cabal ghoul and Oubliette. Are, i think Oubliette is just great just great yeah. um agree and uh and guardian beast is one that and, I'm, I'm still really attracted to is for as yeah. kind of goofy as it is it still really draws the, and eye. the island fish jaconius is just amazing amazing <laughs> um El Hajjaj is uh, yeah is up there. Dan Dan, those are probably in my top the the top ten and my top five. Yeah, I think I think I've already stated them. It's, it's just a beautiful, beautiful, iconic, unforgettable set. Well, yep, definitely one of the best. So if you enjoyed <laughs> this podcast, if you enjoyed this uh, take, Kevin and I will take will consider doing the same thing for we were talking about maybe antiquities and or the dark. But depends yeah. on what you all think. We, we kind of want to avoid legends. <laughs> too big. <laughs> <laughs> too big and too weird. Yeah. But uh, this is something we would be considered doing again. So definitely. So until then, thank you for listening to episode 77 of So Many Insane Plays. You can tweet us at many insane plays or email us at so many insane plays podcast at gmail.com. As always, and until next time, we wish you many insane plays. Ha, 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 ha.